Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, sponsored by the members of the Grand Theft World community at grandtheftworld.com. It's October 9th. This is episode 101. One Nation Under Blackmail. We're going to be getting into this book tonight, just volume one. We're going to have special guest Whitney Webb, and um, we got a lot to talk about tonight. In this week in history, in Grand Theft World history, Elon Musk decided he wants to buy Twitter. He was about to go to Discovery in a lawsuit. He decided he actually wanted to buy Twitter, which is a big turnaround. It's been going on for like six months, if you've been following the story. And then Twitter said afterwards, I don't think we want to sell to you. So now there's like another blockage in that whole thing going on. Uh, Zelensky came out this week. He called for a NATO nuclear preemptive strike on Russia, which is like the least strategic, strategic military decision in history or request in history. It's kind of silly, but it could end up with a big catastrophe domino effect uh, that could affect a, a far broader spectrum than just folks in his own country. So we better look at that. Um, <laughs> Jeffrey Sachs came out this week. We talked about Nord Stream blowing up. Uh, it's, it's a pipeline. It blew up in four places. We talked a little bit about it last week because it was a breaking story. Well, this week, Jeffrey Sachs, Columbia economist, came out and said he thinks the United States did it. Now, that's not my claim. That's Jeffrey Sachs. We're going like, to get to listen to his explanation behind that tonight. But that's an interesting story because the people bringing us all this green agenda potentially just committed the big eco-terror act of the year, and they want you to go eat the bugs. So there's a contradiction in that thinking. We'll break that open tonight. Also, it looks like maybe, might be, Hunter Biden could get indicted. Not for all the salacious things on his laptop, but things that are boring like tax fraud and other things his dad might have been involved in. So we're going to look into that. Also, the Alex Jones trial number two uh, is almost to a conclusion. The jury is out. Uh, the plaintiffs are asking for a range between $550 million to $7.8 billion dollars from jones so we're going to take a look at that story as it's unfolding and uh aforementioned we have guest whitney webb is going to talk about her book tonight and last but not least del big tree of the high wire broke some news about the cdc and their vsafe software they've been tracking people through the vaccine vaccine stages of covid and his his legal team has gotten together like a FOIA request lawsuit situation where they got some data and they've made some software so we can crawl the data and actually get some real science going on in these decision-making processes. It doesn't look as sparkly as they advertised this, advertised it to us. So we're going to have to take a look at that story as well. So uh, we'll be here for the next six or seven hours. We'll be smashing this week's uh, current events into historical context, going on some deep dives. We also have this little juicy tidbit, the centennial issue of foreign affairs. The age of uncertainty. So we'll be sure to take a good look at that this evening as well. Let's kick it off, though, with Luke Radowski from We Are Change and TheBestPoliticalShirts.com. And uh, let's get the show on the road. Now, uh, go, going to uh, the, uh, you know, my mind's going blank now. What's happening? What, what, I can't remember. I'm going to lose track. My mind's going blank now. What are you talking about? What the hell's going on here? Where the hell are you? My mind's going blank now. I can't remember. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. What am I doing here? My mind's going blank now. Where am I heading? I keep forgetting I'm president. Where am I? No idea. Last night on the television, uh, on television, I was on a telephone. Rapidly rising. Uh, 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 and with, uh, with, uh, I don't know. COVID 
what has taken more than 100 years. Look, here's why it's like in America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the foot in the We're going to seize the only gotten gains of Putin's autocracy. NATO's purpose is defend against aggression. Let me make that near and dear to you that you would like to be able to. Anyway. I'm. My mind's going right now. now that right there is definitely a top jam and if only he was as good as an auto-tuned singer as he was a president maybe we wouldn't be facing the prospects of world war three and economic calamity but hey you can't have it all welcome back beautiful and amazing human beings my name is Zukradowski here of wearechange.org and man oh man is there some absolutely wild and crazy news to get into today especially after the overtly aggressive moves being made by paypal that are now we're being met with the hashtag bankrupt paypal why is this happening what are the larger implications here what's the deeper more sinister ties to paypal well we're going to be talking about that plus a lot more as well as of course the deteriorating situation in ukraine right now as of course we've just had a major escalation a major moment in this proxy conflict that of course is going to be worth talking about mentioning and discussing in its longer implications as it looks like we're just in the beginning phases of a very serious situation that's only going to get a lot more serious from here now the clip that we played in the beginning of this broadcast was done by somebody i don't know who did this if you know who did this let me know down in the comment section below so i could attribute and of course link their work in the description as of course this auto-tune of all the greatest and latest joe biden and gaffes were put together and made into a music video that is absolutely hilarious we only played you a small segment and as soon as we find this creator we of course will be linking to their incredible amazing work down in the description below as of course i think right now it is extremely important to have art to have music to have self-expression that of course represents a picture and perspective of the world that makes us contemplate our existence on this planet which could only happen if ideas and expressions aren't limited which is exactly what PayPal is doing and why right now bankrupt PayPal is being shared around widely on a lot of big tech social media circles. Why is this happening? Well, PayPal just a few days ago announced a new policy that they were going to be implementing that would fine users $2,500 from their accounts retroactively if they shared the wrong expressions and ideas. I kid you not. PayPal literally bragged about this new implementation of their policy, which they were very proud of a few days ago, saying, hey, you advocate for misinformation. You present a risk to a user's well-being. Well, we're going to steal money from you, specifically $2,500. Now, now, what is misinformation? What is this safety or, or well-being? What are these generalized terms exactly going to mean? Well, of course, PayPal kept them vague because when they keep them vague, they, of course, could influence, stifle ideas, stifle expression, all the while imposing a totalitarian social media hellscape where people are too afraid to even speak out against the status quo, mainly because PayPal's going to rob them. Who's going to be deciding what was hurting other people's feelings? What was their understanding of, of misinformation? Well, it was their sole discretion to decide whatever they wanted it to be. You present an idea or thought that is a 
objectionable? You discriminate against someone's gender identity as PayPal openly claimed? And just like a thug running after a grandma's purse in the middle of the night down the street, they openly proclaimed and bragged, yes, we're going to be these future robbers up until they got a massive backlash and decided to do a 180 degree reverse turn course saying, oh no, this this was an error. We made a mistake here. We will not be stealing your money in the middle of the night. Oopsie daisy, there was a little coinky dink here, yes. Which of course a lot of people are being very skeptical of as of course PayPal as a company that many people argue has a monopoly on financial transactions on the internet has already been abusing its power, its authority, and punishing people, deplatforming people, debanking people for simply also expressing political ideas that they did not like. As of course, already under existing law, especially here in the United States, PayPal as a private company has the ability to implement whatever policy it wants, as argued unironically by many leftists and socialists. As of course, the mega monopoly corporation has already shut down a free speech union, anti-war voices, independent media, artists, and other comedians who dared to joke about ideas and express ideas that PayPal didn't like. They have also partnered and worked with discredited organizations like the SPLC that were sued many times in court for their slander, for them deliberately trying to hurt people's reputation by lying about them while pushing for their censorship, deplatforming, and debanking. This, again, highly discredited organizations with ties to, of course, a lot of sinister billionaires bankrolling them that has predominantly attacked people's ideas causing real-life harm is now working with PayPal as, of course, to weed out and debank individuals who dared to express ideas that the SPLC didn't like. Again, this is not an organization known for its accuracy. They have gotten many things wrong for the detriment to many individuals to the point where they had to settle in court many times for their clearly aggressive political actions that went over the top. And this is why PayPal working with them is many reasons why hashtag bankrupt PayPal is now being shared around widely on big tech social media with online commentators like Jack Posobiec saying, quote, no one is buying their walk back. We know what their plan is. They're just mad they got caught as essentially a social credit score is what a lot of very powerful multinational corporations and big banks along with centralized digital currencies is what a lot of people are after. And the best way to implement such a draconian, over-the-top, centralized system is, of course, destroy any kind of voices who have opposition for it. spread disinformation, spread propaganda, spread lies, while, of course, censor individuals like even the Surgeon General of Florida that just had one of his tweets deleted from his platform on Twitter. All of this as, of course, the White House, along with the federal police departments of this government, institutions like the FBI are going around big tech social media platforms and censoring stories about the president's son. This as we're also finding out that the White House is spending $265,000 on staff 
inside of their administration to deflect against the very serious allegations against Hunter Biden, highlighting another clear form of misinformation and propaganda from the administration that literally wants to control the internet and in many instances already has been controlling. As we recently found out, the White House has been censoring and deplatforming former New York Times journalists, satire websites, and other individuals who dared to, of course, question their defunct, bankrupt ideas. Especially since, you know, politicians like to keep arbitrary borders and have their poor people fight their other poor people. As, of course, many people agree that war is a racket. People don't want to hurt each other. People don't want to kill each other. But for some strange reason, when politicians tell the poorest people in their country to do so, they somehow follow orders and do this. Which is happening right now in Ukraine, which also represents the larger proxy war between the East and the West that has been building up for a very long time. There's video footage of, of Warhawk, Neocon, Lindsey Graham, and John McCain in Ukraine promising an offensive against the Russians, and the words were more prophetic than, of course, just promising, as we're facing the possibility of some really bad things. Russia is a nuclear power, Ukraine is not, the United States is, and as Elon Musk just said moments ago, quote, nuclear war probability is rising rapidly, and he is not wrong for saying this. The United States just also bought a nuclear emergency drug to the tune of $290 million for themselves. Will you get that drug in case there's a nuclear nuclear war? No. Are you going to be going into the bunkers of, of these multinational corporations, these bankers and politicians that they have set up all over all, all around the country? No. And as everyone else sees this as a clear threat to humanity, some see this as an opportunity. As recently, the BlackRock CEO allegedly came out saying that this current war between Russia and Ukraine, the proxy war with the United States involved here, could, quote, boost centralized digital currencies, <laughs> particularly also stablecoins. And as a lot of people are looking out for their own personal investments, as, as people are trying to make opportunities out of this, as, of course, companies are selling weapons, we still have to understand that there is a real life human cost to all of this. And that, of course, is usually put on the burden of some of the poorest people in countries, the poorest people who, of course, are forced to fight each other, to hurt each other, kill each other, which is just absolutely insane. The insanity we saw a bigger perspective of when a key piece of Russian infrastructure was recently attacked over the weekend, an attack that also killed three innocent civilians. This key piece of Russian infrastructure also, of course, is of course a major supply line to Crimea, the Russian-held territory that the Russian government has annexed there a few years ago, a territory that Ukraine sees as theirs and Russia sees as a strategic location for, of course, their military and their country. This as today, Russian divers have been deployed to examine the foundation of this bridge after, of course, hearing the possibilities that there was also explosive laden boats used on this particular attack. The Kremlin is also talking about the possibility of a truck bomb. What happened here? Well, we're still finding out. But of course, many people who are behind the Ukrainian war effort are celebrating this bombing of this key bridge. A miracle bridge is previously described by the president of Russia as the Ukrainian government has just issued commemorative postage stamps 
with this particular attack. Now, of course, this attack also highlights how the Russian government is not able to protect their infrastructure, which will also, of course, probably signal a Russian attack on Ukrainian infrastructure, which already could be underway as we're finding out that the Ukrainian nuclear power plant is having some of its energy being cut. And I think it's fair to say that we could definitely expect more Russian counterattacks on Ukrainian infrastructure from here. This, as of course, the president of Ukraine has said that somehow Russia is the country involved here when it comes to bombing their own infrastructure. Yes, I kid you not. Just when you thought the propaganda couldn't get any more crazier, as of course we have the Western corporate media saying that Russia now is blowing up their pipelines. Now we have the Ukrainian president saying that Russia is now blowing up their key pieces of infrastructure. Now, the reason that Zelensky is saying this, saying specifically that one of Russia's security factions was behind this blast, was particularly done so to show that Putin is in trouble. And as of right now, this is obviously a theory that hasn't been proven as it looks like Zelensky is trying to put in a wedge between the FSB and defense ministry. Russia hasn't even assigned blame yet for this larger attack, but I think it's it's pretty clear who benefits from all of this. Is Zelensky telling the truth here? Well, face value, this looks absolutely kind of shocking. Is this a form of mental war? Well, who knows? Any form of war is just absolutely stupid in my opinion. And as we mentioned previously before, truth is the first casualty of war. Everyone's just looking out for themselves. And in reality, the people are the ones paying the price of political ambitions of politicians. And as we're just getting the latest photos and videos, specifically in Syria, human beings are not naturally made to main and destroy other human beings. There's a reason a lot of them have PTSD afterwards, and that's because it's it's not inherent in human beings to extinguish life for the pure benefit of an individual. For survival, that's yet another question. But to me, all these concepts, all these ideas, all this lunacy could be stopped with the right ability of individuals just being able to communicate with each other. But powerful interests, bankers, big tech, social media, multinational corporations are standing in the way of that. And that's why I think that's some bull crap. All right. Excellent reporting from Luke Radowski. And uh, yeah, Russia has been maligned a lot, uh, maybe self-earned. Right, let's, let's go back in history a little bit. Great Russian novelist, Dostoevsky, as an example, lived at the end of the 1800s, which is the end of the 19th century. And he had taken a look at all these utopian factions that were growing up in the mid 1800s. And he looked at those utopias as people's way of trying to avoid the legitimate suffering of actually self-supporting and living life, right? You expect technology and robots and servants and all these other things that come along with the technocracy, transhumanism, all these things are pushing it's not really making a utopia. It can't make a utopia. Utopia is not like it means from the Greek, nowhere, not here. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist for a reason. It, it's an imaginative panacea. That's what it is. Yeah. It's an imaginative panacea. And you can you can understand why at the time, because people were struggling just to survive. They didn't have the infrastructure technology that we take for granted today. Well, and this idea of utopia. So Dostoevsky treats it as like that uh, uh a phenomenon, a layer of your thinking of development, but then you learn enough to get past that. And so then a lot of his characters take on uh, the suffering and the, the, the issue is what it means to be human, 
right. but it takes effort to do things. There is cause and effect, you know, to tra travel from one place to another, it's going to take effort. Can you use technology to expedite that effort? Sure can. Does it come at the you know cost, right? But it also helps to think about things like the, the green agenda and all these other things that drives NATO's energy activity over in that Russia situation. And uh, there's, there's a know, lot that we could change about it. We'll talk about that throughout the episode tonight because we do have some good evidence on where the polluters are, who, who the people are that are the major polluters, maybe they're corporate people. We'll check that out because maybe we can put like, you know, dampen that down but i don't think we have to eat bugs i don't think we have to lose our uh, ability to travel freely or to be able to afford gas or to be able to afford food or lodging or any of these other things i think um you have to balance these things and to cut off humanity in order to save the planet and get carbon net zero and that sort of thing i think that should be looked at and re-examined and let's get to Sounds the, like another the root cause and where's the evidence for this you know, I mean, they that's say, oh, their version of utopia. That is their I... version. Oh, I see. And it doesn't exist. What they're pushing is an unreality again. And imagine and... the panacea for their own wayward and absurd thinking. Well, they think by blowing up Nord Stream 2 that they can get, uh, you know, American supply over there right. on Europe at a time when they'd have to, like, uh, you know, endure whatever price hikes and price gouging that because it's winter coming up. Right. So they thought yeah. they had a captive market. And apparently right. Putin said he's got another pipe. He can still deliver to Germany. Do they want it or not? So there's still things unfolding in that situation. As still competition. Still competition. Yeah. You know, going back to the utopia thing, Corey Young also researched uh, from a different angle, from more of a cycle. Oh, Dostoevsky was sort of a, a psychologist in his own right, um, so to speak, in a literary form. Um, but Corey Young mentioned that for him, it was the archetype of the myth of the golden age. You see this in almost all world religions, this golden age from which man fell from a state of grace, especially in the Abrahamic religions, but specifically, but certainly in, in, in the Eastern religions, there's intimations of these, this sort of concept as well. And it's sort of, you know, it's imperial and sort of inane and sort of, I don't say like a childlike fantasy of dealing with the hardships of life. And in a, in a way it's, it's needed, I think, to establish a, a, an absolute form of hope, but it's when taken to extreme forms, it can become sort of uh, out of control. And I see Rich just entered my studio. So he must be looking for some sort of book or something. Or, oh, okay. Do you want me to change the camera angle? No, we just needed to clean up that shop. That's all. Uh, okay. Oh, my bad. I was like, oh, so you get to see it live, but we're in a new summon, uh, what, Studio One, we call this? Something like that. I think it's called Studio One. I was uh, up in uh, Autonomy Studios, helping to rearrange, build a computer, get everything ready for the new season that's upcoming for Autonomy. So we got a couple different camera angles that I'll be trying out tonight for everyone and uh, seeing if any of these cameras sort of crap out during the night, hopefully. Yeah, we're going to work out. After we make sure they don't crap out, we'll make sure they're color balanced and properly exposed and things like that. But Looking yeah. good so far. Everything's looking uh, pretty happy with the progress we've made. But it is interesting. It's, um, it's an aspect of the human condition. Carl Jung would argue that this myth of the golden age is uh, an archetype, something that's a universal aspect of the human condition. But when we try to reify to make thing like, or to instantiate, take an abstraction and put it into reality. That's where it gets messy. That's where it becomes problematic. And that's where there's a lot of blood on one's hands. And would that be like if they had a high minded idea, like a great reset, and then they tried to bring it in and shoehorn it into reality in the, in the midst of that, they do this Ukraine situation correct? so that NATO can get the drop on Russia. 
Uh, yeah, that would be actually a very good mechanism by which they could, the World Economic Forum and these other mechanisms for global control could uh, instantiate, there's that word again, their, their high ideals for the rest of the world. That would be exactly right. And that's one of the layers, I call it the sort of meta layer on top of this whole geopolitical situation from which we really should be uh, observing and critiquing and analyzing this situation. Too often people, I think, are looking at it from the left and right dichotomy if you will, not left and right in the sense of American politics, but from the Ukrainian or Russian side only. And yes, we could talk about NATO expansion and all these other, uh, the Minsk Accords from the Maidan coup and all, you know, Crimea and Sevastopol and what happened after the Maidan coup when it comes to Azov Battalion attacking the Russian Donbass region, the eastern region of the Ukraine, or it's not Russian, excuse me, the eastern region of the Ukraine. There's a lot going on. I understand that. I understand it's a hyper complex situation, but above that, it seems to give a lot of precedence to what the World Economic Forum and other geopolitical uh, leaders and machinations in regards to climate change, climate lockdowns that we mentioned last week on the show, in fact, seems to give them a lot of leadway for that, a lot of leverage. And that's what I'm most concerned about. And people are sort of getting caught in the the forest, so to speak, and don't see or getting caught in the, the, seeing only the trees and don't realize the larger forest in which they're existing, this entire geopolitical milieu and the implications for what you know these transhumanist ideologues are attempting to Dun, 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 instantiate so all right so before we get too deep into things let's go to christy lee with this week in media malfeasance and see what these uh people in the transhumanist milieu have been up to this week yay appears on tucker this week and we are we are in a battle with the media like the majority of the media has a, a godless agenda and the jokes in that work and this whole like, oh, yeah, he's crazy and all these things, they don't work. So even a billionaire Grammy Award winning rap artist can spot media malfeasance, bringing you what's ignored, sensationalized, misleading or just plain false for the first week of October. Mainstream media is still trying to twist coverage of a natural disaster to make Florida's governor look bad. Now the AP is using old news to mislead readers and viewers. The AP tweeted Thursday that the many residents on Florida's Pine Island have stayed put for days without electricity and other resources while hoping the lone bridge to the mainland is repaired. And then linked to an article published four days earlier. Problem is, the bridge had already been fixed. After getting called out with tweets like, the bridge is repaired. Stop spreading misinformation. AP ended up deleting its misleading tweet. Again, it's strange these little mishaps only seem to happen to one side. ABC Action News accused Governor DeSantis of halting hurricane supply operations as a result of his presence there in Arcadia, Florida. That claim was debunked shortly after by even the DeSoto County Sheriff, who tweeted that operations in his county stayed rolling all the entire time. And Politico is slammed after this tweet, referring to the federal funds DeSantis has used as the president's wallet. Christina Pushaw, what is wrong with you? It's not the president's wallet. It is American taxpayers' money. Americans in any state hit by a disaster are entitled to federal disaster relief funds whether or not you approve of the governor. The media disgusts me more every day. And you know what is making the aftermath of a natural disaster worse? that the propaganda puppets don't want to touch. And uh, we've had four looters that were arrested, uh, I guess a couple days ago. 
and, and they need to be brought to justice, and we're not going to tolerate it. But, you know, three of the four are illegal aliens. And so these are people that are foreigners. They, they're illegally in our country. And not only that, they try to loot and ransack after, in the aftermath of a natural disaster. I mean, they should be prosecuted, but they need to be sent back to their home country. They should not be here at all. Speaking of governors, here's a gubernatorial hopeful, a former news anchor, demonstrating just how to handle the media. Tell me, abortion is effectively banned in the state right now. Tell me, do you, is that something that you support? I support saving as many lives as possible. And what I really want to know, and I've been waiting, I tune into you guys all the time. I want to know where Katie Hobbs stands, but ne I never hear you guys ask for that. <laughs> I'm pro-life. My plan would be that every woman who walks into an abortion clinic know that there are options out there. They don't have to choose Thank that. You. There's families who would love to adopt a baby. And right now, the way it's been going, mm -hmm. they go in and they, they only That's have one it. option. That's it. Nobody tells them that there's other options. Yeah. We want to help our women. If they're afraid, we want to help them. Sure. We want to give women health care. And I want to help people. But I really challenge you, and I'm, I'm happy to get back to you on this, when you find out where Katie Hobbs stands, because let me tell you where she stands. She supports abortion right up until birth Thank and after you. birth. That's right. She supports if a baby survives a botched abortion, that that baby die on a cold metal tray. And none of you ever try to get her to talk about her stance. So get back to me after you do. Thank and you. tell her. Speaking of where's Katie Hobbs, she was a no-show at a Hispanic town hall as the podium next to Carrie Lake was left empty. The media is now forced to report on the Hunter Biden investigation, and they look very uncomfortable doing it. number of months that they have a chargeable case against Hunter Biden, but it's important to remember charging decisions are not made by agents. Charging decisions are made by prosecutors at the Justice Department. Um, does this have anything to do with the laptop? So it's really unclear. We can't tell at this point how important or unimportant the laptop has been to the to the, this federal investigation. But commentators like Mark Levin say feds targeting Hunter for tax crime and gun charges is just throwing a bone, <laughs> ignoring more consequential crimes that allegedly involve his father. In fact, Hunter's former business partner, Tony Bobulinski, has resurfaced and says he had presented evidence to the FBI that the Bidens committed multiple felonies. Um, I haven't heard from them since. At all? No. Nor have my lawyers. No communication whatsoever? No. Since before the 2020 election? Correct. That's shocking. Uh, shocking, yeah, that would be one adjective, yeah. Tell us about Tim Tebow. Um, I didn't interact with him, my lawyers right. did, and had extensive discussions, obviously. Is feds now leaking they have enough to indict Hunter a pretext to justify another politically motivated Trump attack? Becker News, New York Times report suggests the FBI is preparing to raid Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago again. Speaking of the New York Times, it was blasted for a hit piece on so-called Trump-supporting conspiracy theorists questioning ties between a CEO of an election software company and servers in China. And then, oh look, the next day the same author had to report that CEO was arrested for allegedly stealing data and keeping it where? You guessed it, China. So the theories of conspiracy weren't so unfounded after all. 
The New York Times also had to admit this week that top surgeries for children are on the rise. And by top surgeries, we mean mastectomies for biological girls or breast implants for biological boys. Dissenter, we now have child body mutilation centers disguised as children's hospitals calling themselves gender clinics, which do nothing except strip children of their childhood innocence and propel them into a life of confusion and regret. And if it's not enough to terrorize young children into adult conversations to confuse them, how about just terrorizing them in general? Traumatizing preschoolers in a Mississippi daycare. <laughs> These people are evil. Meanwhile, the Elon Musk versus Twitter soap opera continues. In short, Elon Musk offered to buy Twitter. The little birdie employees lost their minds. He ended up pulling back his offer. They demanded he buy. Now the offer is back on the table and they're losing their minds all over again. Teslarati.com tweets, Twitter refuses Elon Musk's renewed $44 billion bid, to which Elon Musk responds, plot twist. And I'll leave you with this. Finally, some liberal late night shows are acknowledging that we sure do have Kamalata crazy. My fellow Americans, words have many meanings and sometimes instead of conveying our meaning, they can suggest other meanings. When we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. Well, we are the United States of America because we are united and we are states. Um, talking about the significance of the passage of time right the significance of the passage of time so when you think about it there is great significance to the passage of time for more exclusive content subscribe to my locals community christyleetv.locals.com all right <clears throat> now we've got yet another perspective on how the news unfolded this week i forgot about that yay interview with uh tucker that was interesting. It's also interesting how he rebranded. Like it happens to be the last part of his name because he, he formerly, artist formerly known as Kanye, now known as Ye. But if you think about it, when he enters a room and everyone goes, yay, he might've just wanted to hear that, which might lend some credence to some of those other theories. But very fascinating character, outspoken, iconoclast of our age, Ye. Uh, he had this big talk with Tucker Carlson. I don't think we have time to play any of those clips tonight, but it's out there. It happened this past week. It's something we could note in the news, especially. Um, what do you think, Tony? Sounds like you just wanted some sort of, it's like a video game where you have a theme song in the background when you're playing, you know, like Mario or something like that, which I was playing a lot with your son this past week. Uh, you know, maybe you just wanted like a theme song sort of thing going in the background. I don't know. Like that's why he renamed himself. That's what I was thinking. Maybe he has a song he's playing that has yay in it all the time. Yeah. And as he walks into a different place or a different room or just even to the bathroom, he's like, you know. We'll have to get a yay clip on the soundboard to that. for next week. We're still trying to circle back to find that sacky. He's he's a he's an interesting figure, most certainly. I know yes. he uh when Trump uh became president, he ended up going to the White House. Uh is that famous football player that also And yet his um, wife was so so close to the Clintons, you would learn through that interview. Yeah, yeah and interesting, but like... Uh, isn't it ex-wife now? Ex-wife, formerly known as his wife. Right. And um, if I remember correctly, Trump pardoned one of her friends. And so she actually had nothing really bad to say about Trump. And it was uh, for a non-violent drug. Yeah, she was lobbying, lobbying to get people out of prison. Yeah. Which is a, a noble 
no particularly for non-violent in drug offenses particularly for non-violent drug offenses from my understanding so i remember a lot of people would question her on late night television shows and she's like you know he he didn't he pardoned my one friend uh, i was I had good conversations with him it didn't you know experience any sort of strange racism or um belligerence on behalf of or wanton sort of disregard for moral moral scrupulousness so all of, you know it's an interesting sort of phenomenon now the the, the question with yay um is he certainly has had some bouts of very strange situations in regards to a uh, not only depression, but psychotic episodes. Mm. And I know he ended up at this very famous UCLA uh, psych ward at UCLA um, that uh, is known for dealing with a lot of famous celebrities. And some people have implicated it as part of an occult slash, I don't know, MK ultra style, which is out there and I don't agree with, but I've seen some very strange murmurings on the highways and byways of the internet in regards to what's going on with him. But at the same time, you know, maybe he's having a reaction and realizing much of his life has been a facade and he's coming to wake up to the reality of, you know, what's going on. Who knows? But right now I did, he's a certainly an iconoclast and a fascinating individual. Well, in this search to see, because I think Kanye's uh he's a reactor in the system. Let's take a look at the system. The system kind of has developed this mass formation psychosis. And we were all looking at a clip earlier today. And it's interesting how we talked last week about uh, history may not be history may not repeat, but it sure does rhyme, which is a Mark Twain quote. And in this theme that we're going to unfold for you right now, uh, what we're experiencing today might not be that dissimilar from what we experienced in the 1950s. Now, last week I did mention that Eisenhower article, I think we read it at the end of the episode about freedom and differing people's ideas being part of America. But we're also going to take a look right now into the past. It's a little time machine episode. We're going to go back to the early 1950s. We're going to read or we're going to listen to an article that's been illustrated and brought to life through video. So there's narration, there's uh, snappy editing to this, but really it was some typed up words on paper in 1951. And to my knowledge, it wasn't published publicly. And it was uh, amidst the papers of a relative of a friend of mine and he had sent it to me and I read it and I was like, this is interesting and it's definitely going on, but it's like hard to get that information to people. So he took it upon himself to hire some uh, voice artistry and he does a very good job narrating and uh, my buddy did the editing himself. So don't hate on this editing. He might've voted for Trump. I don't know. You can't tell. Um, and the words that you're going to hear for the next 20 minutes are going to unfold a picture that is very similar to what's going on today. That, um, that mass formation psychosis, uh, Matthias Desmond and McDonald. Those yeah. Two, Mark McDonald from right. California, I think around the UCLA area. And he uh, wrote Matthias the Desmet. United States of fear and Desmond's book. I don't have yet, but I have, yeah, I do want to get that because he gets him. a lot into the history of, uh, especially in behaviorism, apparently. Um, so a couple of GTW members have uh, inquired as to whether or not we'd be willing to get him on. So I kind of want to read his book and see how much of the history he gets into to, you know, see if we can find a, a bridge. Yeah. So those ideas that. aren't new to, uh, listeners of this show, right. but the ideas we're going to juxtapose them to right now from the 1950s, surprisingly strikingly similar and you might even observe that much of what was observed back then not by a clinical psychiatrist but by an investigative journalist much of what was observed back then is also still the root cause of what's going on today and because it wasn't fixed 20 years before i was born it's still going on today 
And if we don't, it's been exacerbated at this point. It's much right. worse. It's just, it's gone like plaid. They've gone plaid at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You have to watch space balls to get that one, but they've gone plaid, sir. So plaid let's them, go it's plaid. And this, this clip, you can pass it around. It's not uh, proprietary to this show. It's on rumble. We're going to show you where it's posted and LD is going to let it rip right now. And we're going to review it together with the lens of listening to history, but also thinking about, is this going on still today? And what can we do about it? More importantly. Let's check it out. The greatest danger to the world today is not the situation in Korea, not a third world war, not the atomic bomb, Although all of these dangers are of great magnitude, the greatest danger is mental ill health. I am not speaking of the illnesses which confine hundreds of thousands of persons to the state hospitals. I am speaking of the mental illnesses which afflict physically healthy individuals, and particularly those in places of high responsibility. The great danger in connection with these diseases is that they are contagious. They take on epidemic form and spread rapidly. An epidemic of the manic depressive psychosis and of paranoia is building up in the United States today, and it can reach very dangerous proportions. The center of dissemination is in Washington. Another center is in Moscow. The diseases are not of the acute variety that require hospitalization. They are of a subclinical degree, but the personality characteristics of the disease are developed to a very high intensity. The danger is not to the individuals affected, but to the country as a whole and to the world, because the mentally sick individuals are in a position of power to inflict the results of their disordered thinking on the country and on the world and plunge us into another world war, the result of which will be a worldwide epidemic wave of mental illness, the effects of which will be worse than defeat by any enemy. It rarely happens that a person suffers from a deficiency of one vitamin. If there is a deficiency of one, there is likely to be a deficiency of others. And the real trouble is likely not to be associated with the lack of vitamins in the diet at all, but to something more fundamental. So it is with mental disorders. It is rarely that a person suffers from just one. He usually has a mixture of all of them. Psychiatrists are well aware that any mental disease category they set up includes aspects of all others. Mental disease is a matter of degree. It is probable that everyone at some time, perhaps for only a period of minutes, has suffered from some degree of mental derangement. There is a very wide range of mental states associated with mental illnesses. They range from conditions which are only slight variations from normal that we would not think of associating with mental disease, to very acute situations in which the mental and physical powers deteriorate. There is a very direct connection between mind and body. Unsatisfactory conditions in the body can cause disturbed mental states, and disturbed mental states can cause physical illnesses. Persons with the manic depressive psychosis usually die from heart conditions, and schizophrenics usually die of tuberculosis. There are many diseased conditions which are not normally called a disease. The achieving of great wealth is, I believe, the symptom of a very serious mental disorder. We do not treat our millionaires as victims of a mental disease, but they are. 
They are also a symbol of economic ill health. A person can acquire wealth in other forms, excess personal power, for example. We call them individuals with powerful personalities. They dominate others. We glorify them. They become leaders. No individual should dominate another. If one does, he is taking a power which does not belong to him. The fact that one individual is willing to dominate another is an indication of mental illness on the part of the person doing the dominating. He is not a leader, he is a driver, practically a slave owner. These dominators, working through mental or physical powers, should be incarcerated in a hospital the instant they show their first symptoms. Leadership and cooperation is something entirely different. This should be on an equality basis. We are placing the high values on the wrong qualities. We need a new basic philosophy. We are now facing a condition that requires something more definite than theories. We are facing a condition in which nations are suffering from mental illness, and the world is mentally ill. A great many individuals are mentally ill. As nations become ill, more and more of their citizens will become ill. Nations become ill when small groups of individuals in strategic governmental positions manifest mental illness in their thinking and in their actions. The actions of less than 1,000 mentally ill individuals in Washington can inflict mental illness of a serious degree on the great bulk of the entire population of the country. While the great majority of the people are still within the normal sane state, we can cure the Washington situation. If we fail to curb the Washington manics, the future presents a very gloomy aspect. The Washington group, from the president, his executive family, the constellation of bureaucrats, the Congress, and a host of minor executives are suffering as a group, and in most cases as individuals, from the manic drive of the manic depressive psychosis and the persecution grandeur complex of paranoia. There is another group in Moscow suffering from exactly the same mental disorders, with the same effects on the Russian people. Because these small groups are in strategic positions of power, they may plunge the world into World War III. The effects on us of a victory for Moscow, or the effect on Russians of a victory for us, from a purely military or economic point of view, would be of very small importance compared to the mental illness which war would inflict on the whole world. The manic phase in Washington at the present time is a direct result and part of the manic phase which brought about World War II. The manic illness still persists there, among the people as a whole in this country, the manic phase of World War II subsided and was followed by the depressed phase. They are unsold on world wars. The manic phase, however, has been built up twice in this country within a generation, and the manics in Washington believe it could be built up again, and they are trying to put it across. If we let them do it, we are crazier than they are. Let me describe the manic phase of the manic depressive psychosis. During periods of elation, the patient apparently reasons in his own mind as follows. My life is blameless, my conduct praiseworthy. I have met my social and other obligations in exemplary fashion. My superiority is firmly established. My fellow men must say to me, well done. But there remains much for me to do. All I need is more room for action. I must telephone or telegraph my orders. I am destined to become the chosen leader of the people. Thus do these manics present a bluff, shameless front. As elation advances, they conduct themselves in a swaggering, boastful, and vainglorious manner. They crave opportunity for showing off. They long for an audience. They feel as blameless as a babe unborn. Nevertheless, as much as in the depressed state, the manic is dependent upon the group for his satisfaction. Without company, he is unsatisfied and ineffective. 
The mild forms of emotional excitement and accelerated motor activity are characterized by very simple disturbances of thinking in association with emotional exhilaration. There is very little distortion of the content of the thought. The isolated acts and idea expression of such patients as concerns a given thought do not department much from what would be normal for them. The pathology in these cases is the entire ensemble of thinking and acting. These people get up early in the morning, their minds swarming with business enterprises or schemes for pleasure. They are bright and cheerful, often singing. They perambulate around the house, quite indifferent to the fact that they are disturbing the slumbers of other members of the family. They are impatient of delay, are minutely concerned about whatever other member of the family is doing or should do, and tend to become irritable and impatient, or even to fly into a rage if they are crossed, or if their plans are frustrated. They are given to sending telegrams and special delivery letters because the ordinary mails are too slow. These communications being very numerous and verbose, they are quite likely to start out on a shopping tour and make many unnecessary purchases. During this stage of the disorder, they lead busy lives, talking, visiting, keeping lunch and engagements, telephoning, telegraphing, and writing. Appointments are made, postponed, and canceled. There is a tendency to give orders and then to modify or countermand them. The motor activity is sometimes almost incessant, walking from one room to another, up and down stairs, all the while manifesting great impatience with associates, subordinates, and servants. They are talkative and good-humored on the whole, unless they are thwarted or compelled to undergo delays. This stage of the disorder is characterized by irritability, impulsiveness, and egoism. The patient is elated and exhilarated and seems to be enjoying the best of health. The capacity for creative thinking and acting is impaired. The initial stage of manicolation makes its victims appear to be live wires. They tend to monopolize the conversation, are dogmatic in expressing their views. Their plans and schemes, while fairly rational, are never thoroughly thought out. They are inconsistent and changeable, intolerant of criticism, mildly sarcastic, or even rude. They do not seem to be fatigued after one of these days of activity. It should be borne in mind that in general, victims of this disorder are individuals of more than ordinary intelligence, who are usually very capable, highly efficient persons who occupy positions of authority and executive management. Among women, they are very often social leaders, club workers, and of similar type. Now let me say something about paranoia. We are interested in mostly the paranoic state of the manic depressive psychosis. There are two types, but that can be mixed in one individual. One, the persecution type, in which the victim finds himself in danger from imagined enemies. Two, grandois type, which is characterized by persistent delusions of self-importance. An authority states, the delusions are permanent, and the prognosis is very unfavorable. Paranoia is not associated with other psychotic categories, is categorized not only by insidious development, but by a lasting and unshakable delusional system in association with our mental status, which is otherwise quite clear and logical. So that aside from a delusional trend, the patient's thoughts, life, and conduct are fairly normal. This condition was once called monomania. Two-thirds of the cases appear in the fourth decade, 30 to 40. Suspicious, envious, and jealous individuals most likely to suffer from this disease. They judge others by themselves. There is no cure for this condition. Extreme state is one in which an individual is always fleeing from imagined enemies, distrusting food, friends, family, suspicious that every sound is an attack aimed at him, that everyone who looks at him is a spy, prying into his affairs, his beliefs, ideas are being stolen. Suspicion is frequently directed at lodges and religions, 
The current form is directed at a political ideology, both in Russia and in this country. In this country, the paranoics among the individuals of executive, legislative, and administrative responsibility see communists as the hidden enemy. In Russia, the communists see the capitalists as their devils. In World War I, we made Kaiser Wilhelm the devil from whom we were in danger. In World War II, Hitler and his Nazis were the devil whom we were taught to fear. In the planned World War III, Stalin and his communists are the devil. The formula is the same. The first two wars, proclaimed as a means of bringing peace to the world, were totally unsuccessful. A third war would be equally unsuccessful. The formula is definitely wrong. Only a mentally sick population in the United States could permit its government to try that formula again. All of you are old enough to remember how we were aroused to a mighty resentment by Kaiser Wilhelm's remark that me, with Gott, were united to bring Germany cultural ideas to the world. Just last night, President Truman, in addressing a military drive group in Washington, declared, We are doing what God intended us to accomplish, to take the leadership to ensure peace in the world. It would be very interesting to know just when and how Mr. Truman learned that God intended us to do that. I would like to know the circumstances of the revelation. I would like to know just what God told Mr. Truman. The truth is, God did not tell Mr. Truman anything. Mr. Truman has undertaken the task of speaking for God. That act on the part of Mr. Truman is just as pathological as those that are spoken by many an individual incarcerated in a state hospital. That is the grandeur, the messiah complex in Mr. Truman, the paranoic delusion of self-importance. Mr. Truman is, probably, not a bit more pathological than the host of other manics with which he is surrounded, all suffering from the Red Devil persecution complex intensified by their manic psychosis. We have fought two wars to give the people of the world the right to self-determination in choosing their type of government. And now we are coldly projecting a war against Russia because a group in Washington has decided that they don't like the government in Russia. They're going to kick it out. How does that fit into the picture of American ideals? I don't like communism. It is infantile, impractical, and does not provide the personal liberty that I demand. I don't think it is going to last long in Russia. Even if everyone in this country agreed with me in my antagonism to communism, that would still not give us the right to make war on Russia to drive out the communists. We can defeat communism in other ways. Mr. Truman has stated repeatedly that he made many efforts to restore peace, but every one of them was a warlike move. There is a saying that I learned as a child, and which I keep constantly in my mind. If you want to have a friend, be a friend. That advice works. We would get nowhere by discussing the details of the existing situation. What we will have to adopt is the technique of the wise policeman. A group of young fellows assemble to play a game. A friendly discussion leads to a disagreement on some point. The discussion gets warm, too warm. The young fellows start shaking their fists and taking off their coats to prepare for battle. The policeman decides the situation has gone far enough. He wades into the group. Break it up, fellow. Break it up and go home. He does not bother to find out who is wrong and who is right. He just breaks it up, scatters the group. That is what must be done to the Washington group. Have you noticed how many vacations Mr. Truman takes? I wonder if his doctor is playing the part of the wise cop. The best thing that could happen to the country would be to have all the manic group in Washington take a five-year vacation, voluntary or request. That includes the Taft kind as well as the Truman kind. All of the Deweys throughout the country should be included. There is a better approach to our problems. 
God does not reveal himself to politicians and tell them to go to war. He does, however, reveal himself through his works. It is the task of science to learn about God through his works. This is being done, and the laws of science can be accepted as our closest approach to the laws of God. With this thought in mind, I have drawn up a Decalogue. The Decalogue of Principles for Peace and Progress 1. I live in a universe governed entirely by the laws of God, which are the laws of nature and the laws of science, that are as unchanging as the nature of God himself. These can be depended upon to operate in the same way at all times. They apply to all men and supply me with the basis for planning and living my life. They provide the pattern for peace and progress for all men, individually and collectively. 2. I will think and act in accordance with these laws and will speak only that which is true. 3. Truth can be attained within the range of our activities and is always in harmony with the laws of God. 4. There is adequate accommodation in this world to permit all men to live on a high level of comfort and luxury. If all make reasonable contributions to production and our resources are applied for human welfare, and if none is wasted in strife, for strife is impoverishing all men. 5. I am born to full possession of the entire universe and all it contains, including the whole earth and all the individuals in this world. The heavens are mine, and no spot on the earth is foreign territory to me. This can be truthfully spoken by all men. 6. The welfare of all men is my personal responsibility. For the task of administering the earth and the affairs of the human race, I have available the cooperative service of all men. This is true of all men. This principle operates to the end that all men achieve individual freedom to live their lives in the knowledge that they are safe from ill will and selfish imposition. 7. The world of thought is the mold into which actions are cast. I will well think of all men. Whenever and wherever I find men unable to reciprocate, men suffering from mortal or physical illnesses that prevent them from acting in accordance with the laws of God, I will render generous aid until they are able to achieve this harmony. 8. I will act only on the fullest possible knowledge of truth. I will reserve judgment until I know the adequate truth. I will use no propaganda words and no intemperate phrases, because they impair my judgment and interfere with the process of clear thinking. 9. I will permit no man to influence me to hate, fear, or mistrust any man or community of men. If any person manifests hatred, fear, or mistrust, I will treat him as a person mentally or physically ill and will relieve him of all responsibilities until he has recovered his normal state of body and mind. 10. I will have faith that there are powers beyond me that are available for promoting all activities directed toward peace and progress for the web become God. Sense Thread. All right. Well played, Kevin Larson. You know, you send me the document. I read it. I don't know what to do with that. Nobody wants to hear me re just read the document. But you send me something spicy like that where you got nice editing. You got good, clear narration, professional narrator. Good job for stepping up. You are now a media producer. 
And we look forward to your next presentation, dude. Although he's probably sleeping because I texted. I said, do you want me to say your name? But his name's at the end, so I just read it. it said Kevin Larson, edited by. What do you think, LD? Taking that in for the first time? Yeah, no, that was fantastic. Very powerful. And um, the imagery and, and the scrolling text is well done from a production standpoint. Yeah, and I, I can't say I agree with everything in it, but I agree with like the uh, the spirit in which it was theme. offered. Yeah, you know, I agree. This is the time in nineteen fifties. He's like talking like uh, Truman's on vacation. You know, it was a different time back then. Uh, you know, I like the fact that he highlighted you know some of the universals that afflict man's soul or men's souls, speaking collectively. And so uh, to me, he was able to find a theme that resonates, I think, you know, or regardless of one's time and place. And, and so I think that, uh, and it's a very powerful message. And I agree with you. I don't agree with every a single aspect of it, but the general theme, um, the spirit in which it was made, as you pointed out, um, was, was well stated and sort of certainly hit an emotional uh, aspect of my own soul, um, especially resonating with the issue of, men struggling to find meaning, men struggling to understand their world and some of the maladies, the debilities, the psychoses that man develops as an affliction of man's soul. Very and similar to what Dostoevsky was writing about. That's right. And it's similar and that to what- Suffering, like legitimate suffering brings meaning to life. If you do it the right way, if you're pursuing your goals and trying to be a good person, those okay. trials and tribulations bring the balance and meaning that people are missing. So by the time you get to 1950s, you not only have what Dostoevsky was describing, but you compound that with the 1934 Carnegie Foundation removing all these critical thinking, balancing aspects from education. Correct. And 20 years later in the 50s, that guy's observing that about our society. That's exactly right. And I just have to bring up, you know, we could talk about Cicero, Seneca Cicero in this capacity, certainly Marcus Aurelius, but I actually want to bring up Aristotle. Aristotle and, his, and the Nicomachean ethics that he wrote for his son, uh, Nicomachus, uh, he had um, one of his themes was this idea of the magnanimous man, magnanimous man, and the idea of virtue associated with magnanimous man. And what the sub-theme running throughout this entire, uh, uh, it's, it's not a dialogue, but this sort of idea that he was trying to build out was that man's form, the the manifestation of happiness in man happens from him attempting to achieve goals in life, that there's going to be many trials and many tribulations, but without attempting to take on the unknown, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, and man ends up engaging in self-destruction. In other words, it seems as though the happiest man that he could observe, Aristotle in this case, was the one that was willing to take a risk and try to achieve his goals. And that came with a lot of suffering, that came with a lot of hardship, but it also came with a lot of meaning. And it seemed like the man who was, even for the men who failed, there seemed to have been a an idea or an understanding that at least they tried. At least they, they put their foot forward and gave it their all, especially at least if they gave it their all. And for those that succeeded, they seemed to have a, a what's the word? Almost the engendering of our manifestation of uh, wisdom, understanding the that the journey is what gives them a sense of completion, a sense of happiness, a sense of uh, unity within their own disharmony of the soul, at least when they started out before they took that journey. Well, the journey and is the knowledge put into action, and that's how you get to the wisdom part. And you talked about the necess necessity of taking risk. That's the entrepreneur part. 
but you're not going to want to take risk unless you're educated and have a good sense of what's the game and what's the next play and where you might be able to add value. Right. That's right. So LD real quick, what was the title of the video we're, we're commenting on? Cause I have a feeling this will end up as a clip someplace. So the what was the greatest, video we just watched? Yeah. The greatest danger to the world, a short film. And uh, I've been sharing out the link on the uh, various stream platforms. And it's on Rumble. It's on Rumble, yes. That's where people can find it. Well, I wanted to bring you guys an artifact that plays into uh, what we were just listening to for 20 minutes. Because it does talk about the Deweys. They were specifically mentioned uh, in that in that video, right? Right after he talked about Truman going on vacation. Oh, sure. Let me see if I can get this. Yeah, Dewey Kilpatrick experimental flaw. That's pragmatism, by the way, for those who are interested in a great book, which Rich will show you after this book, if he has it, is Politics and Progress. It's a short book, but it's a very dense book in which the that book outlines the sort of the political pragmatism that was helped able to uh, implement the outcome-based educational model that uh, then became, unfortunately, the model for our progressive education in the early 20th century. And so he get that book goes heavily into the confluence between Dewey and the early pragmatists, uh, William James is in there as well, and many others, and the origins of uh, progressive education in America. It's good. good. No, good. I lost it though. I got to read. Oh, uh, you got to read. Camera. Sure, I, sure, sure. Yeah. I have it on USB still. Oh, no, that's the wrong layer. You guys, <laughs> are learning, you guys are learning how to run a show right now. There you go. Deactivate, activate, boom. It should work again. Please activate. And magic. And no. And no. Let's no. See. Let's try again. We were just about to get to the juicy part. Whoever's editing this clip, you're going to have to edit this part out. <laughs> this is this is where things went awry. I might have to just... About increasing... Sorry. Go ahead. Increase complexity. No, it's about increasing the space between stimulus and response. It's the only way we're able to do the show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gets a, it's a nice relaxed environment. You get to see high production value, not uh, always fully prepared because we like to introduce a lot of unknowns purposefully because we like the challenge, you know, it's like a, like a high level athlete. Wink. No, the USB huh. quit. Oh, All right. So I'll fix that. You guys have, uh, how do they say it's a suspense. Yes. Whoa. Whoa. Geez. All my USBs went crazy. Let's do this while I fix all these technicals and prepare to show you this book. We'll do them all again. And we're going to go to uh, a next video that we have. Uh, let's do the uh, Dell big tree announcement of the uh, V core software. And then his analysis with his, uh, his lawyer. And then I should be able to get these uh, switches and knobs fixed by the time we come back. And I'll That's tell you about it. how they Aaron's. changed education in the 30s and brought in this uh, not so critical thinking, which allowed people by the 50s to get really whacked out, according to investigative journalist John O'Neill, not the same one from 9-11. Not the same common one. name. This was 1951 when he wrote that. Right. But you'll see 70 years later what we got today is a special brand of crazy and it does have a lot of history to it. So while we're digging into that, let's go to this clip from the highwire.com, Del Big Tree and uh, Aaron Siri in a Aaron series. Aaron Siri, if I can. Right. Okay. 
Oh, if you need it, I'll DS. Thank you. Okay, I saw you got it. Hello, everyone. Del Bigtree here from The High Wire. We have breaking news. Our nonprofit, the Informed Consent Action Network, has just received the vSafe data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is the app that was provided to those people who received the COVID-19 vaccine so that they could accurately track any adverse events that happened because of the vaccine. The CDC has been withholding this information and we're just getting some buffering. from the public, and that's why our nonprofit, ICANN, sued and won. And now they've provided us with over 144 million lines of health data, a huge, gigantic file that we've assembled and put on our website. So all you have to do is go to icandecide.org slash vsafe and check it out today. Take a look at how this works. We now know on our dashboard that there was 10,094,310 people that participated in the vSafe app. Of those, 3,353,109 reported some form of an adverse reaction. That number seems huge to me, but that's just my opinion. This is not about opinion. This is the actual raw data from the CDC collated together with this amazing dashboard built by ICANN. The CDC had billions of dollars to build something like this. They didn't do it, so we did it for them. There's all sorts of ways that you can search this. And just look at all the results from Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine those that reported on the Pfizer vaccine. Perhaps you want to just look at the women in the study that were affected, and we click here. Maybe you just want to see the exact symptoms that the app was collecting. You can go to here, symptoms, and start looking through all the different symptoms that were collected in this incredible data set. You will only find it at icandecide.org slash vsafe. Whether you're a scientist, a doctor, or just someone that's curious what's happening to the people around you, sign up so you can utilize one of the greatest scientific tools that has ever been built. I have to say I'm really giddy this week. You know, we win a lot of lawsuits. Uh, I am lucky that I, you know, I feel like I've got like this hundred foot tall bodyguard with me named Aaron Siri. I get to charge into a battle. I say, you know what? Get in there. I want the information from the CDC. I think they're lying to me. I get to pick a fight with the CDC. I get to pick a fight with the FDA. I get to pick fights with the NIH. And then I send in Aaron Siri to go get him and come back with the information. And if you've been watching this show, you know how successful he has been, which means that's how successful we have been. And for all of you that sponsor and donate to us, what you are about to see is a story that you should be thanked for because without you supporting us none of this is possible i'm talking about the vsafe data the system built by the cdc to track the covid injuries we sued because they weren't being transparent about it this is aaron siri on fox news talking about it Civil rights attorney Aaron Siri, the managing partner at Siri and Glimstad. It was 463 days, you tell us, from the time that you requested this vSafe data. Why did it take so long in your estimation, sir? It's a very good question. Why did it take numerous legal demands, multiple appeals, two lawsuits, in fact, before the CDC finally handed over the vSafe data? Maybe the answer is, is that now that we have that data and we've looked at that data, of the 10 million users within vSafe, 7.7% of them had to seek medical care 
after vaccination. That is an incredibly high percentage. Another 2.5 million, we're talking 25%, missed work or school or had bad reactions to the vaccine. What's the takeaway for you from this? Is it significant? It seems incredibly significant. A big reason that they pushed the COVID vaccine is they said it'll prevent them from having symptoms, being hospitalized, uh, missing work. Now that we have the data, we can see that getting the vaccine caused 25% of people who got the shot within this data set of 10 million people to miss work, to have some of serious event. There's some concern when you have 4 million people uh, reporting joint pain after they got the vaccine. It's 4 million out of a group of only 10 million people. So that, that makes that number extremely high. Joint pain is an immune reaction. That is something to be concerned about after vaccination. And all of the data has been put up by the, our client, who we represented in this case, iCanDecide.org. And on their website, they've created this amazing, uh, easy-to-use, simple interface where you can search all this data. Well, uh, it's amazing when we make the news for what we're doing because the news does not like talking about what we're doing here at the Highwire and the Informed Consent Action Network, which is the nonprofit that makes this show possible. Uh, but we did win this V-Safe data, and it is my honor and pleasure to speak to the incredible warrior that we have on our side that made all that possible, Aaron Siri. Aaron, first of all, congratulations. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Thank, thank, you, thank you, Dell. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, thank you, I can, for making this work possible. Yeah. Wouldn't be possible without you guys. Yeah. So uh, he, he, a good question is asked in that, in that news report. You know, before we get into the details, you listed some of the details, some very shocking numbers there. And, and by the way, just so you know, when we put this dashboard up, that I can, I can decide.org slash vsafe, which is, you know, where people can find it. We have had, I think it's three so far in just the last few days it's been up since, what was it, like uh, Monday, Tuesday, we Monday. put it up Monday, uh, 300 times, 300 fold the amount of visitors we usually get to the website. So it just shows you how, what an incredible thing this is. But the process. I mean, you and I talked about this, I feel like over a year ago, like we need to see that data. CDC said it was going to be transparent. We were basically turning the population of America where we live into a giant clinical trial, right? Skipping out of the studies because of the emergency use authorization. And CDC promised us, we know this is dangerous. We know this is dangerous, but trust us, we've built a surveillance system on top of our system, then we'll be able to track and, and let you know how everything's going. So, um, you know, were they transparent? What did you think they should have done with this V-Safe data? Let's start there. What should they have done based on what they told us? They should have released it to the public immediately. Yeah. Most of the V-Safe data is simply check the box. It doesn't contain any personally identifiable information. It's something the CDC could have provided to the public right away. And now we know, now that we have it, that by May of 2021, most of the vSafe data that we now have received was already available. Wow. And they could have provided it within minutes. Simply sent, they sent us a few Excel files. Right. They could have produced that in, in literally a matter of minutes, provided and provided transparency to the American public as uh, in that segment you just showed from Fox yeah. News. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I know we're gonna go through a lot of stuff yeah. today, but yeah. I'll just say that those figures those figures were available all the way back in May. Why weren't they made public? 
Why weren't they a part of the conversation before, let's say in June, they then said, let's give this shot to babies. Man, and, and why were we, and we're gonna get into the details, why were we being told a totally different story than what they were actually seeing with their own eyes in their own system? Uh, but before we get to what we discovered, I just wanna talk about the journey because sometimes the journey is more telling than the information that you actually get. Yeah. You know, we always start these things out, you know, we don't have to be litigious. One of the things that your, your law firm is doing for us is filing Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, for people that are brand new to this, that essentially is the government works for us. In the United States of America, they're our employees, which means just like I can check my employees here, I can check their emails. Everyone that's you know using our email system, I want to know what my employees are saying. I don't do that, by the way, but I could. Uh, we get to do that with our public officials because they work for us, and so we make demands. We would like mm -hmm. to see, you know, for instance, we talked about the Peter Daszak or, or the autopsies. We put in these requests. We want to see how many autopsies you've looked at from the VAERS system. And then they push back, and when they push back, we end up filing a lawsuit. In this case, what was our original Freedom of Information Act request when it came to VSAFE? Yeah, the request was filed in June 24th, 2021. So quite a while ago. Yeah. And uh, the initial request we filed um, was for all the de-identified information in the vSafe system. Okay. Okay. Um, the reason that we asked for that was twofold. First, um, as you just mentioned, we are a repeat player. Yeah. These federal health agencies. Yes, they know who we are. We have hundreds of FOIA requests before the FDA, the NIH, the CDC, HRSA go down the AHRQ, all, there's about over 20 yeah. actual health agencies within the uh, HHS. Right. Um, and so when we've done FOIAs in the past and we've asked for medical information, what will typically happen is they'll tell us, oh, wait, we can't give you that because it includes personally identifiable information about people in the public. So you can't have it. And then we go through this long rigmarole where we say, okay, just please redact it and then provide it. And then eventually we end up getting the data. Um, for that reason, and this one other reason I'm about to say, we asked for the de-identified data, and the other reason is, before we file a FOIA request, we do some homework. Okay. And when we did that homework, what we found is that in the CDC's official vSafe guidance documents, it actually says that de-identified data was available to Oracle, which was housing the data. So they're the ones that are like sort of housing all the data. They don't want them to have that information because that's not, that's a private company, correct? Oracle's a private company. Okay. And so um, they're not allowed to share that kind of information. So it's, it says it right there. Right. The CD's own material. It's the identifier. So we thought, great, this is the perfect request. Yeah. We're asking for something that apparently in their own literature they're saying exists in the hands of another private entity already. Should be easy, just hand it over to us. Right. So we filed a FOIA request, uh, as I mentioned, on June 24th in 2021. We, uh, uh, eventually they respond. And the response is that um, they're not able to locate any data. They can't locate any, any data. Any de-identified data. Wow. So we appeal that on August 25th. Okay. And um, you know, we say, uh, well, your own literature says you gave de-identified <laughs> data to Oracle. Right. So, one, we were trying to shortchange this whole process, guys. Right. Come on, we know how this goes. And two, we know you have it already, so just give it. Right. Um, so, in addition to following the appeal, 
A few days later, on September 1, we also submitted a second FOIA request. Okay. This time, the FOIA request made explicit. We would like all the identified data that you gave to Oracle, okay. basically. Right? right. I'm paraphrasing it. Yeah. They're getting the, the details. Screen. We got that happening there. I saw there. that on the screen. So there it is. Yeah. That's basically what it asked for. Okay. Now, because there's been a lot of questions. Why two FOIAs and ultimately two lawsuits? So that's why two FOIAs. We thought well, they're pushing back in a weird way, so let's be very well, specific. Well, there's a third FOIA, actually. Okay. Well, that, that was those. So then we said, okay, now they'll capitulate. Right. I, I'm, I, I wish the story ended there. It, does. <laughs> it rarely does. That's the second FOIA. Right. Okay. Um, and then, so we thought, okay, now they'll capitulate and give us the data. No, they still maintain that they can't give us the data. So um, they really left us with no choice. So we sued in federal court on those two requests, mm -hmm. as well as the third one that we won't talk, that's not as relevant. Yeah. Okay. And the first lawsuit was filed on December 28, 2021. I see it on the screen right there here. There we are, yep. You can see Informed Consent Action work Network versus and, the CDC. And by the way, everyone out there that's donating to us, I want you to see in many ways your name is in there. Your name is a part of the Informed Consent Action Network because that's not anything except those people that support us, giving us the ability to fund the work that you're doing. And it's not easy. It's not a one shop and all of a sudden they hand it to us. Look at how much time you're putting in with your team to try and, and get this out. So, okay, you filed that case. Yeah, if, if we could pull that complaint back yeah. up for a moment, it might be worth just taking a look at uh, just a few paragraphs, I believe, that were highlighted. You asked me to tell the story. Yeah, I did. Let's, I let's put see. it together. Okay, great. I, and it's, uh, Here it is. It says, the federal government has mandated that millions of Americans receive these vaccines. And this is what we're writing to the court. Yeah. This lawsuit. These vaccine products. HHS has also been given pharmaceutical companies complete immunity for injuries caused by those products, mandating that millions of Americans inject a product for which they cannot hold the manufacturer liable if the product injures them, demands complete transparency, especially when it comes to releasing the data underlying the product safety. FOIA exists precisely so that the American people can obtain transparency, and in this case, obtain the data which supports the CDC's claims to intensive safety monitoring. Right. right. Um, and then it goes on to explain in yeah. this paragraph what vSafe, uh, the smartphone app, is, and we can go... I'll read it. Uh, vSafe is a sure. smartphone app that allows vaccine recipients to tell CDC about any side effects after getting the COVID-19 vaccine. The purpose of the app is to rapidly characterize the safety profile of COVID-19 vaccines when given outside a clinical trial setting and to detect and evaluate cl clinically important adverse events and safety issues that might impact policy or regulatory decisions. That's right. Yeah. And, and it goes on, and I think this might be the last. Okay, let's see it. Go ahead. You take <laughs> it. Uh, data submitted to vSafe is, quote, collected, managed, and housed in a secure server by Oracle, end quote. That is a quote from the CDC's own document. Right, so you're, you're, you're quoting. That's why you have the little number in there, seven. The footnote, okay. seven. A private computer technology company, although the CDC has, quote, access to the individual survey data, quote, Oracle can only access, okay. quote, aggregate, de-identified, data for reporting, end quote. But there's more. Let me read this. Despite Please. the fact that the de-identified data already exists, it is already in the hands of a private company. And the CDC has never objected to its production. The CDC has so far failed to produce it to plaintiff or to the American public. The federal government is thereby not only failing to provide the transparency necessary to earn the American people's trust regarding these vaccines, but it is also failing to comply with FOIA. 
That's right. Yeah, excellent. So we filed this lawsuit and we yeah. thought, okay, now, it's, now, now we don't have to deal with the folks in the CDC. Now we get to deal with the CDC's attorneys. Right. Little law firm. They're called the Department of Justice. Right. <laughs> I've heard of them. They have all our money. Right. So, you know, um, so but we figured better we can maybe deal directly with the Department of Justice. In this one. So we sued them in federal court with that suit. And we started that dialogue with the Department of Justice. And yeah. it often happens they reach out and so forth. Um, after months of back and forth with the Department of Justice, and they filed an answer, we had status conferences, we had a, a scheduling, agreed scheduling orders and so forth. The DOJ maintained the position that since the de-identified data doesn't actually already exist, they said that the, that, that the CDC apparently got it wrong when they wrote what they wrote in their own document. Really? So that yes. was the argument, that it didn't go to Oracle de-identified, that, as right. it was said. In the, they okay. said that it's not, that, it, that what you just read in black, black and white in that quote is not actually actually what happened in reality so after months of i mean hold on a second though yeah. like i, I mean i always just think of like I'm, i think like a movie i used to sort of you know write i was in hollywood so these lawyers all sit down you got the cdc your client sitting there like we got a little problem here we need to come up with the best argument we can first of all the fact that they're trying to keep us from getting to it should is just as i said sometimes the process tells you more than what you actually see what are they trying to hide from us? Why is this so important? But the best argument they come up from with is either we were misinformed or we just lied about our process. Well, it was kind of, it's, it's kind of like nan 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 for two reasons. Okay. One, FOIA requires the government to reasonably interpret a request for information. The request, as reasonably interpreted, when we asked for de-identified data, it meant if it exists or ones that you could make right. from the data. Right? Right. I, it didn't even dawn on me, frankly, when we filed this request that they would take this position, which they'd never done before. Wow. That, sorry, if you had to ask for all the data, right, then we could have made de-identified data, which is always what happened in the past. But since we asked for it in the first instance, they're taking the position, it doesn't already exist that way, so you can't have it. So and you were too specific. Too specific. I was trying to be too accommodating. Right, right. And obviously... I did it with the knowledge that we had this Oracle admission in their papers, which yeah. they then kind of disavowed. All right. Okay. So that goes on <laughs> oh, December, when we filed the suit, up until April, where we're finally like, okay. And I remember the call with the Department of Justice. I, I literally remember telling the Department of Justice attorney, I said, look, if what you're saying is you're just going to maintain this super technical position, then I'll just, then my... Sorry, folks, this is the... Highwire yeah, website. It's, it's because like Dell got banned from YouTube and the rest of the internet. And so now he has to host his own videos over there. And uh, his server gets whacked with people like us trying to like show it to us now. Um, we'll check to see if he has uh, also like a backup stream on Odyssey, these things. Because it does happen occasionally when we play clips from his site that it, it hangs out a little bit. It seems like that clip, especially, he's getting a lot of activity this weekend. That's a good thing to see. He's getting a lot of traffic. Uh, you guys can go over to the highwire.com, see his full conversation with Aaron Siri and uh, all the things going on with uh, that uh, FOIA, re the, the, the response to the two technical ask, and then they re-asked it so they could actually get a data response on the vSafe, which is the uh, CDC software they used to track everybody for uh, the past two years for the experimental gene therapy offering through peer pressure and extortion and things like that.
All right. Looks like we got Tony back up and running. I got the 920 working. But uh, just to comment quickly on the on the clip, uh, I was trying to play the clip here where we have good internet, and unfortunately, um, yeah, it's not really working. So the stream, you know, it sometimes gets saturated over at the high wire. So I have it, it happens. I know when I do the show card, there are times in which uh, I do struggle to get the the videos to play. But for the most part, they do a great job. And, you know, that just probably means there's just a, hopefully there's a lot of people consuming that information. Then it's not some other issue with their servers or their connection in some capacity. So, but uh, very interesting to see the vSafe data, the fact that there it's anonymous and it records. Um, I didn't get a chance to listen to a ton of the video because I'm working with cameras in the background, but I know there's an issue between um, vaccine injury and what's the other terminology they were using um, side effects. And so there's a, or uh, there's another term they use that has to do with like, did you experience and they're very specific terminology, adverse events. I think that's the term adverse events and then side effects. So for example, you can have multiple adverse events for one injection. So you can have soreness of the arm, you can have a migraine, you can have a blood clot. All three would be three adverse events per one submission for that one individual, which is why you can have such a high number in the adverse events. Now, what becomes a, I think if I remember the definition, it has to do with somehow they, a direct causal link to the vaccine directly as being the reason for a malady or debility manifesting, whereas a side of, or whereas an adverse event could be or could not be related to vaccines. Um, it just happened to, be contemporaneous with the injections. So there's a correlation causation issue. At least that's the way they get around these definitions. So adverse events are a little bit more loose in definition. Side effects are more specific. Um, but the fact that the human body is so complex and the fact they're so heavily correlated with getting the injection, if I remember correctly. So when someone gets the injection, they experience all these adverse effects around the same time they got the injection, you know, it's uh, reasonable to assume at least to induce that there's a probability, a high probability that there's some needs to be relationship. Exactly. And That's you can't exactly study right. If they're hiding the data. <laughs> and why would they hide the data if it's anonymous? Cause they and don't want you to study just, it apparently. It's, Cause that's the thing that ever, everyone needed to do for their own informed consent and safety. And it wasn't being done. And that's the CDC. So we can look at the data now that the data is up on the, I can decide website. Yeah. What's it look like, Justin? And sure enough, when you look at the number of users registered, all right, check-ins by survey interval and doses. Uh, so the most common by far time to report an adverse reaction comes on day one to six. Inter mm -hmm. uh, right there. That's exactly, thank you, Just. That's perfect. There's a big spike right there. And well, it's contemporaneous because it's happening around the same time. So what they try to do is argue false cause fallacy, which is not true. Like when you have a preponderance of evidence for an event occurring around the same time something else changes in your body. That should uh, that that pattern should then be investigated. Instead, they try to say, no, 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 it's probably unrelated. They try to brush it off and act as though it's nothing. And this is the a government organization. Very this is not Pfizer. Was you weren't vaccinated until 14 days after you got jabbed. And there's a lot of sure. things that happened in those 14 days oh, right. that were also not being considered and weighed in the people's decision making. That's well said. It might have been on purpose as well. Hey, Justin, go back to that screen yeah. real quick if you can. Are you still on it? Yeah. Yeah. Looking at uh, another and interesting thing. It looks thing like that's in with it. Now, is this uh, days from vaccination or this days from is, being considered vaccinated? Hmm. This like is the injection it, date. If it's six days after injection, that's outside of the realm that they were considering being vaccinated. So they well, if, even, well, 
if you had a severe reaction if you in that one in six days, they weren't counting that as part of the data, at least in VAERS, if I remember correctly. And I don't know how uh, Pfizer recorded, but in VAERS, they didn't count that first one to six days. So VAERS is at, to the point that we've brought up for many times on the show is severely underreported and that we really are piggybacking on Dell Bigtree and, and Aaron Siri's work in regards to on, you know re- releasing that information through their FOIA requests and, and their lawsuits to the FDA, uh, the NIH and NIAID and so forth and so on, CDC. Well, when did the spike, so like when you see those graphs, um, LD, can you sticky that? I don't know if you can sticky that or pin that. Um, or bring it up on your end. But the uh, what months are those? Is it, is it labeled by month there or is it just numbers there? Uh, just yeah, symptoms by year and month. And most of them are within the first five months, which really correlates with most of the users signing up in the first five months. Uh, and then it looks like after June of 21, it's been minimal compared to the activity or what is was given by the CDC. Or um, they, they, they whitewashed the data a little bit because that's right when the vaccine program started. I'm not claiming it, but it looks a little strange that, you know, <laughs> sure. yeah, we would I'm like smarter people. It only happened for place. the first five months they came out. Sure. Now that it's been unhidden and visualized, looks concerning. Smart people want to know what's going on with this. And uh, yeah, did you uh, did you have any other chance to do researches in there, Justin? Uh, of symptoms and severity, the top four being pain, fatigue, headache, muscle or body aches, and joint pains, making up three quarters of all of the reported events. And I mean, what a trifecta, pain, fatigue, headache, like that's three ailments that most people are hard pressed to stay productive and joyous and great with life. What's strange here, if you look at symptoms, you know, look how general these are pain, fatigue, headache, muscle or body aches. I assume I can't read the rest of that joint pain, swelling, chills, nausea, redness, itching, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. You know, what's missing from the list rash and outside vomiting, irritability, sleeplessness, loss of appetite and groin under I can't read that. Some issue with the groin. Hmm, that's groin okay. and underarm swelling. Hey, you know what's missing from the list? Okay. Getting COVID one, two, three, four times after having that. What about blood clots? What about uh, any sort of neurological conditions? Myocarditis on the list? Or is that? It's right. not Heart to be conditions. Found. Did wow, they not want to measure it or is there no cases of it? Did they it's ask not to be explicitly oh, pointed so you, to? Oh, okay. So maybe if they just leave that off the list, it doesn't show up. That's interesting yeah. too. How convenient. And we call that a neglected aspect fallacy for anyone who's playing along. No, I could be wrong because I haven't studied it that much. So that's all it's showing here. And here we have what J and J, Moderna, obviously Moderna and Pfizer. Moderna's purple. It looks like their Pfizer's yellow. Making other- up the majority in total with J and J and otherwise seemingly yep. not having the events. Hmm. Oh, good point. And we know there's... About like that that donut graph on the right looks about like your odds when you spin roulette at the casino. It's going to come black, red, or neutral. Unfortunately, it's not the, con- the casino. It's actually a Russian roulette uh, situation. It's like, uh, what's that scene in uh, The Deer Hunter? You know, very intense Ooh. scene, if you remember that. Mow, mow. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Kind of yeah. like that. That's a metaphor. There's actually by two the way. scenes a metaphor. in that movie. I think that it happens, and then they have to go back and get Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Who it was? I think so, if I remember correctly. It's been a while a long since time that movie, since 1977. Yeah. It's a good callback. That's outside. Uh, yeah, that's before you were born, Tony. That's a pretty good callback for you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I did find the book. I got the book cam. 
this is this ties to the thing you heard a half hour ago now. So you got to have that, uh, what do they call it? Attention span. It's not right next to the thing. Uh, we're going to circle back to it. We're going to send you back to this book because uh, in relation to the video we watched, what was the title, LD? Uh, the Greatest Danger to the World, a short film. Greatest Danger to the World. It's posted over on Rumble. I thought of this book, which we covered a couple weeks ago, but I'll bring it back up because none dare call it treason. Even 25, 50 years later, uh, it's still a big deal. It's 50 plus years, actually. Uh, this comes from page 101, and this actually is episode 101 of this podcast. That's pretty cool. Synchronicity right there. Chapter 7. No, 6. Roman numeral trick right there. All right, education. Here's a quote, and the quote comes from Admiral Hyman Rickover. You'll learn who he is in a second. America is reaping the consequences of the destruction of traditional education by the Dewey Kilpatrick experimentalist philosophy. Dewey's ideas had led to the elimination of many academic subjects on the ground that they would not be useful in life. The student thus receives neither intellectual training nor the factual knowledge which will help him understand the world he lives in or to make the well-reasoned decisions in his private life or as a responsible citizen. Admiral Hyman Rickover. Who was this man? Dewey, who is so roundly criticized by the renowned Hyman Rickover, the father of the nuclear submarine. That's a submarine that doesn't have to come to the surface very often to get refueled. It's a big deal back in the day. John Dewey was an educational philosopher. So I know we read this into the record in its entirety, but it's pointing out the, uh, the changes in education that led to those ideas in the 50s and those very challenging ideas in the 50s, and also what has led us up to the Great Reset, a planned, coordinated, socialized economy. These ideas have been long in the making. But here's kind of the money shot, page 103. Financed by the Carnegie Corporation, the Count's directed study was to serve as the authoritative guide for revamping the philosophy and concept of American education. The final volume issued in 1934, this is what Charlotte Isserby called the Blue Book, the Carnegie Blue Book, contained the recommendations of the five-year project of the Carnegie Corporation, of which the following is typical. Quote, Cumulative evidence supports the conclusion that in the United States and in other countries, the age of individualism and laissez-faire freedom and liberty in economy and government is closing and a new age of collectivism is emerging. That's interesting. What do you think about that, Tony? Collectivism. Be on the spot, don't make it. I was playing with cameras. Uh, no, no, I want. I want to look up the footnote. Footnote eleven. I want to see what chapter. There's a chapter six. I wanted to see what the source of that is. Uh, doing it live for the what audience. What's the quote again, real quick? I'm sorry. Oh, I got Maybe. it. Yeah. Chapter 7, chapter 6, footnote 11, Ibid, which means it's the one above that, right? So if Ibid, That's right. on page, wait, 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 I might not be on the right page. This is page 103, and it was footnote 11, and this is chapter 6. Of chapter 6, footnote 11. Okay, so Ibid, and it's on page 137 of the report, Special House Committee, to investigate tax-exempt tax foundations, 83rd Congress, 1954, pages 137, 153, 137 are these uh, 
these footnotes. You know what that is? That's the Rees Committee report. We talk about that all the time. Oh yeah, I've got yeah. We how many times have we both uh, shown that book on the uh, on this show? All right, so now he's talking some sense. He's read a document that we've discussed many times on the show. Now let's see what we can put together beyond that. In the paragraphs previous, in the paragraphs following, they talk about British socialism. You know, back in that dystopic. 1984 book, there was this thing called Ingsoc, I-N-G-S-O-C. But the Ing was really for English, and the Sock was really for socialism. And it reflected very much the view of the British Fabian socialist society. It's going to say it's and a odd, metaphor for Fabian socialism. That's exactly right. Oddly enough, in this chapter that talks about the downfall of education in America and how it was really created into schooling, so everyone would think the same, in between that and this idea of the Great Reset, world socialism collectivism we got this page over here and it does mention the fabian socialist right here dewey was a socialist let me get on the screen at the climax of his career in 1950 he became honorary national chairman of the american counterpart of the british fabian society the league for industrial democracy well that's that interesting because it's of. like the, the fabian socialists making their way into america now, we should check the, the references on that as all, all things that we read. We shouldn't just take it as... Uh, it's like Chatham House and then the UN at Rockefeller. But there is a serious technology. infrastructure there to be yeah. studied. And what he's describing is uh, an overlap between these, uh, these groups. Now, over here, you've got the ideas that lead to common core, right? But let me, let me break this open a little bit more detail now that we have an idea of uh, the, the erosion of an education system and the creation of a schooling system. Dewey summarized his theories saying, education, therefore, is a process for living and not a preparation for future living. Oh, it's kind of like survival today, not survival tomorrow. That makes you dependent on centralized authority for which Dewey was a front man, right? Dewey laid the foundation for the future, quote, destruction of traditional education, end quote, uh, decried by Admiral Rickover when he said of Dewey's words. We violate the child's nature and render it difficult, render difficult the best ethical results by introducing the child too abruptly to a number of special studies, reading, writing, geography, etc., out of relation to his social life. The true center of correlation of the school subjects is not science, nor literature, nor history, nor geography, but the child's own social activities. Now, these are social activities around people you would not voluntarily associate, and you're kind of uh, in a structured situation where it is very hard to maintain your attention and actually do learning, because learning is a non-linear process. They try to make it very much a linear process in the Prussian education system. But uh, continuing on, strict acceptance of Dewey's theories would eliminate teaching world geography unless the child can take a trip around the world. History would be eliminated from the curriculum because it is past and it will not be relived by the student. In practice, Dewey's theories, as modified by his disciples, have eliminated the teaching of strict rules of grammar. The student learns grammar by, quote, living, talking, with the group, or reading literature. Old-fashioned drill and spelling of the ABCs, penmanship, multiplication tables, and other basics have been de-emphasized in favor of learn by doing. Depending on the degree to which the progressive education methods are carried out, learn by doing can mean learn not at all. He continues on, promotions become automatic. Nobody's left behind because of poor work. Uh, there's the question, Rosalie Gordon, 
the author of the widely circulated What's Happened in Our Schools. Let me get it back on the screen. The progressive system has reached all the way down to the lowest grades to prepare the children of America for their role as collectivists of the future. This is very much like what they need for the Great Reset. This is the infrastructure. This is the foundational laying of it. Generations ago, the group, not the individual child, is the quintessence. Quintessence is the quintessence of progressivism. There we go. The child must always be made to feel part of the group. He must indulge in group thinking and in group activity. That's she called explains. the propydeutic function. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off, but that's Alexander Inglis's what 13 or 14 principles of education. And that was the Harvard speech he gave in the early 20th century that took Gatto uh, quite a bunch, uh, quite a, a few hoops through which he had to jump in order to obtain that uh, documented history, including him having to call the Harvard's uh, uh, record office and having them inquire as to why would you want such a speech? And anyways, go for it. I'm sorry. No. Little little moving a little bit forward to achieve this new social order, 1932. Now, this is before the Carnegie report was out. This is while they're reading it, right? Uh, the guy counts who was in charge. 1932 call for teachers of the nation to provide the impetus. In his monograph, Dare the School to Build a New Social Order? Question mark. Counts notes that the teachers should deliberately reach for power and then make the most of their conquests. The conquest is my firm conviction. To the extent that they are permitted to fashion the curriculum and procedures of the school, they will definitely and positively influence the social attitudes, ideas, and behaviors of the coming generation. Now, I remember Charlotte Isserby before her passing. She always said that the, the findings of the Reese Committee reflected the Carnegie Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, nonprofit foundations with their internationalist agendas, and specifically it was described that they wanted to change the attitudes, values, behaviors, and beliefs of Americans to be in line with collectivism so they can have like a world communist state. Now, it Same sounded crazy Yuri a long Besman. time ago when she said it. And it sounded crazy when Yuri Besbianov said it. Yeah, and it was the 1980s like, when they both said the same thing. It was the 1980s. That's right. But now Klaus talks Great Reset, and that's what, that's what the branding for this thing is. It, it, like it's clearly described over decades and decades, and they just rebranded it. It's a, so it's we're a talking marketing. a little over their actual sort of business plans, if you will. Is that well, the best way to describe it? Kind of like that. And they're yeah. reaching for power. That, that kind of like, that's what they that's did a, during COVID. Because here's but, an example. A dying laissez-faire must be completely destroyed. And all of us, including the owners, must be subjugated to a large degree of social control. Oh, well, like, like, like a new credit system? Yeah, right. order capitalism. Or, you know, it's a foreshadowing philosophically of postmodernism. When they talk about power. Power should be the thing that takes precedent over all other considerations, abstractions, or concepts. That's a postmodern idea. So they're foreshadowing no. the rise of postmodernism in the university systems as well. We're commenting on a video made from an article written in 1951. This book was written in 1964, 65, somewhere in there. So this is like a decade after. It's describing the same problem, but it's progressed. The new public mind, so this is uh, in his book, The Great Technology, this is written for teachers in 1933. This is, this is rug. This is for all the, the teachers who are being trained with this, this information. Quote, a new public mind is to be created. How? Only by creating tens of millions of new individual minds and welding them together into a new social mind. Old stereotypes must be broken, broken up, and new climates of opinion formed in the neighborhoods of America. Hmm. Have they been doing that recently? Is that like what ca cancel culture does? 
it forces this type of thing into our call. Right. That's yeah, interesting. Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's morning of the individual. Clearly, Rugg was proposing the destruction of the small businessman and complete government control of every, cit- every citizen's life and employment. Sound like something that's happened in the past couple of years? Later in this book, he defined how schools were to be used to transform American political and economic institutions and create the new public mind which would accept complete government control of the individual. Common core, anybody? Here's a quote. Through the schools of the world, we shall disseminate a new conception of government, one that will embrace all of the collective activities of men, one that will postulate the need for scientific control and operation of economic activities in the interest of all people. The great reset. You will eat the bugs. That's interesting. That reminds me a little bit of the Hegelian dialectic we uh, observed last week when one of the uh, books you showed last week in regards to the material dialectic of uh, Marx and Engels in regards to, again, we're circling back to this idea of utopia. They seem to be able to move the world as I think uh, quickly pointed out in his evolution of civilizations to their own new former idea of civilization, one that doesn't go through the vicissitudes, the high points and low points of a culture or civilization, one that doesn't go anywhere, in fact, one that embodies a utopia. Go ahead. Yeah, someplace that's not here, and it's artificially created, it's contradictory. That's what it means, nowhere. Nowhere, not nowhere. Note that No place, sorry, go ahead. Note that Rugg did not say a new type of government, but a new conception of government, one that might have uh, public partnerships and stakeholder capitalism, maybe. Rugg proposed that this could be accomplished in three ways. First and foremost, the development of a new philosophy of life and education, which will be fully appropriate to the new social order. It's like the green agenda right there. Second, the building of an adequate plan for the production of a new race of educational workers. The Great Reset. Third, the making of new activities and materials for the curriculum. Hmm. But they have to be carbon net zero friendly and produced by multi-billion dollar international corporations. But that's the end game. That's the end end game. game. Because the earlier game, right, is the culture. So first is the culture. So what they're really describing there is the sort of cultural war that's taking place in the universities with postmodern studies. That's exactly, they're, they're, they're what's the word, sort of um, as an analogically emasculating the entire population, not just men, but, uh, and confusing the population, creating gaslighting the population, creating forms of psychoses that we alluded to well, earlier. you can't gaslight a population that can think for itself as that's an right. individual moxie. So you got to break all that down. And here's how they did it. So this guy, Rugg, I'm, I'm quoting from him, and you might think, well, no big deal because nobody reads Rugg. Okay. Five million school children, quote unquote, learned American politic, uh, political and economic uh, history structure in the 1930s from 14 social studies textbooks that Rugg authored in, wow. the, in the image of what the Carnegie Foundation and these other internationalist foundations were telling people like him to author, right? So it's a top-down changing of the education system purposely into uh, a schooling system, teaching things like class hatred. We're not going to talk about that. That might be too. And gender studies and crazy. Uh, ethnic studies. Crazy for... topics out there. UNESCO comes into it right over here. It's only page 110. It's like a 400-page book. So it's pretty juicy. It's 1964. Let's, let's check the title page again. It's like 19... Well, subtract 20, 1965. There you go. 25th oh, okay. anniversary on 1990. 
Was it in Roman numerals? I couldn't see that. No, sorry. Page 110. Let's see who the quote originates with. We'll start on page 109 to get to it because it's internationalism. You might have heard of this. Might have been told you're a conspiracy theorist, but you could t- totally see it going on today at the World Economic Forum. The Great Reset. And this is uh, some roots of that because this is five years before the Club of Rome's predicament of mankind paper, which has on its last page or one of the last pages, the call for a world forum the next year. And the next year is Klaus 1971. He's like, let's create this Davos World Economic Forum. In 1973, they have a manifesto. Uh, Prince Bernard, the SS officer from the Netherlands, Aurelio Pache from the Club of Rome, who wrote the paper, Predicament of Mankind, that called for the... So the whole thing is well documented. This is a little bit before that. We're going to go to the section called Internationalism, page 109. Since World War II, propaganda for world government under the United Nations has been added to textbook agitation for the collectivist society envisioned by Counts and Rugg. So those two authors have been pushing a world internationalism type of collectivist government, and they're getting better at it because it's now being adopted as the Great Reset. That's a new form of government. It's not the reinvention of government. It's a new flavor of government. It's collectivism. It's uh, fascism, public-private partnerships, basically what it is, uh, with flavors of communism and socialism. It's like the uh, Neapolitan ice cream of political theories. Let's say it like that. The drive spearheaded by America, uh, spearheaded in America by the National Education Association, is part of a worldwide movement by UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. It received the official blessing of President Truman's Commission on Higher Education. While we heard about Truman in that video, the commission's report issued in 1947 had these recommendations: the following. The role which education will play officially must be conditioned essentially by policies established in the State Department in this country and by the ministries of foreign affairs in other countries. Well, that's interesting. So our education system becomes schooling. They take free will out of it. They take uh, voluntary association out of it. Now it's been prescribed from on high from Julian. Uh, Huxley at UNESCO, an international organization under the auspices of the United Nations. And uh, it seems like a good thing. It's it's probably because they love us, not because they want world government, because that'd be a conspiracy theory. Continuing on on page 110. What was the UNESCO program, which the Presidential Commission recommended that American schools should implement? Embodied in the nine-volume UNESCO study towards world understanding. It is the blueprint for conditioning American children for the day when their first loyalty will be to a socialistic one world government under the United Nations. Now, do you guys think that Klaus Schwab World Economic Forum is above or below United Nations level of power? I'd say it's a working group kind of below it. And the people who made the UN are these nonprofit foundations that we're talking about and uh, some other people who are also top down from the World Economic Forum. So I'd say it's still but, solid to uh, to look into this very strongly. Yeah, I think the thing with the UN is most people are true believers, part of the educational program in order to instantiate these lofty sort of utopic ideals in the minds of influential and powerful people that sit on the uh, at the chairs of the UN, for they example. They need to read some Dostoevsky. Can we get some Dostoevsky <laughs> movies sent to them or something? All right. 
loyalty to the United Nations. That's what they're working for. The work of authors, counts, and rug laid the foundation for the first two steps, the destruction of the United States Constitution and free economy, so that America could be easily merged into a socialistic world federation. What a wonderful idea, Klaus thought. Now, UNESCO Director General, under whom the plan was prepared, was Julian Huxley, an atheistic philosopher and a member of the Colonial Bureau of the British, uh, sorry, British Fabian Society. I was going to say Eugenic Society, but he was also the head of that. The yeah. goal of UNESCO was stated plainly in the study's first volume. It recommended that children should be educated in, quote, those qualities of citizenship which provide the foundation upon which international government must be based if it is to succeed. So they want to take groups of kids, generation by generation, ameliorate them, make them like the United Nations and think it's cooler than the, than just America and, you know, their national sovereignty. The point isn't for future education. It's for schooling them in the, in, in the, the now. The so future. they don't, right. It's like, it's, yeah, like they their plan. it's like their, their fourth industrial revolution. Under Huxley, UNESCO envisioned that the destruction of children's love of country and patriotism was the first step towards education of world citizenship. Well, glad that hasn't taken hold anywhere that we live. Let's go to the next page. Let's skip around here a little bit. Thus, UNESCO recommends the deliberate undereducation of children. The student who does not know or understand the accomplishments of America and the shortcomings of the rest of the world are likely to accept a world government. That's a, like sounds like a great idea, right? They've, dude, you don't even have to think about it. That's basically what they're saying, right? Just world government, United Nations, and you don't have to think about it. Such you don't have to think about it, dude. Thank you, Mr. I, Klein. He's still slow. My he is slow all the time. <laughs> Such, to, deliberate under the education. <laughs> Such deliberate undereducation is a theme which runs through the entire UNESCO program. So the underpreparing of people for life. That seems kind and generous, thoughtful. Woo. In the education of uh, education and training of teachers recommended. Therefore, we regard it as a matter of first importance for social and international living that educators should be more concerned with the child and the healthy development of his body and mind than with the content of the various subject, uh, subjects which go into the school curriculum. Because of failure to adopt a wise approach to the child's growth and development, the primary school still tends to function as if it were an institution for the abolition of literacy. Hmm. Should the school's primary function be the teaching of reading, writing, and arithmetic, the abolition of illiteracy, or, or the conditioning of the child for social and international living. Well, they think it's for social and international living, which explains why there's a lot of people out there who go through the whole system and don't know how to support themselves yet and are struggling, whereas generations before were able to readily do that and kind of copiously do that. We talked about that last week when I showcased uh, the military and the, using the same reading test between World War II, uh, was it World War II and then the Korean War, and there was a precipitous drop in reading comprehension. And so it's not surprising that the ability for, I mean, they could read, but they didn't read with understanding. That's what basically happened. And it's interesting. Yeah, there's a big talked about it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. God is good. Yeah. And it yeah, comes from, I forget the reference that I took it from. It wasn't from Gatto specifically. I got actually got it from Gino Denning. It's part of my Trivium Compendium I put together. But you're right. Gatto does mention that. The the downfall of reading. this like basic They the noticed basic it abilities. was happening so fast over the mm -hmm. course of just a few decades that it was That's staggering right. how little people coming in could actually do basic things. Right. 
grading, writing, and arithmetic. Go ahead, sir. In short, UNESCO recommends that schools be converted into indoctrination centers for the production of emotionally conditioned children who react like Pavlov's dogs rather than reason and think logically. The best-selling book, Rudolph Flesch's Why Johnny Can't Read, exposes the results of such undereducation in one curriculum area. So they go on to talk about this, and the book's got a whole lot of other stuff. But pertaining to that mass formation psychosis that was being described in the 20-minute video that we just uh, checked out, I thought it was relevant to say, look, there's other layers to what's going on. There's root causes that cause those symptoms being noticed. And uh, without us saying, what did they take out to make us into this situation? And maybe if we put it back in, we get our freedom back. That could be like just starting to ask questions and not assume that what they're telling you is true. Which maybe is why reading you had a good book. To, which is why you had the finger on the pulse of this when it comes to education. That's, you know, we, when you interviewed John Taylor Gatto and I was lucky enough to be a part of that production, um, I was not, you know, I was new to this. I was not, I had not come to understand the corruption of the education system and how intertwined it was with corrupt philosophies, with politics, with a supranational sort of ideolo ideological idea of collectivism that I didn't, you know, I didn't quite understand. And it took me many years and thanks to you to sort of uh, break that open. And obviously the trailblazers that came before in regards to Charlotte, Charlotte Iserbeet and John Taylor Gatto and many others, you know. Um, and G. Edward Griffin. G. Like Griffin's explanations, oh, when I think back, like Griffin was really the one who broke he translated. down. He's like, he he's sort of like collectivism, in individualism, way, all these other things fall under those two things, you know, two uh, subject headings. Yes. And if you think of things in a freedom or slavery connotation, you can't have your rights uh, oriented and given to you by a group of people just like you, that, that it breaks down. Society breaks down in that situation. So you need individuals with their rights and the individuals don't violate their rights. Then they have the means of production and invention and ingenuity and hard work and work ethic. Correct. And they own the means and the labor, the fruits of those labors. Then they can be independent and then interdependent and help each other out. And you can have a nice economy where people follow the rules and you can have rules set up for people who follow rules. But in society and throughout history, you're always going to have people who don't follow those rules. Well, well, and you're still going to need to have self-defense against those people. Intellectual self-defense, physical self-defense, and non-aggression have always been the components of what individual freedom and liberty are about. Sounds like they're trying to break the will of the individual. Because you break the will, because it seems like we're problem solvers, we're creative, we're imaginative, and people want to, a form of self-actualization is finding the, our sort of niche for creativity, our sort of niche for our ability to express ourselves in some, some way that gives us a sense of meaning, purpose, and identity. And it seems like they put the lid on the jar. Did we play a clip like that last week at all? Yeah, where they break oh. people's free will. And they've done it in most every other country around the world for several generations. So this is why it's an important thing oh, for so you mean to it's say- multi-generational recognition of the ability to control people and the ability to control people is the ability to control their mind or, or actually it's not even controlling their you mind need to get as people much as to breaking acquiesce their using their minds basically for them to be controlled though is that i like mean the all Steve these other Biko far ideas in the back aside yeah the, the most powerful weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the minds of the oppressed yeah here it is the most yeah the most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed and that is Steve Biko, 1946, 1977. Hold that up a little longer. Sure. He's going to have a document cam in there soon enough, but there you go. And I'm working on fixing these other cams. I know there's a sync issue with my voice, but I'll get that on the next clip. I do want to get this one last record or one last artifact on the record. This comes from uh, Dorothy Sayers. 
Now, she was a crime novelist. She wrote fiction and nonfiction. She was a poet, literary critic, and a classicist. And she gave an, uh, a speech from an essay she wrote in 1947. She gave it to Oxford University. And it was called The Lost Tools of Learning. Now, all these individuals that Rich is quoting all acknowledged and seemed to understand and make explicit the pattern of what was happening in American culture and American society, particularly in American education. And I thought I would just sort of piggyback on the fact that she also recognized this sort of loss of the individual to express themselves, to learn anything for themselves, give, the, give themselves the tools to be able to learn anything and to be self, self-actualized in the ability to be independent and self-assured. So I just want to read a quick quote from this uh, fantastic essay in regards and not, and not, you know, not trying to castigate the trivium or quadrivium or, or cast aspersions on it rather. Um, because there's a lot of sort of misunderstandings in regards to what she then promotes as being the, the, the best form of education. And we can talk about that separately. I certainly teach the trivium, so I'm biased to, towards that. But just her recognition of the state of education, and this was in 1947, delivered at Oxford University of all places. So if we can give me a second here. I had it right here. Uh, oh, no, I lost it here. Here's the quote. Let me see. Do I have it on screen? Everyone see it all right? Okay, Control good. plus it a little bit. And what I'm going to say right. is uh, I just looked up all these resources and we're going to add them to the Freedom Vault. So if you haven't yet gone to grandtheftworld.com and there's a little pop-up that says get my Freedom Vault, uh, we're going to add it to those resources uh, and uh, allow everyone to have a bigger part of what Tony's alluding to right there. And uh, this is preserved in the Trivium Compendium I just mentioned. It's part of the Trivium course. If you purchase the course I gave uh, for the autonomy class, it's available on the uh, Agora Marketplace. But there's a whole compendium of all the, I organized all the resources in an interactive document, an interactive PDF with links embedded uh, so people can explore the steps that we took when we first discovered the Trivium and Quadrivium as a form of education and a sort of methodology to learn anything for oneself and become autonomous and self-reliant. But uh, without further ado, here's the quote from Dorothy Sayers. Again, this is 1947, delivered at Oxford University. Quote, it is not the great defect of our education today, a defect traceable through all the disquieting symptoms of trouble that I have mentioned, that although we often succeed in teaching our pupils, quote unquote, subjects, we fail lamentably on the whole in teaching them how to think. They learn everything except the art of learning. It is, the, it is as though we had taught a child mechanically and by rule of thumb to play the harmonious blacksmith upon the, the, upon the piano, but had never taught him the scale or how to read music, so that having memorized the harmonious blacksmith, he still had not the faintest notion how to proceed from that to tackle the last rows of summer. Another so beautiful that's, piano. that's outcome-based education. And right. it's like you learn a couple guitar chords, you can play a song, but you don't know how to read or write or really play music. You can just be like a little mechanical box. And therefore, you're dependent on the guitar Without teacher. understanding. Right, exactly. To teach you the new song over and over and over again. Why do I, and now following the rest of this quote here, why do I say as though? In certain of the arts and crafts, we sometimes do precisely this, requiring a child to express himself and paint before we teach him how to handle the colors of the brush. There is a school of thought which believes this to be the right way to set about the job. But observe, it is not the way in which a trained craftsman will go about to teach himself a new medium. He, having learned by experience the best way to economize labor and take the thing by the right end, will start off by doodling about an odd piece of material in order to give himself the feel of the tool. And so the point is, back on screen, is that if you start from the ground up, 
if you start with the basic understanding of how you of the specific specific trade or sort of value um, inquiry you're exploring, whether that be learning guitar, learning how to cook, uh, learning how to read or write, learning how to write an essay or a novel, you know, you, there's a starting place for this, and the starting place is understanding the way the pro, the the mind organizes processes and uh, is able to explain information from which it's exposed through our primary five senses and our perception. And so as she goes on to state the methodology by which, you know, in ancient times and sort of pre-industrial times, you see this a lot in a lot of the better homeschooling systems that are available, but they take pre-industrial sort of educational methods and books that were available and they utilize that and sort of uh, appropriate it for today's 21st century audience because it starts from the ground up. It starts from the understanding of we have to build the foundation before we, we, we then give them more complex understanding. And so what we do today is we give them the logic. We don't tell them how they, we get to that logic. We just tell them to memorize it. And they're now nice automaton, automatons, just like the book you referenced, Rich, where it said, not was a future planning. Yeah, that's or- what Carnegie and these globalist internationalists need out of people for them to be automatons. It's not for future it- education, it's for education or schooling in the moment. So each right. time they're dependent on any XYZ authority. And they're, therefore- Big Brother can say anything today and they'll have to believe it because they don't have another way to get out of that intellectual trap. And that's why the number one fallacy, the king of all fallacies, and especially the first one I teach in my course, in my logic course, is ad veracundium, which means appeal to the person or appeal to authority. Well, it really means to appeal to the reverence for the authority. And it just means you should not consider it as truth and move on. Dismiss it as arbitrary, you know, and the, the ability effect, to make. The I am the science. There you go. Well, that's what it means. We need to be, the ability as individuals to be, to make logical, reasonable inferences, make decisions and choices rapidly in life, to be able to move forward, realize mistakes uh, early on and be able to fix them and keep moving forward in that learning process. That's right. Carnegie and Rockefeller and Ford Foundations, the internationalists. Uh, and the globalists that support them and, and run with them, they want you not to figure out, uh, not to be able to figure out any of this type of stuff. They, no, they, they need you to hear Fauci saying double speak, and they need you to do some double think, and then you can have their nice little dystopic future that they're continuously unfolding for us. And when that's that was exposed in the Reese hearings, the Reese committee, and that, like that's not uh, forget also. Um, uh, there's another massive expose. Uh, just out of the tip of my tongue, but the um. Oh, the Rockefeller Foundation is wildly fascinated and funded. So if you read Rebecca, um, is that her name? Uh, anyway, Asimov, it's the one who wrote The World is Laboratory. And yeah, what's, interesting, what's interesting about that book, okay, good. Rebecca Lemoff. Lemoff, thank you. Uh, what's interesting, Asimov, really? I'm thinking now I'm getting Russians. Okay, law. Anyways, getting that all confused with the Russian master. Okay, the point, or Russian the futurist. The point is... Um, uh, in that Rebecca book, Lemoff, she, world as laboratory, making people into the rats in the maze. Sure. Real no, time. The point is that the Rockefeller Foundation, what she does, she doesn't get heavy into the minutiae of the, how the behaviorists went about. But she does a little bit how they went about their experimentation and the various like three phases, if you will, of behaviorism. Um, starting in the early or mid 19th century, moving into the mid uh, 20th century. It's more about tracking the foundations, those that funded those individuals. Like that's what I found so interesting about that book because she exposes that the Rockefeller Foundation, particularly, and also the Carnegies and many other different foreign uh, foundations, but those two in particular, especially the Rockefellers, who are obsessed with human behavior. 
quite literally obsessed. Let's not forget that they were the ones that funded, uh, was it Orson Welles, War of the Worlds broadcast and wanted to, and that was part of a sort of psychological project that they were fascinated in, along with many others. They funded John Calhoun's Mouse Utopia study and many of the great behaviorists uh, in the university settings. They funded or had some sort of like uh, affiliation in regards to interest and the control and under, understanding and control of the human, you know, psychophysical self, if you will. A long-term understanding. Now you said minutiae, and that made me think of those mm. letters, the missing letters from the English al- alphabet, the letter ash, you could use that right there at the end of minutiae. Uh-huh. But moving on beyond the linguistic uh, connotations of behind the scenes of the show, um, I want to look at uh, a couple of the, the other big things that happened this week. So le- let's go to that Jeffrey Sachs interview. Now, I think that Burmis probably did the best breakdown of it, LD, um, because it's an eight minute interview. And as soon as it aired, they pulled it down everywhere. And so what you've got is a lot of people playing short clips of it, but I'd really like to see not only the eight minutes, but like Burma's connecting with that and giving us a little analysis uh, along the way, if that's possible. And yeah, I know I've that's an audible. Got to pull up on YouTube. Yeah. Right on. Um, it's 30 minutes long. Let's see. You want to jump to where it looks like he's playing the clip. Yeah, and then if we can also find a clip, uh, he had the pleasure of being on the TimCast last week. It was a big, uh, big step up for him, getting exposed to a new audience. And uh, I'd like oh, to celebrate that. Actually. Yeah, he yeah. did a great time. Yeah, great, great job on there. And I'd like to get also a short clip to, to put that in this week's time capsule of history because I like to see stuff like that. I like to see my colleagues getting out to bigger and bigger audiences because that makes everybody's work that much easier. People need to know... Th- you need to know what's going on before we all talk about it in the gulags. All right. So let's find out about it now in the free world. Before PayPal pulls our funding or pulls everyone's funding. Before everyone gets canceled. Transact, right. Yeah. Yeah. The next is cancel first, cull later. So if you don't, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to talk about this during the culling, I'm, yeah, the not culling gonna, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm done talking at that point. So let's do it now during the uh, cancel phase. Let's see if it plays. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And we know uh, they sent in the CIA to overthrow Assad. The CIA and Saudi Arabia together uh, in covert operations tried to overthrow Assad. It was a disaster. Eventually it brought in both ISIS as a splinter group to the jihadists that went in. It also brought in Russia. So we have been digging deeper and deeper and deeper. What we should do now is get out and not continue to throw missiles, not have a confrontation with Russia. Seven years has been a disaster under Obama, continuing under Trump. This is what I would call the permanent state. This is uh, the CIA, this is the Pentagon, wanting to keep Iran and Russia out of Syria, but no way to do that. And so we have made a proxy war in Syria. It's killed 500,000 people displaced 10 million, and I'll say predictably so, because I predicted it seven years ago that there was no way to do this and that it would make a complete chaos. So what I would plead to President Trump is get out, like his instinct told him, by the way. That was his instinct, but then all the establishment, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Pentagon, everybody said, no, no, that's irresponsible. But his instinct is right, get out. We've done enough damage, seven years, and now we really risk a confrontation with Russia. 
So notice he's talking about, and this is relevant right now, these smaller proxy wars that we've already set up with Russia. And Trump talks about getting out of Syria several times. Then you have the chemical attack in Duma that after we saw the WikiLeaks OPCW documents found out was a complete fraud. Also, uh, Pearson Sharp of OAN literally went down to Syria, uh, found the location where supposedly this attack had happened. There was no evidence that attack had happened. None of the citizens said that attack happened. The UN writes up this report that omits the information that, again, had to be distributed through WikiLeaks. That's why we talk about Assange here. Just want to point that out. So what Sachs is saying here and continues to say, still very relevant to what he's going to break down uh, in Bloomberg momentarily. That is extraordinarily dangerous, mm. reckless. Professor Sachs is correct to say this is a massive humanitarian disaster. I think the numbers are actually 600,000 dead and 14 million displaced. So mm. uh, I'm in complete agreement with him on the scale of this, but I, I would like to see the United States try and be part of the solution. I don't think it's attractive, but I think we have to understand how this happened. This happened because of us. These 600,000 are not just uh, incidental. We started a war to overthrow a regime. It was covert. It was timber sycamore. People can look it up. The CIA operation together with Saudi Arabia, still a shrouded in secrecy, which is part of the problem in our country. Very b big part of the problem. You know, we go back historically and I constantly talk about, look, what do we really even know about the better part of the last century? The classification, especially post-World War II, is total insanity. When you read Operation Paperclip put out in 2013, and Andy Jacobson tells you there are 600 million documents that are still classified, that seems like a lot. And, and he talks about, again, Timber Sycamore and this CIA um, disruption and really covert program, again, to try to uproot Assad, right, and eventually go in, well, we don't know much about it. A major war effort, shrouded in secrecy, never debated by Congress, never explained to the American people, signed by President Obama, never explained. And this created chaos. And so just throwing more missiles in right now is not a response. My only concern- We need to go, it's by the way, not to walk away to go to the UN Security Council, Yuck. as the Admiral says, to agree with Russia on a strategy for ending the fight. But ending the fight means that we stop trying to overthrow a government, that we stop trying to support rebels who are committed to overthrowing the government. That is where this war continues, because we to this day back rebels that are trying to overthrow a government contrary to international law, contrary to the UN Charter, contrary to common sense, contrary to practical path. We can't do it. And it's just creating ongoing crisis to the extent of facing an imminent confrontation with Russia. Imminent confrontation with Russia. And really, that'll bring us to this Bloomberg uh, clip years later. I think that's around... 2017, 2018, maybe. 2019, the latest, but I think it's 2018. 
inflation. Futures up 22 this morning. The heart of Bloomberg surveillance is the quality of our guests, always in every case. And as we spoke to Dr. Yardani moments ago, we speak now to Jeffrey Sachs to say he's economic professor at Columbia University, barely describes his contribution. I want to make note that he was 10 years out front on the collapse of American education and the struggle of two Americas. But Jeff, I must digress to your take on the war in Ukraine and on the Russia you knew so well under Yeltsin. You're in the Atlantic this week and they're equating you with Mearsheimer of Chicago is the realist out there. So let's just stop it. Just the fact that Sachs is currently being attacked by the Atlantic where if you saw our earlier broadcast today with Zach Voorhees, we talked about how The Atlantic is painting this false narrative of the dangers of questioning things and really trying to promote and invoke a civil war amongst neighbors. All right, I just want to point that out. And now they're going to, again, attack Jeffrey Sachs, the guy who's trying to tell the truth about what? What's really going on on a global stage and extremely dangerous? What should be our response to Mr. Putin with your thoughts on war and aggression after the human atrocities that are reported? Yeah, I was attacked in the Atlantic for yes. being on the, side, on the side of peace. And uh, I confess I'm on the side of peace. Uh, I am very worried that we are on a path of escalation to nuclear war, Not, nothing less than that. Uh, we have a essentially a war in which Russia feels uh, that this war is at the core of its security interests. Uh, the United States uh, insists uh, that it will do anything to support Ukraine's defeat of Russia. Russia views this as a proxy war with the United right. States. And uh, whatever one thinks about this, this is a, a path of extraordinarily dangerous escalation. I mean, again, can you really disagree with it? I, I'm going to have one point of contention with the guy through this whole thing. But can you disagree with what he's saying here? I don't want any type of of high-scale nuclear weapon being used by any side anywhere in the world. I don't think that's too much to ask. And most people, that was pretty damn well common sense, especially after you had Herman Kahn put out the mad theory or mutually assured destruction theory. Most people are like, yeah. No, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, don't want to destroy humanity. Weird. And I am very curious. Right. You days. lived this with Yeltsin. You were there for Gorbachev and Yeltsin and the rest. I remember when you got off the airplane at JFK, essentially shattered over the collapse of that first experiment. Do you have a feeling that Mr. Putin is alone? Is his military in support of him? A lot of the world uh, is uh, watching uh, the events in horror, uh, and a lot of the world doesn't like this uh, NATO uh, expansion, which uh, they interpret as at the core of this. They want to see compromise between the U.S. and Russia uh, in vote after vote in the United Nations. Basically, it's been the Western countries uh, that have uh, been 
uh, voting for sanctions and denunciations and other actions, whereas most of the world, certainly most of the world counted by population, is on the sidelines. They just view this as a horrible clash between Russia and the United States. They don't see that right, globally on the global stage, even with the people that aren't really paying attention, they get what this really is. That it's a U.S. Russia thing. View this as we describe it in the media as uh, an unprovoked attack by uh, Russia on Ukraine. That's, you know, anyone in the United States, they'd say, well, what else is it? But that's because the way that our media have been reporting this, this conflict goes back a, a long time. It didn't start on February 24th. 2022 would go in fact the the war itself started in 2014 not in 2022 and even that had antecedents and so most of the world doesn't see it the way we describe it but most of the world's just terrified right now frankly because it's unbelievable to be hearing on one side well we'll use nuclear weapons if we need to and the other side saying ah, you can't frighten us well, and Professor I mean, again, look at them. As, as Saxon's on fire here. Generally, once more, most people are like, yeah, that sounds insane. That sounds totally and completely nuts. We shouldn't be doing that. All right? So th this is where I think we get to the portion that is uh, kind of going viral right now on the Internet. But, again, Sax has been pure gold throughout this whole uh, interaction. Mr. Sachs, I, I share the concern, and, and I'll be honest, I spent the weekend also reading articles about the U.S. coming up with counterattacks and, and, and proposals of what they would do in response to some of these attacks. So, you know, it's definitely a big concern. It's also an issue, as you see this sea change in the economic trajectory in Europe and beyond. And some of this does come from the energy crisis. But suddenly we're talking about inflation that we have not seen since World War II, since potentially another time of incredible distress military intervention how close are we to some sort of i don't want to say hyperinflation but persistent inflationary impulse well above target in germany in the euro area as they look to these alternative ways to suppress uh, the peripheral region from getting out of control as they raise rates in the front end well europe is in a very very sharp economic downturn uh, the sharp decline of output and living standards also shows up as a rise of prices. But the, the main fact is that the European economy is getting hammered by this, by the sudden cutoff of energy. And now uh, to make it uh, definitive, the destruction of uh, the Nord Stream pipeline, which- So let's stop before he gets to the Nord Stream pipeline, because this is where we're gonna turn into that. Think about how quick the standard of living not only went down in Germany, but also over in France. Go pre-COVID-1984, all right? And the Yellow Jacket movement that a lot of people, one, don't remember because they were never really told about it in the media, or if they were aware of it, have kind of long forgotten. Kind of long forgotten. But things haven't gotten better over there. Remember, a lot of those people say out in the UK, they don't like the European Union. All right. They wanted out. There's a thing called Brexit. That never really came to fruition, did it? And 
at one point I thought that, wow, they're going to break up these systems. This is huge. This is a global revolution. Thank God. But these are mechanisms of this agenda to bring about what global command and control via a carbon social credit begging system, bending the knee system. That's what this is. And so now Sachs is going to talk a little, you know, not so authoritative source, uh, you know, at least in this country, perspective on the pipeline. I don't want to make any comments on the pipeline because that may be the next YouTube. We got to take it down. I, I would bet was a U.S. action, perhaps U.S. and, and Poland. Uh, this is uh, right, Jeff, Jeff, we got to stop there. That's a, that's a quite a statement as well. Why do you feel Absolutely. that that was a U.S. action? What evidence do you have of that? Well, first of all, there's direct radar evidence that U.S. Uh, helicopters, military helicopters that are normally based in Gdansk uh, were uh, circling over this area. We also had the threats from the United States earlier in this year that one way or another, we are going to end Nord Stream. We also have a remarkable statement by Secretary Blinken last Friday in a press conference. That he says, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's well, a strange way to, it's, uh, sorry, it's a strange way to talk if you're worried about the piracy on international infrastructure. Of Let me just stop it. It is all weird. Weird to talk that way. Some, would, some might call it gloating. I don't know. It's just kind of weird to speak that way. Vital significance. So I know this runs counter to our narrative. It runs, you're not allowed to say these things uh, in, in, uh, in the West. But the fact of the matter is, all over the world, when I talk to people, they think the okay. U.S. did it. And just to tell you, well, and, and by, by the way, even reporters on our papers that are involved tell me, Privately, yeah, well, of course, but well, it doesn't show up in our, our media. Professor, I, I want to get into the tit for tat about what did or did yeah, not yeah. happen with Nord Stream because I don't have the evidence. And, and you know, here I thought it was going to kind of be a diversion and a little bit of a diversion here. But at least the follow-up question is okay, where she talks about nobody trusting the mainstream media. How can they? When they put out these authoritative cartoon narratives and then have fact checks from, a, you know, the Ministry of Disinformation. We don't have a counterbalance to this. There is an issue, though, that's at the heart of what you're saying, which is a lack of trust in the United States, a lack of cohesion in allies in the midst of incredible political as well as economic strife. I mean, do you see the likelihood of working together at a time when there are such disparate interests and feelings of distrust? The biggest problem is that we have major geopolitical conflict uh, not only U.S. and Russia, but also U.S. and China. So, uh, and again, with a tremendous amount of provocation coming from the U.S. side as well. So we're breaking uh, any sense of stability right now. For the moment, uh, many in Europe are saying, well, the U.S. is our closest ally. We need to hold on. But watch what's happening politically. There's mm -hmm. upheaval in Europe, but country after country right now, we're entering a period of enormous instability and we're unstable in the United States as well. We went through an insurrection. We're, we're still not past that. 
Let me just stop that. That would be my disagreement with Mr. Sachs. We don't think any insurrections happened, but, you know, whatever. You get one thing wrong. Here he talks about hyperinflation. So we're entering the most uh, unstable geopolitical era in many decades. We're entering the first hyperinflation oh. in more than 40 years, and we're entering the first escalation to the nuclear precipice in 60 years, 60 years exactly this month was the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this is the most dangerous moment since the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's, it's an extraordinary overload, and we see no attempt to tamp this down, to quiet it down. Yeah. It's almost like there's this kind of planned implosion for this type of great reset that is brought about through a great narrative there, Jeffrey. Just want to point that out. I mean, almost seems engineered. It's weird. Every day is about escalation. We're going to defeat the other side. We have our rights. We can stand up what we want. We have Speaker Pelosi flying to uh, Taiwan. Right. So many provocations in the midst of huge instability. Well, Jeffrey, so we're going to have not, to leave it there. Jeff Sachs, okay. thank, thank you Very so good. much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. John, we're getting a fiery response from this interview. Are you surprised? No, I'm not. And, and you know, this is what we do with surveillance. There's a different opinion out there. And I would call it small. I wouldn't call it small. This is what we do on surveillance. I'd, I'd call it small, but. But there's a considered opinion out there internationally along his line, again, about the expansion of NATO. Yeah, and a lot of other things out there. Folks, I am a documentary filmmaker. They are all free. Loose Change, Final Cut, Fabled Enemies, Invisible Empire, A New World Order to Find, and Shade the Motion Picture. Let's get those thumbs up, subscribe, share. If you are new to the channel, I want to remind people, for only $1, redvoicemedia.net slash Jason, sign up. And you get exclusive content that's going to be the second hour of the daily. The reason I say the after show is going to get spicy is because joining us today to talk about so much is Jason Burmis. Tim, thank you so much for having me. And I really do uh, look forward to the after show, but this show as well. I mean, like you said, breaking news is happening all the time. And you really are at the forefront of the zeitgeist of what's going on culturally on the Internet. I mean, that's one of the strong points of Tim Cast IRL. And I love what you guys do here. So uh, who are you? What do you do? Jeez, what do I do? Um, some people know me as a documentary filmmaker. Other people know me as a talk radio guy or someone that runs his mouth on the Internet. I like to think I'm kind of a slab of all those things. And really, I'm just somebody who wants the truth, I think. You know, I'm not about right or left. I've always been about right or wrong. I've known this uh, gentleman to the left of me, Luke Rudowski, for some time. And uh, that would probably be about the activist portion of my life. But look, I'm just one of those guys that doesn't like to be lied to. I don't want to be treated like a child. I think that our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, is really at the apex of what we should be trying to achieve as a society. I think it's the perfectly imperfect document. And unfortunately, I think America has moved into an executive within an executive where that no longer pertains almost at all. There are no checks and balances. It's not the judicial, executive, and legislative anymore. And it's moved into this authoritarian style of government aided by big tech with media narrative management. So I'll, I'll just say this very, very quickly before we move on. 
there's a documentary that I'm sure most people watching this have seen, of which you are associated with, going way back in the day. I was working at O'Hare Airport. Some guy walks in with a DVD, or it was <laughs> probably a CD at that time, and he's like, you gotta watch this. And then we all watched Loose Change. Yeah, so. Loose Change is the big one, man. It's kind of where we took the internet and we utilized it to empower humanity with information that was not being given by the mainstream. And now we see restrictions on those same platforms because really without Google video, um, trying to compete with YouTube and absorbing yeah. it, would that movie has been as big as it possibly was? I mean, you got CDs and there's groundwork there. People like Luke Radowski and myself burning discs, handing them out to people. In fact, when we were selling the movie, one of the things we encourage people to do, don't buy one copy, get the spindles. Sure, they don't come in a case, but they were super cheap. You'd get them at 10, 25, even 100, and people would do that. I think the 100 ones you could get for $2 a disc, so it was like 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. And then you could hand somebody that disc, and they would watch it. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a whole bunch, probably in the members show, because it, it, that, that, it'll, there's a lot to talk about. We were talking before the show, or I should say, you were telling us about a whole bunch of crazy stuff that's gonna be fun. Wait, fact, so, check, uh, fact check, 100 discs at $2 each would be 200, not 50. <laughs> oh, I'm seeing, you got me, you no, got me. I love you, you got me. <laughs> All right, so thanks, thanks, it's, gonna be, it's gonna be fun, thanks for coming, and uh, of course, uh, Luke's here. The Burmese yeah. Boomer Brigade is here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Luke's making fun of boomers. We're going to have to bring an end to that. Um, yeah, because I'm older than Jason, bro. You can't be doing that. My dad's a boomer. I'm not. A, I'm the son of a boomer. So let's just get that straight. Um, there's a spicy show, and Jason does take it kind of to the limit of YouTube. And then uh, the after show gets going. The after show gets going, and I, I went to TimCast members. I logged into the after show. I watched the after show, and it was quite spicy. And it was good to see that that group of folks getting uh, the red pill over there. And uh, I hope to see them many more times back on the TimCast because it, it was a lot of fun. Now, uh, next, we're going to go to the interview with Whitney Webb. We pre-taped it earlier. Uh, I want to give you guys uh, the full experience. So while we tried to think, what are the spicy clips? We could play some clips and try to make you go see the whole interview. I'd rather have the whole interview in this time capsule and uh, get it done because it's just part one. We're going to cover uh, volume one of her works. Her work is uh, right here. One Nation under blackmail. We're going to cover volume one. It took two hours to discuss just volume one with Whitney. She's going to come back in a couple weeks. We're going to do volume two. And uh, again, it's it's a it's a good read. It's going to take you more than a probably a weekend. But it is the type of information that you want to integrate so you understand the uh, the inner and overworkings. It's kind of the meta picture and the the micro minutia of a lot of this stuff, all wrapped into one. It's a beautiful offering on this topic, and I think it's essential to understand the political, geo, uh, the geopolitical, economic, and especially kind of like <clears throat> the conspiracy landscape. Because a lot of the things that they call conspiracy theory, she's got the name, she's got the date, she's got the reference. It's all in here. So let's go now to uh, Whitney Webb. She's uh, in Chile. She's got time zone differences. That's why we did a little pre-tape. And uh, I offer it to you for this episode's interview. Take it away. Welcome back to Grand Theft Well, Tonight's guest is Whitney Webb. She publishes on Unlimited Hangout. She also has a wonderful stable of writers doing research over at Unlimited Hangout. And I've enjoyed reading her articles for many years. However, 
she's got a new book out. Well, she's got books out and we're going to talk about them tonight with Whitney Webb. Whitney, how are you doing? So nice to see you. And thank you for writing these books. Hey, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I hope that uh, you enjoyed them. I live in the middle of nowhere in South America, so my copies have still not arrived. So um, <laughs> I hope to receive them soon, but hopefully the people that have had them are, are happy with them so far. They uh, are the best packaged books I've ever received. They have like five bubble wrap wrappers. So <laughs> because, you know, they're, they're heavy and they're going in the mail and they're side by side. So you don't want the corners to get all bent up by the time people get it. So a lot of care went into writing the book. A lot of care went into shipping the book. And ironically, I was about 350 pages into the thousand page PDF when the books arrived. And so I said to myself, what am I going to do? Am I going to like jump 350 pages in and then start reading and highlighting, or am I going to reread it the whole? So I reread the first 350 pages and uh, I appreciated having the in hand version. Cause like I said, uh, I usually read books that are printed out and not on screen, but to get reading yours right away, I, I was like, I'm going to dig into the PDF and I'm highlighting in there. I'm making notes. So I was like, this is pretty cool. And I got through that. And then by the time I got the books, I was ready to sit down. I had a whole bunch of post-it note flags. I had a whole box of highlighters. I was ready to rip into it. And then the density, like, so the first 350 pages, I felt like I'm pretty familiar with a lot of this, but then the density you brought to a whole bunch of topics that I hadn't gotten into uh, and how you marshaled all this wonderful research. So my, I guess my first question is, why did you write these books? Is there a volume three coming out anytime soon? And, uh, you know, what, what got you started on this topic in particular? Okay. So, um, volume three may happen. I wasn't really planning on it, but some of the stuff that's, um, that's in the book about like Epstein and the Clinton white house and Southern air transport mm -hmm. and Jeffrey Epstein, Leslie Wexner. Yeah. So once I finished the book, I found like a bunch more stuff. So it might end up being its own book someday, but, um, I'm not going to commit to that right now, but Good. it's possible uh, to answer your other questions. So um, I, this is basically the ultra mega extended version of a series I did in 2019 on Epstein for Mint Press News, which is a four part series. And so the first part of that was basically like sexual blackmail intelligence before Epstein and then three and four were on Epstein. So with these books, right, volume one is all the pre Epstein stuff, more or less. I mean, Epstein gets mentioned a couple times and there's a there's a good bit of content on like Robert Maxwell. Uh, but the Epstein focused uh, part of the book is, is, you know, the bulk of that's in volume two. So it was always um you know, I, I basically, um, you know, trying day approached me and I think it was January, 2020 before everything got really crazy when I said, I would write the book and, um, I, he basically wanted the series extended. So that was basically my plan to do like pre Epstein and, and, you know, uh, basically place Epstein in that context that I sort of flesh out in what is now, uh, volume one, but, you know, things just got a lot um, crazier as I started writing it, I guess, because a lot of stuff that I'd only really dug into kind of superficially. And um, when I was doing the series at Mint Press, obviously got <laughs> a lot more out of control to the point that, it, you know, volume one itself is like 500 pages. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of material there. And basically what I'm trying to show um, is how organized crime and intelligence got together 
and a whole bunch of stuff has happened as a result of that partnership. It's sort of like a subtext to most of the better known uh, political scandals in American history, really. Um, and it's a key part of the power structure. And it's it's evolved and changed over time. But you can't really understand Jeffrey Epstein, if that's what your goal is here, unless you understand the world he was stepping into and the networks he was stepping into, you know, so if I want to unpack Jeffrey Epstein and his intelligence connections, which was my original goal uh, with the Mint Press piece uh, pieces um, that I did originally, if I say say stuff like, you know, he worked with Adnan Khashoggi, he appeared to have some sort of relationship with BCCI, for example, if you're not familiar uh, with the with BCCI or Adnan Khashoggi, I mean, that's not going to mean anything to you, right? So the idea is sort of I guess a primer for people. I, I don't know. I sort of see volume one as sort of a deep politics primer for people that have never been, uh, never really looked into this stuff, but I also wanted to uh, add new information so that it was still in, an interesting read for people who like have looked into this, you know, I tried to find somewhere in the middle. So it's not totally like, you know, crazy to people who've never looked at this stuff before, you know, so it's accessible to like, you know, people that are newer to this world, but also interesting to people who have been in this world for a while. I, well, I, th I think you, I think you completed that endeavor because for someone new, you're giving the individual parts. You've got a timeline aspect where you do go back to operation underworld and kind of start from the beginning of intelligence, working with organized crime. But for someone who knows who Adnan Khashoggi is, and I have all the BCCI books and false prophets and the research and Gwen and all that, all the things you're talking about in here, I'm still fascinated with the other things that you're marshalling and pulling together and the sources that you're providing, right? Because I go through your uh, chapter end notes and I have a third of these things, but I don't have the rest of these. And then I'm interested, like, where did you get this in piece of information and highlight that footnote and then go look it up. So for me, uh, I found it invigorating. I found it really inspiring <laughs> because, you know, your articles were definitely solid, but there was so much more that you had to say. Yeah, and so, totally. Did Chris read your article? So first off, Chris from Trine Day is a very interesting cat in and of himself. Yeah. Uh, he's a, 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 well, first he has a big heart and then he has a big brain. And then he comes from a family line that had some experience in these sort of things. Yeah, and, yeah. And he rebelled against it. And then he went out and got this amazing group of writers and he's been publishing. I've known him for probably 12 years. And it's just the, if you read the books that he publishes, you get the big picture, but I think your books tie all those other books together. So how did he find you and say, Hey, Whitney, I'd like you to like put it all together for us. So I, I think after the original series, I did an interview with Daniel Estelin and yeah. Daniel Estelin recommended that I get in touch with Chris. He said, I should think about doing a book. And, uh, and that's really how it happened. And honestly, though, um, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of crazy because, you know, I agreed to do the book in January, 2020, and then the world went like totally insane two months later. And I like lost childcare for most of 2020 and stuff. <laughs> so like, it was a really, um, mental time with the book. And Chris was really amazing. He was super patient because I had to delay this book a few times. Uh, but a lot of people thought and myself included thought it was going to be only one book and it ended up being double the page amount that I had originally anticipated. But sometimes that's how like these books are, or even my articles are. So when I publish articles and stuff, you know, I'm, I'm planning to, to cover a particular topic and I feel like I have to do that topic justice, right? I have to, to be thorough enough so I don't have to go back and like do it again later, you know? And so that, that's basically how the book ended up being. I didn't want to have to like 
um, go back and realize, oh, I should have added more about this in volume one or something like that. I wanted to just have a, you know, try and, and have all the pieces there for people. And I don't necessarily try and like connect all the dots for people. Um, and I don't really try and speculate very much in the book. You know, I try and say when I'm speculating and when I'm not make that uh, really clear. But I think if you're looking at all these different things that happen in a particular chronology, you know, the big picture becomes a lot easier uh, for people to digest, I think. And, but anyway, Chris is a really uh, lovely guy, super nice. And this book would not have happened without him. Uh, that's for sure. So, you know, I'm really, really grateful for uh, the opportunity and, uh, you know, now I have two books, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, I was planning on one, but All happy right. to have two. So, uh, yeah. Uh, the, and I loved like the, the color distinction between them. Like they have the same form and function, but slightly different covers. So you can easily tell which one's volume one, which one's volume two. <clears throat> Epstein's on the cover of volume two. So you read volume one, you, you get a lot of this background history. And then in volume two, you just hit turbo boost. And to get like, so people yeah. might be saying, I haven't read that much. And that's an intimidating read. Whitney, what you've done for people in each little section is when you're making a point and you're referring, hey, this will be talked about in chapter seven. You're giving them insights, milestones down the road. Like if you keep reading, you'll get to this other part and you'll you'll bring together a, a much bigger meta picture, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that you've put these little handholds in there for not the advanced readers, for people who might find it challenging to go through this much information in a short amount of time and like comprehend yeah. it. Right. It's really info dense. Yeah. So what I tried to do is like remind people, I had to make those chapter references because there's like, well, I mean, whoever reads it is going to figure it out. You know, it's very info dense. There's a lot uh, packed in there. And, you know, my articles in general, like not books are pretty info dense anyway. So this is the, the same thing basically um, in book form. And so some of like the really important connections, I really wanted to make sure to emphasize. So people like understood like really well, um, or at least could refer back to people at a certain point um, when, you know, they're, they're relevant. Cause I mean, I'm talking volume one is, you know, I don't know, probably covers like 60 to 70 years, you know, mm -hmm. it's a pretty long time span um, that I, I'm dealing with there. So, you know, some people, you have to know the background to some people. Um, and this is really a multi-generational system. I would really call it a business more than a system uh, that's, that's running the show um, in, in these days. So um, I, I really felt like it was important to understand like the evolution of that group and, and for to do in order to do that, you know, some of the, the big actors and the big players, you have to sort of follow them from the early days on up and they tend to weave and bob throughout, you know, the, uh, the volume one in particular, and in some cases in volume two as well. Um, and, you know, there's a few people that, you know, pop up over and over again. I mean, it's pretty crazy how some of these people are just, um, you know, very clearly underworld operators that are involved in a lot of illegal activity. And so I make the case, I guess, in volume two, that Epstein is one such, uh, one such figure, but he's coming from like a long line of people that are doing this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like Epstein is in no way an anomaly in that sense. He's stepping into a world where people, um, sir, you know, there were people before him that served the functions he served at certain times. And, you know, now that he's gone or whatever, you know, the establishment likes to say, Oh, well, 
naughty Epstein. Yes, we all know he was bad, but now he's gone. Everything's fine. Um, and that's not so because, you know, the same people that enabled him for a long time, you know, they, they existed before him and they continued to exist after he's gone. So in order to really, you know, flesh that out, you, you know, there's a lot that people kind of have to understand to make it all sort of click together, you know? Yeah, he's dead now. So you have to be careful. That's what Bill Gates says when they when they question him about it on mainstream. I mean, if they question him, he's like, he's dead. It doesn't matter. You know? Yeah. He's like, so you got to be careful. You got to be careful. Don't want to end up like uh, Epstein didn't hang himself. Um, the idea of the um, the continuity of characters in play. There's a lot of overlap. Right before I read your books, I had read some books on 9-11. I wrote a book, uh, read a book on the shadow arms trade. All the same people were involved, ironically enough, whether it's the shadow yeah. arms trade. Uh, I forget. I mean, I had the book here. I was going to show you. Um, but it was just ironic because I didn't think those two things were going to connect so strongly. And then when you read the shadow arms trade book, you also see a lot of overlaps with your book and the Prince, uh, Prince yeah. Andrew, the biggest arms right. dealer in Britain and how the U.S. and mm -hmm. U.K. have been arms dealing like with Adnan Khashoggi way back in the 80s mm -hmm. and uh, Bandar's role in the, so, yeah. like, uh, getting the bribes lined up. Um, I want to yeah. go back. Let's go back in the timeline to where you started your book. You started it with Operation Underworld. Now, yeah. on our side, it starts in like 1941, 1942, British Security Coordination and Rockefeller Center. That's in the beginning of your book. I was so excited to see that. But I also thought, I wonder if she knows that Meyer Lansky started working with MI6 in 1938 in preparation to get the Americans in bed with organized crime in the first place. Oh, no, I didn't actually know that. But I mean, that makes a lot of sense because I sort of um, noted in the book that the justification for um, Operation Underworld was that, you know, this argument about German saboteurs and all of that. And there was no real evidence for it. Mm. Uh, but it turns out that that was basically seeded by British intelligence. And then that's the justification for getting the Office of Naval Intelligence with the OSS somewhere in the background, basically, you know. Uh, formally uh, aligning themselves and then it, you know, gets pretty big from there on out. The Irregulars by Jeanette Conan is uh, it covers Ian Fleming, Roald Dahl and uh, the other guy who has the marketing company, Ogilvy, David Ogilvy. Yeah. Uh, British spies in America working under Nelson Rockefeller out of Rockefeller Center with British security coordination. I had done a bunch of research. I probably bought 40 books on BSC and, um, x2 and double cross system and uh like all those overlaps of the anglo-american establishment because behind that is like the people who made money from opium monopoly once upon a time yeah and then yeah. those front companies hsbc and those other companies are still existing you're writing yeah. about them in here and they have a long history so i was just like you had me at hello let me go open volume one here now i'm going to explain real quick just for the listeners at home when i get a book like this it doesn't come like this with all these tabs. It doesn't come all highlighted and all the good stuff marked, right? It's like naked when you get it. So the first thing I do is I open it up, I read the cover page, and then I see who published it, when was it published, right? For this is the first edition, by the way. I'd like to get an autograph someday with me, but there's some <laughs> sure. logistical issues. And then I <laughs> well, read I'll be through. in the States uh, yeah. in October, so maybe. Awesome. Tour, tour. All right, so index. <laughs> I like to read through the index. People tell me what's in the books with the index. That's cool. And then I dig into like chapter one. Oh, after, you know, I read the foreword, all that good stuff. Right. So you get into the underworld and you start breaking it open. And I made that note about 1938 and MI6 and you get into these shadowy alliances. So for the, for the folks at home, 
Why would intelligence, U.S. and British intelligence, get in bed with organized crime? So like I mentioned a second ago, the official justification of Operation Underworld was that there was alleged concerns about German saboteurs and New York docks that were going to cause damage to ships. Um, there was the sinking of a particular ship that instigated this, but there, it, it, you know, there was no evidence of it actually having been a German saboteur. And it seems like that narrative was basically seeded by British intelligence. And so what they wanted to do then was go and get um, make some sort of deal with the dock workers in order to get some sort of intelligence, I guess, from dock workers. And the dock worker union at the time was controlled by organized crime, which was true for pretty much most unions in New York um, at that point in time. And as a result of that, since unions are basically the power base of the Democratic Party in this era, they control the New York Democratic Party. So one thing I didn't note there, but it gets um, noted in Chapter four is that the mayor of New York at this time is a guy named William O'Dwyer, who's intimately involved with the mob at this point in his career as well. And he's sort of one of these pro uh, former prosecutors, Thomas Dewey being another one who get famous on locking up organized crime figures. But then a few years later, they get propelled up into politics with this tough on crime reputation around them. And then they end up becoming business associates of organized crime. A modern day example of that same model is Rudy Giuliani, 100 percent. But people like William O'Dwyer and, and Thomas Dewey are earlier examples. And of course, Thomas Dewey was a key part himself of Operation Underworld. And one of the, the key figures in it, Lucky Luciano, who Thomas Dewey had locked away, it was his office that basically arranged this deal with Operation Underworld, which eventually you know, led to a reduction in Luciano's prison sentence. And then he set over to Italy, which is sort of like the next stage of Operation Underworld. But originally it was justified as wartime necessity. And it's only going to be the stuff on the docks and it's not going to get bigger than that. You know, but obviously it never stays like that because it ended up being, you know, basically symbiosis uh, when these when these groups got together. Because if you look at early intelligence, um, you know, it's basically the the oligarchy in the U.S., you know, people like William Donovan or Alan Dulles, all these people are like very connected to like the oligarch families of the U.S., uh, Wall Street and all of that. So, you know, there's always this. Uh, subtext from the earliest days of American intelligence with business, right? The heights of business, the financial elite. And so, you know, they're interested in, in maintaining their, their wealth and their power. And they're willing to deal with whoever to maintain that or to expand that. And so it, it, it really isn't that surprising once you know that sort of background, why they would team up, you know, but for the people maybe lower down in military intelligence at the time, it was a hard sell. So, you know, they made certain narratives to sell it like the German saboteur stuff, or it's only going to be for this long, but you know, it's very possible that from the earliest stages, there were some people who were like, yeah, this is just how it's going to be, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The, the fact that the British would want to help us uh, protect against German saboteurs is interesting because they needed German saboteurs to get the Americans into the war on the side of the British. Right. right. So, the, so the British always through his, not always, but often through history, create a false proxy. So they, so they can come help us with that proxy that they're in control of. Yeah. Yes, and there's a lot right. of history of that from <laughs> like world war one, world war two, mm -hmm. although may all the way up through maybe nine 11. But th th these are advanced ideas. And on page six, you said only the Rockefellers were conspicuously absent from the OSS, right? And so people think these intelligence agencies don't have direct connection to those ruling families because they're not, they're not, they're not present, right? But in my mind, 
The Rockefellers helped to fund the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the CFR and the CIA services those agencies, those organizations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They have connections. But also, I think I noted in the book that um, at least some of the Rockefellers basically were running a private intelligence apparatus themselves during the war. So, you know, we sort of think of American intelligence a lot of times, you know, the CIA or whatever is like, you know, a monolith. But a lot of times these families or other powerful groups, they basically have their own private intelligence um, apparatus that align or collaborate, you know, with different intelligence agencies or even maybe work against, you know, the intelligence agencies of the country in which they're they're housed, you know. Yeah. But like I said, I would. mm -hmm. Because people, they they track like mafia families and stuff like that on their radar, but they don't know the origin of these intelligence agencies. And when you look at like MI6 is City of London bankers and OSS is Wall Street lawyers and these two groups Mm -hmm. interact together in certain ways, then it's much more clearly. But they haven't had like a Godfather series to paint it out like this is like the script to that series. This could be like a, a series. Yeah, I mean, that would be cool because, you know, a lot of people don't like to read. So at some point, you know, to get this information really out there, it's got to be audio visual for people. I mean, that's just uh, the nature of the game, I guess. But yeah, um, I I think a lot of people don't really understand like what the CIA is. You know, at the the point we're talking about here, the CIA didn't exist, right? We're talking about the organizations that eventually, um, you know, lead to its creation. But, you know, a lot of people see it as, you know, um, some basically the head maybe of the U.S. national security state, but it's always been beholden to private financial interests, not unlike, you know, the Federal Reserve and like other institutions with a lot of power in the United States. They're not necessarily, um, you know, they have people behind them and they always have, I guess you could say that are private interests, basically the oligarchy. I mean, I feel like it's an easy way for people to understand if it's easier to understand if you describe the CIA sort of as like the secret police of, you know, wall street banking families and stuff like that. And and I also like how you, you caught the connection because right here on page six, early in the book, you're catching it. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller is sponsoring BSC, British Security Coordination, in mm-hmm. Rockefeller Center in America. So that is like their own private intelligence agency being created. And when yeah. the American side, we see Donovan, OSS. But what we don't see is Sir William Stevenson, who's from MI6, that comes in and gives Donovan all his power, good ideas, all these things, mm-hmm. right? And then yeah. that- Oh, I do talk about that. I think that they had a lot of connections between them, Stevenson and Donovan. No, that's what I'm saying. Like so many oh, other yeah. people would just leave that part out. And you're saying it wasn't just Donovan and the OSS. Like this isn't just an American thing that's going on. It's an international thing. And part of the, the other special relationship thing is they speak the same language as us and they've been getting closer and closer and closer. This is one of the first elements of um, post-World War One, going into World War II, when they're making OSS, this is like uh, the healing of the wound of the revolution. They are now back. They're in our intelligence agency. They're showing us how to set stuff up over here. And in that way, yeah. CIA, OSS was always subservient to British influence because they had a lot more inter- like they had a lot more experience in spycraft than the mm-hmm. American side did. So we were always kind of at a disadvantage and you, you marshal this uh, very well. And you're talking about the relationship that Stevenson, Sir William Stevenson developed with J. Edgar Hoover. Right. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this goes on in your, in your timeline. Uh, it, there wasn't a date, but I know that they, uh, British intelligence had been meeting with Hoover right before Pearl Harbor because um, British intelligence was running a couple different Ivar, uh, Ivar and Tricycle, I think were the two agents. And they had gotten these questionnaires from the Japanese 
on bombing Pearl Harbor. And the British knew this. So in August 1941, they knew we were going to be hit, but they say they couldn't tell us because they're in this new special relationship. They didn't want us to know they were running those spies. So like deception on their side to get closer to us has been like a theme. And I think it all comes together with Operation Underworld. And uh, that's um, a brilliant place to start the story is what I'm saying. Thanks. So um, if you're talking about Mayor Lansky, what you mentioned that I didn't know before about uh, him and British intelligence in 1938, that's around the same time also that J. Edgar Hoover was sexually blackmailed by Mayor Lansky. And this eventually gets into the hands of people like uh, James Jesus Angleton and people like that gets passed around. It was like a sexual blackmail photo. So basically, you know, Lansky uh, had a lot of leverage over Hoover at that point in time uh, already. And if there was that relationship with him and British intelligence in the back, I mean, that would definitely add some context to what you just mentioned about the J. Edgar Hoover's uh, well, dealings. Well, you like that, I'll go back to my part. note on this page, which was uh, this relationship between American intelligence, Hoover, FBI, OSS, and uh, was managed by Stevenson. They had a group called the 20 Committee or the double cross committee or the double cross Mm -hmm. system XX, right? So it's 20 in Roman numerals, but it's also double cross the American elements X two. Angleton is the representative from American intelligence that interfaces with the Anglo American intelligence. And interestingly enough, Angleton grew up speaking with an English accent because he was educated in London. And so for the top mole in our intelligence system to be servicing MI6 and Mossad at the same time. Yeah, because I was about to say he was also the liaison to to Israel as well. So he's an interesting figure, Engleton, for sure. Yeah, he led mole hunts for years and he was the mole. Mm -hmm. And uh, Epstein, Edward J. Epstein wrote, uh, I think, two books that I have here on Angleton. Uh, deception and one of the other ones. So Angleton in and of, um, of himself in this is interesting, but prior to Angleton, there's already operation underworld and these guys right. are, they're making money from the heroin trade, the the nascent cocaine trade. Cause it wasn't as big back then, but heroin was huge. Yeah. Then. Yeah. That was the main one. And like right. you mentioned earlier, a lot of the, in terms of the British stuff, a lot of like the powerful families behind this and behind, you know, they were very involved with opium trades and, uh, Hong Kong and around there, very involved with the the KMT, which later, you know, becomes is still, I guess, one of the That's main parties got, yeah. in Taiwan. Okay, yeah. <laughs> who was a Kuomintang? Because this is a section I wasn't, uh, I, I didn't understand the Rockefeller China connection to this. I knew about Rockefeller China education and medical, but I didn't get this whole KMT connection. Can you explain that to the audience? Uh, so my. My the the detail recall on this is going to be a little. Uh, That's spotty. why they have to read the book. Just give them the preview. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So. Um. Uh, you might have caught me on something. I'm. I'm blanking on. I might have to. We can move on. Read okay, up really I'll, quick. Me, no, sorry about that. Let me. Let me just read a paragraph for the for the folks at home. Just it's a thousand pages. You might have picked the one. No, I, that's a good. <laughs> I, I, I got wrote like a year and a half ago on main core base. Lawrence is like main core base. I was like, what? I'm like, it wasn't registering. So I got caught live last week. Now you're human. I'm human. We're good. Support for the <laughs> Kuomintang opium monopoly came from Western mon- modernizers, including the Rockefeller Foundation, which is set up shop uh, right. in China in the 1910s with the creation of the China Medical Board. Now, I got the uh, history of the Rockefeller Foundation by Raymond Fosdick. He was the chairman of the foundation. He wrote the history. He says how they modernized and standardized Rockefeller medicine in China. So the Wuhan lab today Mm -hmm. is a legacy of 100 years ago, Rockefeller Foundation set up in uh, China. 
Through this apparatus, the Rockefeller Foundation undertook efforts to promote modern science, develop medical education programs, and set up yeah. hospitals. It's it's likely that this foundation support for opium monopolization was intricately bound up with their health crusade, since opium had important, wide-ranging medicinal yeah. applications. That's a fantastic observation, and not many people would also tie them to the laws on the opium trafficking and things like that later. So they don't see that. And uh, to be honest, when I started learning about the Rockefeller family, I thought it was so cliche because people were like, Rockefeller's control stuff. I was like, nah, whatever. Then I started reading into it and get their history. I'm like, <laughs> they're a really crafty family and they're really yeah. woven throughout this entire book. So um, I guess I have egg on my face for not remembering no, no, their no, first no. like <laughs> main mention. But yeah, so you'd mentioned the medical stuff. And yeah, so the opium thing was sort of segued through then. But obviously, you know, it's a lot of this stuff has evolved uh, since that point in time. But I mean, th this is just one of many families that were capitalizing on opium um, and making deals with the KMT. Um, and then you and, connected it to the Sassoons. So Kumantan. Yeah, but I feel like that was pretty well known, though. Well, I missed out on the KMT connection to the Sassoons. But did you did you know about the Sassoons marrying into the Rothschild family? I think I learned this from a video of yours that you sent me okay. a few right, weeks right ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so. on their time. So when I got into that, I was like, no way. They're dealing with the opium warlord of Baghdad. And then like 20, 30 years later, I'm like, no way. The son married into the Rothschild family. And today, the heir of Rothschild, Sassoon, and John Ford, uh, there's an actor. I forget his last, the first name. But there's a modern day actor who played like uh, Ben-Hur. And if you look up his family lineage, it goes to yeah. Sassoon, Rothschild, and the, uh, uh, you know, Sean Houston. John Houston, because it's Angelica Houston's involved. Anyway, long history of opium supporters. Um, I'm, uh, I, I really thought it was great that you took it from the mob ties to, like, there's some more historical ties that go back into the East, East yeah. India Company. And after so, East India Company, they make these oil companies. Yeah. Yeah. Now at the Jardine Matheson level. So Jardine Matheson was one of these uh, privateers. Cause I think 1832, the British empire says we can have privateers smuggle opium. Jardine Matheson is created. A whole bunch of these companies are created. Skull and bones is created that year too. Um, Jardine Matheson's current incarnation is Jardine Fleming. They, mm -hmm. they went with Ian Fleming's grandfather's bank, Robert Fleming and company. And they merged cause he was a Scottish opium money launderer. And they were the shipping magnates. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. So, but my point would be, this seems like ancient history, 1800s, 1900s, but you see it's still going on today. And so you keep laying the foundation well, it, for yeah. people to understand mm -hmm. what's going on today with HSBC and the Royal family and things like this. This is, I think, a master. Well, a lot of these companies, Hardeen Matheson and also the uh, Hong Kong and what you have up there, Wampoa company, that stuff ends up popping up surprisingly enough with this Epstein uh, Clinton white house stuff uh, mm -hmm. that was going on. So, you know, I ended up going back and adding some of this, even though it like predates, I guess you could say, um, Operation Underworld. It shows that a lot of these oligarchs have been there a really long time and they're really, there's a lot of continuity between the way back when and the now even, right? Yeah, especially so, the now, because mm -hmm. this is where the the now got its power. So Hong Kong, Shanghai Banking Corporation back in the day, smuggling opium and laundering money and these sort of things, they were still doing it in 2012. And then they said, FBI director Comey is going to be on your board of directors and make sure you guys don't do it again. And then HSBC gave a hundred million dollars to Hillary Clinton and they just pay their fee 
and, and keep going. I interviewed a, a right, whistleblower right. from HSBC, John Cruz, and he explained the whole thing. He's like, they pay 10% of what they're laundering to the government and they could just keep doing it. And that's why they had to pay $2.3 billion because they were laundering yeah. like $23 billion of money. Well, I can't remember if it's in this chapter, but it's somewhere near the beginning of the book. I note that it's just really crucial at this point, the drug trade to the financial system. Like a lot of major banks would collapse if they didn't have the money from the drug trade to count on in terms of like the money they get from, uh, you know, money laundering and like all sorts of other like illegal cash flows. They're like really dependent on it. And like in 2008, I can't remember the source I cite, uh, but there were a few banks that apparently avoided going under precisely for that reason. Right. So, I mean, I think a lot of people sort of uh, dismiss uh, how central this is to the modern financial system and really how you know, this is really pretty much how it's been for, I guess, hundreds of years at this point in terms of its effect on the banking system. You can't, these people can't let the drug trade go, you know, because it just means the whole thing collapses ultimately. Well, I think it was a, uh, the Mike Rupert truth and lies of nine 11, where he had a clip of, of Catherine Austin Fitz talking about the Solari index and, um, and how things had changed. Like uh, there was a whole, oh, I lost the soundbite. I had her soundbite in my head, but this has been observed. She said, if you, if you took the drug trading, if there's a button right here and you stopped all the narco terrorism and drug trading, you could do it, but it would crash your 401k. It would crash your stock market. It would crash all these other would things. Would you press the button? Much. Right. And that yeah. was her big, like uh, moral conundrum for society. You, you tie that in with things like MK ultra right here. And as I'm reading through MK Ultra, I'm like, okay, she's she's got this. Okay, uh, hallucinogenic substances while being monitored from behind two-way mirrors. So I write Operation Midnight Climax. And then I get down two, par two paragraphs, and you're like, Operation Midnight Climax. I'm like, good, we're on the same page. So I just keep reading through this book, and it's hundreds of pages, so I'm not going to get to every page, but I wanted to give people a good start. So the key to this is... The blue tabs are interesting, but the red tabs are supposed to be really interesting. And there's almost as many red tabs in this book as there are the blue tabs that help me understand what the red tabs mean. So I want to go to a couple of these pages and just see what was so interesting. And oh, Roy Cohn. Jesus Christ. Yeah, Roy crazy Cohn. guy, huh? It's Whoa. amazing. More people don't know about him because he's Donald Trump's mentor. And so you think mainstream media would have given this guy a lot more coverage or like looked into what he was doing more. I mean, the fact that he's like basically ad ad admitted to you top like NYPD detectives that he was like trafficking underage boys for sex blackmail. I mean, uh, I mean, I know in the book there's like lots of evidence for it and um, not a blip from mainstream media. Wouldn't they have loved, you know, during one of the campaigns to be like, oh, yeah, Trump's mentor was a was a pedo. And, you know, sex blackmailing pedo. No, they don't even bring it up at all. They just write up Roy Cohn as like a quirky uh, mob lawyer. And like, no, yeah. <laughs> it's like way more complex than that. It's like saying and, Jimmy Savile was just a ch children's entertainer. Yeah, basically. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. So, yeah. you know, with Roy Cohn, I go pretty deep, um, much deeper than his biographer, Nicholas von Hoffman, oddly enough. Um, but I start with his uh, his parents, really, because I feel like they really give you really good insight into how power works in New York City uh, during this period of time in these in these circles particularly political power and in how like a person like Roy Cohn was made because why, this is like when he's a kid, all he cares about is like wheeling and dealing with powerful people that are like three times his age and stuff. Like he doesn't want to do regular kid stuff. He like, he wants power and he wants money. Well, not really so much money as power. He's like 
power hungry from as like a little kid. It's really bizarre. Yeah. But it makes sense. Money, you you would go be an entrepreneur. If you want power, you would bug these rooms at the Plaza Hotel and the Blue Suites. Yeah. Well, it's not clear that this uh, particular sex blackmail operation that had parties at the Plaza Hotel's Blue Suite, um, who exactly was running it. But it seems like you have been an organized crime thing because you have a lot of people that are tied up with this particular group of organized crime, like Louis Rosensteel and Roy Cohn apparently attended this a lot. And it's not. And Cardinal Spellman was there and they're all part of the same social network, but it's not exactly clear, like who was running it who was controlling the blackmail, who was paying for it. It probably Epstein. Yeah, it's very similar. But these types of stories are like all over this book in volume one before you even get to Epstein. Right. Um, And it's it's really pretty crazy. And um, it's really hard to know exactly who was running it. But basically, J. Edgar Hoover was very involved and he'd already been compromised at this point. So a lot of these guys are already very. you know, just very uh, heavily involved in sexual blackmail. And this is um, allegedly an operation that was directly related to the McCarthy hearings in which Roy Cohn was involved at the time. He was top counsel to, to McCarthy during, during those hearings and blackmail is a major subtext to that, including uh, sexual blackmail. There were all these, it was basically a giant power struggle in Washington all the time. Um, David Talbot in his book on Ellen Dulles talks a lot about the power struggles between McCarthy and Ellen Dulles, obviously, and how there was a sexual blackmail um, to that as well. But also you have like Roy Cohn and Louis Rosensteel and J. Edgar Hoover, who were another power block trying to use sexual blackmail to, to, as part of that same uh, power struggle of the period. Um, and then you have the lavender scare happening at the same time, which was, you know, instead of targeting alleged communists, it's targeting a, alleged homosexuals. It, with the concern that homosexuals are susceptible to blackmail, but the people who were saying that were actually, you know, were actually homosexuals blackmailing other homosexuals. I mean, it's just really crazy story. And, you know, it's totally not common knowledge, even for people who know something about the McCarthy hearings. I mean, it's really a wild story. Well, it's also that these things started, you know, came onto the radar in America at a certain time. And prior to that time, it was already a thing in British intelligence to compromise people with blackmail and sexuality. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, Alan Dulles got caught in a honey trap in 1916 by British intelligence when he was in Switzerland. And that's where the Anglo-American allegiance prior to Versailles really started was they're like, we got one of your guys. Cause the Dulles family has a very interesting family history of people in statecraft and state yeah, department right. mm-hmm. prior to them. Yeah, it was like his grandfather, I think, right? Yeah. was a big guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's move on to uh, your first mention of this. The Sovereign Military Order of Malta was on page 88, <laughs> but I noticed a lot of these people in these networks, especially involved with the sexual blackmail, happen to all be in some honorary chivalric club. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Uh, yeah, you either get like, there's a lot of Knights of Malta and there's a lot of Benai Brith that popped up in with the people in this book. And it's it's really interesting um, but I breath for people that don't know a lot of people equate them to sort of like Jewish Freemasons. They're basically, they're a self-described secret society, but it's like a Jewish fraternal organization. And so, but I mean, I feel like the Freemason con- comparison is fair. Cause I mean, it's lodges, right. And Roy Cohn's father ran the biggest lodge for like most of the early 20th century. So that's kind of a big deal. And you have a lot of people, very powerful people in the book, in the, in the Epstein 
circuit involved with that uh like edgar bromfman leslie wexner is in, involved to an extent um uh Ed, Ed, edmund safra a lot of these uh powerful guys and then you have the knights of malta which are sort of like the catholics i guess um but i mean it's all over iran contra stuff and uh, a lot of some of the other controversies of that era uh, that get covered in the book like uh, covenant house and you know some of these other groups that have a lot of intelligence links and are also involved in some weird you know sex trafficking or you know abuse of minors sexually and all this stuff so yeah there seems to be these weird uh, orders that just pop up over and over again. <laughs> and I, I figured why not include them? You know, I don't necessarily know exactly why that is, but I think it's relevant to know for sure. Yeah. And I don't know what it means, but I take it as it's not like uh, about truth, justice and the American way. I take it more of it's an international allegiance that supersedes American anything mm-hmm. right? when it's going on over here, at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing I wanted to ask you from that same page set, this is page 89, you'd brought up uh, the bank of Edmund de Rothschild. And my first thought was he he helped to set up Soros's quantum fund in 1968. And that's a he he set up a lot of people, though, like uh, Robert Vesco, who gets a who's a white collar criminal, pretty notorious, who gets a lot of cover in the book. He was also basically his career was made by the Rothschild family in a lot of these same uh, banks, oddly enough. And um, it's it's interesting. There's several people that have sort of that uh, claim to fame, I guess you could say, that pop up here. And a lot of them end up being financial criminals um, or, you know, corporate raiders, quote unquote, which is, you know, there's not much difference between the two terms, to be honest. Um, but, yeah. So, I mean, what I was trying to do here, you know, a lot of people roll their eyes when they hear that particular family name, but they are a banking family. Um, And there are some articles before it was controversial to mention them, even from the New York Times in the 80s that I I cite quite a lot. That's about Robert Peary, who was running uh, the Rothschild branch on Wall Street in the, I guess, um, from the 80s uh, through the 90s. And I mean, they basically are very open that the Rothschild family um, has been very interested in expanding and maintaining their influence over society. I mean, it's the New York Times. I mean, if it was published today, it'd be called anti-Semitic 100%, but it's the New York Times, uh, you know, basically saying it straight by, by quoting, you know, members of the family. It's sort of like when you think of David Rockefeller's memoirs and he's like, yes, uh, we are trying to make global government and I'm proud, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but I mean, they don't really hide it. You know, so, you know, I'm trying not to get into conspiracy territory, quote unquote, conspiracy territory. But there, there, there is a wealth of documented stuff about how this particular family should be treated like any other oligarch family, you know, that has had a damaging influence on society. Right. So anyway, they pop up uh, quite a bit in the book and it really shouldn't surprise anyone. It seems like Robert Maxwell was, you know, another one of these figures besides Soros, who was owed a, owed a lot to that particular banking family as well. Yeah. So, uh, that was interesting. And I liked how you tracked that because I wasn't, I wasn't aware of um, uh, Rothschild working with Vesco and then uh, Peary. My thinking was Rothschild Inc. They, they bailed out Trump in 1991. And so Wilbur Ross and Rothschild Inc. bailed him out. And then Trump appointed Ross the commerce secretary to pay back that debt. Mm -hmm. So it just goes to show it's like, whether it's right or left, if it progresses their agenda, they're backing it. It's it's politically independent because they kind of control the the spectrum. Yeah, totally. Well, the Trump thing is a whole 
you know, other, other thing to get into, but, you know, basically I would say that he was very much involved in, in these networks of uh, Robert Maxwell, specifically in New York, uh, by the time Robert Maxwell ended up uh, dying. And then of course, you know, like you said, he was bailed out by the same bank that basically was using Robert Maxwell from 1990 to 1991 is like a major vehicle for expanding their influence in New York city. It seems like they may have, you know, uh, use Trump for that to some extent, you know, afterward by having leverage over him, uh, we rescued you financially and stuff. Um, but there's a lot to say about, you know, the, the Trump Epstein connection and the, you know, the Epstein Clinton connection, but they, they're very different connections. I think a lot of people assume it's all sex blackmail stuff, but you know, basically it's a lot more complicated than that at the end of the day, you know? But there is a lot of the sex blackmail stuff. So this one yeah, is sure. where Meyer Lansky by the 30s had acquired compromising evidence of Hoover's homosexual right. activities. Right. That's prior to the creation of the FBI. So when Hoover gets installed in like 36, 37 at FBI, Lansky and his MI6 cohorts that he was fronting for already had the goods. So I, yeah. I just think that. Uh, it was said, uh, Britishers who read American criticisms of the Profumo affair throw back the question. What high American official was involved with Marilyn Monroe? Now, what is the Profumo affair? Okay, so this was um, basically the scandal that took down, I guess it was the government of maybe bad with the name. Sorry about that, because I wrote this a while ago, but it was Harold McMillan's government, I believe. And so basically um, there was this girl named Christine Keeler, and she had a lot of very interesting relationships with interesting people. But basically she um, was sleeping with, um, I guess, a a military attache for the Soviet Union and the UK at the same time she was sleeping with uh, Profumo, whose first name I can't remember, sorry, but he was, I guess, the Secretary of War in Britain. And so um, this the scandal eventually comes out and she starts talking to the press oddly about her uh, affairs and all of this stuff. And it sort of, you know, explodes into a media scandal with the obviously sexual blackmail as a major subtext. And there's this guy that ends up being in the crosshairs who was very intimately involved with Keeler during this period, not necessarily in terms of an affair, but sort of seeming to sort of, you know, manage her to an extent named Stephen Ward, who was described as a society osteopath. And he got his first launch into British society through, I guess, uh, William Averill Harriman, who um, uh, trying to remember all the details on him, but I, I think he was very involved with like the Bush family and sort of like, uh, I guess, Nazi financing, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, definitely a controversial guy to say the very least. Um, I, I think under Kennedy, when all of this was going on, he was had some sort of role in the State Department. I, I, I don't think he was ambassador to the UK, but he had some other sort of um, No, I think role. he was uh, ambassador to the Soviet Union. I got him here because he comes from uh, E.A. Chairman was a railroad magnate who was funded by Thomas Fleming and company or Robert Fleming and company from Ian Fleming's mm-hmm. family. Right. Oh, right. Um, OK. So Harriman gets all this money from railroads. And then right after World War II, Harriman and a bunch of other people that helped to create the Federal Reserve create American International Corporation, AIC. And AIC mm-hmm. builds railroads and shipping for Russia and China to prepare for the Soviet experiment. And oh, I clicked on the wrong screen. So um, it's interesting because the Harrimans are Skull and Bones family. 
which ties back to the opium Anglo-American establishment kind of uh, mm -hmm. oligarchy. And then when they start to prepare for the Soviet experiment, they've got funding. And this is all st stuff that later Anthony C. Sutton caught on to. He's like, wait, there's a bunch of Westerners that set up all the infrastructure for Mao. And David Rockefeller said Mao was his, his greatest experiment. Right. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there is a lot of like that missing history. But when you get to the Harriman family, they also were eugenicists that funded Cold Spring Harbor. They also funded Hitler and the Nazis. They're working right there with uh, Prescott Bush and Nelson Rockefeller. And he's a very interesting character. And so are like his siblings and, you know, the people that came before him. Um, so yeah, fascinating connections because normally I wouldn't think of Avril Harriman being anywhere near the Epstein line of thought. Right. But um, you marshalling you had to go off into a lot of weird corners of this story to bring all this stuff together but i i think that yeah <laughs> the most comprehensive treatment because i've read you know burton hirsch's books and all the people that wrote all the stuff that you're talking about in here but you read all their books and then brought it all together you know what i'm saying yeah so i kind of like it's a meta it, i guess but I, yeah. this isn't the I, I talk about this in the chapter in Roy Cohn because there's some weird Roy Cohn FBI like Hoover involvement in all of this through an intermediary named Thomas Corbley. And yeah. he was uh, had a roommate that was part of the Mellon family, uh, Hitchcock Mellon, mm -hmm. I guess. And, um, you know, they were hosting these weird, you know, VIP sex orgy stuff. I mean, there was just like a ton of this stuff going on at the time. Thomas Corbley was an American. Um, he was a private detective with ties to organized crime. And then, you know, apparently military intelligence and it gets all involved with, um, um, you know, all of this stuff. And I guess you were pointing to there how he later gets involved with the, the Hollywood Madam Heidi, Heidi Fleiss later on and claimed to have brought back from Britain some of these sex blackmail rings and all of that. But one of these blackmail rings involves Stephen Ward. Uh, Thomas Corbley seems to have been involved and there was this uh woman sort of in the center of it named uh not just christine keeler there were like several other women that were novotny. being utilized by this group so one of them is mariella novotny uh or i guess stella marie capes is her original name and she was apparently with some guy uh harry allen towers a british guy taken to the u.s and basically um you know he was <laughs> running a a a one, you know, a harem for her, basically. And she allegedly slept with um, John F. Kennedy somewhere between him winning the election and before inauguration. And uh, so what you showed him a minute ago about this question about, you know, Marilyn Monroe, I forget exactly what the quote is. It's from a Peter Dale Scott book, um, but it's referring to hints in the newspapers that there was going to be an American involved in the Profumo affair. Like it seemed to have been a sexual blackmail attempt to take down uh, Kennedy before he even really got um, into office. And so oddly enough, you know, in, in, there's an investigation into this, but all these weird things happen. Apparently Novotny is like spirited out of the U S with the CIA's help onto some British ship. Um, and the FBI decides to just destroy her contact books, like her client lists and all of this stuff, which again, another parallel with the Epstein Maxwell stuff. I mean, people think, you know, where's the client list and all of that stuff. I mean, you're never going to see it because every time they've had one, they destroy it. You know, this is an early example. I think it's another, it's a parallel example to another person who slept with JFK, who was Mary Meyer. And it was her diary that Angleton and these guys were looking for. And she was brutally slain and her husband worked, uh, her Cordmeyer worked with the, uh, the people who probably killed Kennedy. 
So yeah. there's many parallels to this. You picking up on Kennedy's possible connection to the Profuma affair. I'd never heard any of that before. So that was really interesting. Um, the the Cor- Corbali's tied to the sex blackmail ring, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm digging it right through here. And then I flip the page, Whitney, and you like punch me in the stomach. And it says Jules Kroll of Kroll Associates. Is, uh, yeah, Corbally is, basically helped set up Crawl Associates. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, these are people that did 9-11. So I was like, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I didn't get really into the JFK assassination or 9-11 because that would have meant like 3,000 pages, yeah, 3, pages instead of 1,000. So you got a long life ahead of you to write about these things. But I was like, wow, you've got that connection. And you know who Jules Kroll is or was. I don't know if he's still alive. Uh, I enjoy Nick Kroll's comedy. No, I don't. I'm just saying that. I'm just saying that for the algorithm. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I look I at his shook, face. I shook my head. Like... I shook my head. No, when I said, um, "Cole Associates <laughs> is fascinating organization," and I'm glad that you just like blip them throughout the two volumes to pique people's interest and didn't try to like go into like what they do and where they're going and where they're taking us. Mm-hmm. But I found it interesting that they were in the middle of this sex blackmail thing as well. I didn't. I didn't have any. It wasn't on my radar until you put it there. And that's only 136 pages into it. I mean, so already you had taken me through a comfort zone where I'm like, yep, 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 yep. And then I'm like, what? And then it, then it keeps going. <laughs> I'm like, there's, you know, hundreds more pages. So if I go to another red tab up here, the Safari Club and the BCCI, I was like, hmm, I was not. Because I thought the Safari Club, I thought maybe it was like conspiracy theory. I hadn't seen a lot of good information on it. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a real thing, but it's another one. Georgetown university, Turkey bin Faisal. And I think he was the one that got killed in the desert. He had a strange death. I think. I can't, I can't remember. Sorry. But the safari club, um, what do you want to explain it in this relationship to BCCR? Would you like me to read some quotes? Uh, might have to read some quotes to jog uh, my memory. I should say too, that a lot of the stuff, um, some of the research on BCCI, I ran Contra and some of, um, and other parts of volume one, um, Ed Berger, who was an amazing researcher for deep politics stuff, uh, helped with a lot of that. So, you know, I can't uh, take credit for all the stuff in here. My acknowledgement page, unfortunately didn't get into the first edition, which is very sad, but um, yeah. So uh, I definitely, I should have probably said that shouted earlier, but if you read some quotes, I'm happy to. No, no, that's uh, fine. I'm going to go to the section here for the Safari Club. And I'm going to go to the next page, but real quick. Uh, the Safari Club was uh, set up and its name is Safari Club because of the location. So down here at the yeah, bottom. Yeah, it was a it was a place in Kenya that Adnan Khashoggi bought, right? Yeah. And, um, he wanted to make it, you know, it, it originally had a very interesting clientele and he, you know, Khashoggi wanted to make it more exclusive and by more exclusive, he wanted to basically make it a, a, a hub of meeting, of, I guess, a meeting place of different intelligence agencies and sort of uh, shadow brokers in the world of like offshore finance and arms trafficking where he could, you know, maneuver around. Yeah, he's like, we need a, a Bilderberg or Davos for arms tracker, traffickers yeah, basically, nar- that's narco-terrorists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so Turkey Bin Faisal dis- uh, discussed the club and its activities during a speech at Georgetown University. And when I turned that page, I was like, what am I going to read? And so, <laughs> right, because I, I was like, this is like, this is new to me. In 1976, after the Watergate matters took place, your, your intelligence community uh, was literally tied up by Congress. 
So he's speaking as a foreigner. He's like, Hey, everything I tied up a lot of red tape because of Watergate. It could not do anything. It could not send spies. It could not write reports and it could not pay money in order to compensate for that group of countries. Got, uh, in order to compensate for that, the group of countries got together in the hope of fighting communism and established what they called the Safari club. The Safari club included France, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, and Iran. The principal aim of this club was that we would share information with each other and help each other in countering the Soviet influence worldwide, especially in Africa. So that, so Khashoggi's like, hey, we can make our own Operation Gladio and we can do it under the, the guise <laughs> yeah. of fighting communism, but we're going to get into analogy. a whole bunch of money laundering, <laughs> Iran-Contra, a whole bunch of, you know, stuff that P- Americans know. Well, they, you know, the CIA traded some drugs for arms with the Contra people, but they don't get the worldwide aspect. They don't get the multinational influence of not just BCCI, which is a Pakistani drug cartel bank set up by MI6, but also all these other connections with Saudi Arabia and Iran and Israel and arms yeah, well, dealing. a lot of the, the groups that are like officially part of the Safari Club have a lot of relation. You know, you could say Saudi Arabia is a, a proxy for U.S. and British interests. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and Iran during this time, this is under the Shah. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of pull there um, from, di- you know, different governments outside of the Middle East, obviously. So, uh, you know, it's definitely you're going to see more than just the official players, quote unquote, official players in the Safari Club at work in this, um, in this particular network. So, uh, the quote I have here is, let's see, Adnan, arms dealer at large, Adnan Khashoggi, uh, Khashoggi, uh, the Safari Club owed much to Khashoggi. The name of the group mm-hmm. had come from its first meeting place, the Mount Kenya Safari Club in Nanyuki, Kenya, which Khashoggi had purchased in the 1970s. So prior to Iran-Contra uh, and prior to his deals with Trump, because I think Trump bought uh, his boat, right? There's his a, yacht. His in yacht. The 80s. And then Trump sells it to Bin Talal, his Twitter enemy, right, later. So there's and yeah. Sultan of Brunei is in there <laughs> as well. And the thing that I always found interesting when I – because I think it was called uh, Khashoggi's was Nobila and then Trump called it the princess and then Bin Talal calls it the MK five or whatever they call it. Right. So when you trace the arms dealing people who have this yacht and it's traded for these millions and millions of dollars and uh, you know uh, the Sultan of Brunei is in there, but he's the same Sultan that said, you guys owe me money from Iran Contra, but then they give it like the boat goes transfer. There's a lot of interesting connections of how, uh, the back room dealing is paid off. Like if you're owed money, they might give you $20 million off a boat, right? Mm-hmm. You still have to pay 30 million for the boat, but you're getting it at a, you know, a discount and these sort of things. So there's anyway, uh, these people that live that jet set life arms deal, like they can't, they're untouchable. They can fly into various countries. They can do all these different things that are just off the radar and unreportable by us media. You're never going to get the the truth of Adnan Khashoggi or any of these characters through like watching the news, right? They're always going to give right. you what Adnan Khashoggi's PR people paid them to say. Um, one of the main biographers of of Khashoggi is a guy named Ronald Kessler, and Kessler is a guy that like does official biographies for the CIA and the FBI and gets all these like the special access to people, but only when he like gives them give them, gives them the narrative they want out there. You know what I mean? So he's like a very, you know, the fact that he's the main biographer of Khashoggi should be concerning to some people, I would say, because there's obviously a lot more to the guy that uh, doesn't end up in that book. And that seems to be true for, you know, the official biographies of a lot of these, a lot of these characters more often than not. 
But speaking about the yacht really quick, I yeah. Khashoggi used that yacht for sexual blackmail to a significant degree. I mean, it seems like he basically had like a harem of women there uh, that would be used to basically um, for lack of a better term, sort of like butter up people that Adnan Khashoggi wanted leverage over. And that included, you know, people, businessmen that he wanted deals with or whatever, but also people in the public sector. Right. So it's interesting how, you know, this is just sexual blackmail, all of the stuff. I mean, for people to think Epstein's an anomaly, it's just a recurring theme with this group. I mean, they all do it. Yeah. I think the thing that I was mentioning was uh, 85 million for the yacht <laughs> Nabila which was owned by Khashoggi, which becomes the Trump prince princess. So 85 million down to 20, 29 million. And in the middle, I think was the Sultan of Brunei along the way. And then it finally, yeah, and I think during Bin this Talal. period, the Sultan of Brunei is also Epstein's landlord. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. I, right. So there, but whether Weird connections, so when you look at this data set, I can't tell if it's Epstein now or Iran Contra, you know, there's, or BCCI, there's a lot of overlap now. And I, this whole, totally. Uh, sex blackmail there <laughs> going on with the same coterie or cabal of people is a very interesting new layer that shows how they attain, maintain, and retain power. And I think it's been off the American yeah. radar completely, pretty much. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I mean, that's, you know, why I think my uh, the books are important is because, you know, if you especially, I mean, if you don't read volume one, you're going to miss out on, you know, why Jeffrey Epstein is actually really important. And it's not because of his sex crimes from 2001, 2006, which is all most people talk about when it comes uh, to Epstein. You know, he's definitely really involved with stuff going in arms trafficking during the Iran-Contra period, BCCI type stuff. And, you know, a lot of these people in his immediate network, like the Maxwells, for example, a big part, it played a big role in the promise software. And I would really say after writing the book that, you know, BCCI, Iran Contra in the promise software, they all really just seem like parts of a bigger scandal. I mean, they're basically the same scandal, just different facets of it, you know? Um, yeah. It's really hard. And then that's why I think what you mentioned earlier, how it just all sort of starts to merge together. I mean, it really is the same, you know, business right the same racket at the end of the day yeah and the national security element of that racket right that veneer that says you can't look here because it's national security that was created by clark clifford in 1947 national security act yeah. but he's also in bcci but in between bcci and the creation of national security act he did the report for uss liberty so there's also like you know, I didn't know that. State, wow, that's telling. Nation state number three, right? So it's like not just the UK, because a lot of this is like UK infiltrating and doing these things. Um, but there's also uh, a third state actor. But that comes up, I think, maybe more in volume two. Um, I wanted to ask you about this part. I was surprised to see this part about uh, the death of, of uh, Kiki Camarena. Enrique Kiki Camarena, who was uh, worked at the U.S. consulate in Mexico for the Drug Enforcement Agency. He was tortured. Well, he's kidnapped, brutally tortured. They taped, they tape recorded the torture. There's transcripts of the torture. And then they discarded his body like in the in the desert. For that storyline to intersect here, again, I was very surprised because I'd looked a great deal into this and how it was covered up and all these sort of things. And I think it's, um, I think it's the bottom level of like uh, this, this whole structure. So connecting it into like the, the cartels and that level of American intelligence, not just working with Sicilian mafia, but working with Mexican cartels to kill its own people 
and sure. to figure out like because Camarena was dra- he was he was he was debilitating <clears throat> their their economics. He was a very smart investigator. He's like, oh, we can do this, but he didn't know what he was doing was actually the people who work above him. That's their enterprise. Yeah, and he got he got caught in the middle of that, and the yeah, it didn't work out well for him. Yeah, well, a lot of the stuff. So Iran Contra and the Promise Software scandal. You see the card, the drug cartels, mainly Mexican and Colombian cartels. They play a huge role in both of those, and that's why I say like these are all really. It's really all the same scandal. Um, at the end of the day, so you know the people that uh, were allegedly responsible for Camarena's. Um, Death had been tapped by the enterprise, the National Security Council CIA uh, group, I guess, responsible for Iran-Contra to help finance Contra activities through illicit means. And, you know, basically this happened because Congress restricted um, the ability to send lethal aid to the Contras, but they allowed humanitarian aid at some point. And so, you know, basically Bill Casey, William Casey I felt like his, you know, Congress was tying his hands and that he needed to continue to finance these groups, whether in Nicaragua or elsewhere, and needed a way to finance all of these covert activities, you know, covert warfare all over the globe, really, without Congress having to get involved and without uh, having to get congressional approval or presidential approval, you know, basically just do whatever he wanted. Right. Um, And not have to worry about oversight because he doesn't have to get the funds from anyone. So if you can get the funds from, you know, drug trafficking, arms trafficking, whatever, any sort of illegal activity, then the profits from that can be used to finance these black ops, right? Or these covert ops in different places in the world. But I mean, this, this type of alliance between, you know, like we talked about earlier in the early part of the book, I talk about how all these guys are, you know, involved, have their hands in the drug trade, you know, from the very beginning. So for them, it's not weird to have this type of alliance. It's just weird for the American public that's been sold a fairy tale version of how all this works, right? And that we spend, you know, so much money on stopping drugs and all of this stuff when really that's no. not what's going on at, at all. The people that get arrested for for drug trafficking and those crimes are just competition for the big guys. Right. <laughs> you know, this is a consolidation uh, for them. So those drug laws exist to keep their competition out of the way. But the, if you've noticed, no matter how strict the drug laws get, it continues. And it's because, like we mentioned earlier, it's essential uh, to uh, intelligence agencies and the financial system system so yeah, you, can't, gives them, you can't stop it uh, it gives them budgets for which they are not accountable no one knows right. they have it they can mm-hmm. use it for whatever subversion hiring assassins in other countries all these sorts of things yeah. the um the history of operation underworld working with like uh sicilian and italian like it's the sicilian maybe the italian and jewish mafia like right so it's like western europe mafioso uh mm-hmm. groups right Working with the cartels in South America is similar but different. They're doing, uh, you know, uh, a similar operation underworld by working directly with those cartels and hiring Mexican state police to do, you know, dirty deeds and these sort of things. The the fascinating thing is 30 years after Camarado's death, you can go to Amazon, you can see the guys who kidnapped him testify in the documentary. Like they're, the guys who kidnapped him are in the documentary saying, here's who hired us. Here's how we did it. And uh, it's not something that they really want you to see and understand, but it's, it got out there. So you right. know, I've never really seen that from uh, the mafioso. Cause those guys always get whacked. Goodfellas style, you know, they just yeah. end up uh, like a casino 
just shot in their car or something. They have accidents, but um, there are these bits of truth that get out to show you like how the system really works. You know, the people investigating drugs are being employed by the people running the drugs. And if they get too close to understanding that relationship, they're gone. Th- yeah, they're gone. Totally. Many no, I mean, cases. I'm sure there's a lot more Camarenas uh, out there that we don't know about. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's something I really uh, felt after writing the book, because, I mean, if you just count the people who were killed off because they stumbled onto some stuff here, whether it's Camarena or Danny Casalero or yeah. any any other number of, of these people, I mean, it's a pretty big body count <laughs> at the end of the day. And it has to be way bigger than than even that. Right. So, I mean, it's just really crazy to think about because they've been really expanding this for a big time. And, you know, I think the name enterprise, which is how these people refer to themselves behind Iran Contra is a really good name for it because this is a business and the people running our government run this business. It's an illegal business. And a lot of it is, you know, around activity that makes the world a miserable, much more miserable place than it needs to be. And it's all about their money and power. But I think something, um, that I basically didn't realize before I wrote this book is that I think a lot of the people around Iran Contra for a long time, they justified their activities as being anti-communist. But at some point that particular group, exactly the same people pretty much who were involved in Iran Contra and the enterprise and all of that in the nineties start to steer towards basically uh, building up, the technological infrastructure of both China and the the Soviet Union, or rather Russia after 1991, um, and sort of this engineering um, of the rise of the East or rise of Eurasia, rather. Uh, and that's pretty interesting what, what you mentioned earlier about, you know, some of these uh, groups um, sort of financing and, and building up the infrastructure of you know, Mao Zedong and, and the USSR, and then they're doing the same after the collapse of the USSR, the opening up um, of the Chinese economy. And now you're having this controlled demolition of the West and the rise of Eurasia and this push to this multipolar world order. And I think there's a lot of hidden history here that needs to come out. And so honestly, when it comes to this stuff in the 1990s, I felt like, I don't know if we're going to have time to get there today, but I just really felt like uh, that was really stunning because I felt like no one's really looked into it. And it's just an insane amount of technology transfer. And it intimately involves a lot of the people who are the big wigs in Silicon Valley today. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey Epstein was in the middle of that. And it looks like, um, you know, it, it played a really key role in, in what we're seeing today. Um, but a lot of it was like a, a illicit theft of like nuclear technology and all other sorts of stuff. And it was intentionally being sent by these people that were the enterprise in the 80s to the people they were ostensibly protecting us against but through right. their, you know, covert warfare and stuff. And it just goes to show you that these guys have no actual allegiance to ideology. They may frame themselves as anti-communists and all their crimes as anti-communists, but they're just professional organizations criminals and they have no allegiance to anything it's just about more money and power for them and to keep their rackets expanding and going forever i mean that's all they care about so it's all godfather three that's what i said (laughs) basically well i start off the book i think it's in volume one with a quote from a guy that was a whistleblower about the enterprise named bruce hemmings i don't know if you uh, well, I'm assuming you you saw it that basically describes the enterprise as that, that they they started making all these deals with, you know, the organized crime groups in China and Russia and all of the stuff. And they will uh, eliminate free speech in the U.S. They'll take over the whole government. They'll like 
you know, it's basically a prophecy. I mean, he said it in like 1990 and we see it all happening. Like, you know, right now it's, it's just really surreal, you know, but it, it makes it really hard to see what's going on now with this rise of Eurasia and the claim of multipolarity. I mean, there's a lot of people in independent media that are like cheering that on, but when you're looking at all this history, it just looks like it's, uh, it's been the plan. You know what I mean? Yeah. And people are starting to distinguish and discern and, and uh, use the juxtaposition between the whitewash version of history and the actual factual evidence that's there to be studied, right? An example, which would be the public knows that Tom Cruise played a 300 pound drug dealer named Barry Seal in a movie that was supposed to be called Mina, but they actually called it American made. In your book, you have a much more interesting picture of who Barry Seal was and uh, his long history with CIA goes back to like, there's a famous picture from Mexico city, January 22nd, 1963. And it's got Barry Seal and Porter Goss and Felix Rodriguez. Felix Rodriguez killed Kiki Camarena, according to The Last Narc on Amazon. That's not me saying it, because Felix is still alive and he kills people. Uh, so that's not me. That's the movie saying that. <laughs> yeah. He killed Che Guevara. He keeps his cigarette <clears throat> in the handle of his Yeah, I think 45. it's pretty much known that that guy has a body count. Yeah. Yeah. I do him. Yeah. So Barry Seal worked with these characters. He was also in Civil Air Patrol. And so when I so when I learn these things and I think, oh, Bush was also in Civil Air Patrol. He like he met you at National Guard and he was missing with James R. Bath. They were AWOL. Well, Bath is the Saudi drug funneling money manager. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So then you see generations of, oh, were these guys flying cocaine, too? And what about these Saudi prince guys that hijacked on 9-11? Were those drug couriers being trained, too? for the diplomatic pouch stuff that they do. So there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff that starts with just knowing who Barry seal was, what was his proximity to bill Clinton and Mena, Arkansas, and these sort of things going on while Clinton was governor. Right. And Clinton's governor after Winthrop Rockefeller, I think was the governor right before Clinton. So uh, I can't remember. I mean, in writing in writing the book, I didn't really look so much at Arkansas politics like before Clinton. I mainly focused on like Clinton's rise because a lot of Clinton's rise obviously is really important to a lot of the other stuff that pops up in the book because I'm focusing on, on people like Jackson Stevens, uh, the Riotti family and all of that. And they obviously play a, a major role in the stuff that goes on in the in the 1990s that to you know a certain extent involves um, Jeffrey Epstein. But, you know, um, there's a whole web of people that are intimately involved in the stuff that was going on while um, Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas. And I guess that's where Barry seal fits into it. And most people, you know, know of him because of the, um, you know, the Mena Arkansas stuff, you know, he was basically um, arguably the key person in that particular hub, which was being used um, not just for, you know, arms trafficking and drug trafficking as part of Iran Contra, but also to bring, uh, people uh contras to arkansas i think they were trained uh, not that far away from uh, the mina air base and of course i'm sure people your audience is familiar with a lot of the suspicious deaths sort of surrounding that particular part of arkansas at the time and how locals noticed a lot of weird happenings once a seal moved in and all of this stuff and you know, there's uh, a lot to be said about Mino, Arkansas. And, you know, in, in terms of details, I tried to give, you know, <laughs> enough in the book, but uh, obviously a lot more uh, could be said. But there's a lot of other financial stuff going on in this period as well, because a lot there seemed to have been uh, sort of the re, um, I guess the, uh, what's the word for it? 
sort of uh, some of these Arkansas like state financial institutions were sort of like retooled to be to basically function as giant like money laundering hubs for a lot of the drugs and stuff that were coming in. As I note in the book, people like um, uh, relatives of Bill Clinton and people really close to him and his early political career uh, were involved with um, with drug trafficking to an extent. I guess it's his half brother. Uh, Bill Clinton's half brother that was a re- Roger Clinton that was actually arrested for cocaine trafficking mm-hmm. um, and, and stuff like that. So like, obviously there's a lot of really crazy stuff going on in Arkansas in, in, in the 1980s uh, to say the very least. And um, uh, a lot of this involved, um, you know, some of these airlines that have become notorious, you know, like Southern air transport and, and, and groups like that. And, but a lot of, you know, in terms of like Barry seals aircraft, as I note in the book, there were like a lot of intermediaries to try and hide and obfuscate the owners of the planes and all of this stuff. And, you know, it was a really, um, uh, you know, a lot of complicated stuff was going on and you have allegations from people who were involved in this stuff at Mina and and with seal uh, that people like William Barr were operating, um, you know, in proximity or directly with these operations, you know, in, in William Barr's case, he was a uh, uh, using the alias Robert Johnston, I believe, and claiming to be the the, the counsel or the lawyer for Southern Air Transport uh, and stuff like that. And it was basically Bill Casey's emissary to to Arkansas and, you know, Bill Clinton's uh, these people. I think it's Terry Reid actually um, mm-hmm. alleges that. Uh, Bill Clinton was basically promised the presidency for his role in uh, facilitating Iran-Contra operate, allowing Arkansas to be used for sort of a domestic base for, um, you know, Iran-Contra stuff. Yeah. Terry Reid's a CIA uh, courier pilot, whistleblower. There's yeah. still video of him out there telling his story. It's it's fascinating piece of history. You had mentioned uh, Jackson Stevens and I had mentioned James R. Bath. And then I thought, do you know about the artist Mark Lombardi? No, I don't. <laughs> okay, so this is his book, Global Networks. He died of <clears throat> his own hand in uh, 322-2000. So right before 9-11, this mm-hmm. artist has these big wall murals of James R. Bath, George W. Bush, H.W. Bush, Jackson Stevens, Salim bin Laden, <laughs> BCCI. Like the whole thing is in his artwork. And there's these big murals like at the Whitney Museum, the MoMA Museum. So at 9-11... The FBI is trying to figure out who done it and they go to the museum to see this guy's work because they are like, this guy knows the connections. Right. And ironically enough, this book, but you know, this is posthumously printed after his suicide. This is published. I forget who published it. Let me, let me look in here. Oh, there's James R. Bath and Bush AWOL because I keep that with this book, that little document. It was published by, let me just zoom in here. Get in. Judith Rothschild Foundation support for a grant for the exhibit. So it's just, they're not too far from the, the dead artist who connects their whole story together. And they're, you know, they're there to give you the memorialized book of his work, but um, his drawings and art on all these topics that you're covering in here are fascinating. And um, I don't know if this book is still available, but if it is, I'd like to find a copy and send it to you for volume three. Cause once you start to get what, what did Lombardi understand 20 years ago about these people and what were the notes that he left behind? Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be very powerful. And I don't know too many people who could cognize <coughs> what, what he's pointing out, but I know you could. Uh, well, maybe when I'm not <laughs> having yeah. like bronchitis again. <laughs> mm. uh, BCCI. 
from 72 to 91. He's got, he's, he's yeah. got a lot of interesting well, work that's like a visual, like this is a visual representation of what you put into text. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, basically. So you mentioned Jackson Stevens. So I, I guess I should say that Jackson Stevens uh, was part of the group that attempted to get um, BCCI into the U.S. financial system and the banking stuff with like the Jackson Stevens reality um partnership is really important to understanding a lot of the stuff I talk about in volume two, which is why I, you know, get into it and to the extent um, uh, that I do um, at the end of, at the end of volume one, because there's a lot, I mean, there's just a lot to <laughs> understand in terms of, of context to really get um, what's going on. Once you get to the Epstein stuff, specifically the Epstein um, um Clinton White House stuff, which is really, in my opinion, like extremely undercovered. Uh, and that's even with the death of Mark Middleton earlier this year, just being like really obviously a murder. Right. Um, you know, there was hardly any coverage of it. I think maybe just in the Daily Mail in the UK. And that was pretty much uh, it. And no one bothered to ask who was Mark Middleton and why might Epstein have been meeting with him in this period. And man, that is a rabbit hole if there ever was one. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot. I mean, it's not just the Clintons who have a body count, but I was just about yeah. to bring up Vince Foster. <laughs> sure. Let's let's get into it. Yeah. So uh, as you're building up to this, this is uh, page 397 out of 500 in volume one. Right. So you're building up to like the whole Epstein network, Elaine Maxwell, all that sort of stuff. You're still laying out all this beautiful context, promise software, uh, Mossad. Uh, infiltration of software, backdoors and software. And then all of a sudden Vince Foster dies. And uh, he's got this mysterious suicide note, which <laughs> I remember you, you gave a little speculation uh, on what you thought might have, who, who might have uh, written it. What, uh, what do you remember <laughs> about Vince Foster's death and why do you think it's strange it was labeled a suicide? Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot of different points about the death specifically, but there's things like, um, for the type of wound it had, there wasn't any blood at the scene. So most people think that his body was, he died, he bled out somewhere and then his body was moved. There's a lot of, um, incongruencies between, um, reports based on people who were there when the body was discovered. And then, you know, different autopsy reports, some anomalies with the autopsy, it appears to have been a mouth, neck wound not like a i forget exactly but it it wasn't consistent with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the mouth which is the narrative and so it was basically changed to be that way and uh, there was a delay in notifying officers on the scene to attend the autopsy as is uh, customary in this type of case and so instead uh, by the time those people had been on the scene got there the part that uh, of, of Foster's body that had basically shown those anomalies between what the narrative was becoming and what was actually observed at the scene had been removed from his like mouth and you know so uh, that you know there's a lot of weird stuff uh, with the autopsy in and of itself. And then this claim that, you know, when the police went into his office uh, at the time of his death, there was nothing in his briefcase. And then like, I think 36 hours later, the Clinton white house says we have a suicide note for Vince Foster that was found in his briefcase and all of this stuff. And there was a delay in releasing it. And it all came from Hillary Clinton's office. And, you know, they were making all these weird calls. So it seems like the Clintons weren't expecting the death to happen, but there's some speculation to that too but it seemed like some really frenetic front phone calls. He didn't expect it at least at that time. And some people sort of in the 
the the ne- the power nexus around George Bush Senior claimed responsibility for the Foster death, um, and and so I note in the book that that could have just been seated there to provide cover for the Clintons because the Bush and Clintons you know collaborate a lot and their criminal activities you know that's pretty obvious so it could really be one or the other but we don't really know uh, what we do know is that the infis- official investigations and all of this stuff in the early Clinton area where it's whitewater the Vince Foster death all of it was just a complete whitewash and I mean Ken Starr who died recently was just a total joke of an independent investigator like he was given tapes of like people admitting to the foster murder that were like taught you know worked for intelligence and stuff mm-hmm. and he just like did nothing with it <laughs> or allegedly destroyed it and then he becomes a jeffrey epstein's defense lawyer <laughs> yes and so um, um when you say ken star who died recently uh i wish him well um Cornelius V star was his grandfather who was an OSS officer who founded AIG. AIG that they were related. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that makes an awful lot of sense. Yeah. The the LA times article from 2003 is called the secret (laughs) insurance agent men. And in there they go into the whole history. So basically they show you that AIG is a creation of OSS and CIA. And that's why Hank Greenberg runs it. And now when you think they own Kroll and Marsh or like they're, they're all the same thing. Now you're getting into an intelligence agency with front companies that's multinational because it's dual citizens, right? Which goes back to the Kroll and Maurice Greenberg Mm -hmm. involvement and potentially 9-11. Now, Vince Foster worked at the Rose Law Firm with Hillary. Yeah, and and, uh, with Webster Hubble. And they basically looks a lot like Chelsea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people think that. uh, And who really knows? But, you know, there's definitely cases where, you know, that's happened. Just look at people like you know, Prince yeah. Harry, for example, yeah. the British royal family. Many anyway, cases. yeah. So um, the Rose Law Firm represented a lot of powerful people, obviously, in the Arkansas area. Um, the head of that law firm was like C. Joseph Gerrar, I think, at the time. And he later pops up in a lot of these um, uh, scandals that are sort of related to Epstein's relationship. Uh, with the Clinton White House. Uh, but at, at Rose Law, a lot of these guys were basically managing a lot of companies for um, Jackson Stevens. And in the case of uh, Foster and Hubble, they were invested in some of those companies. And, you know, they were basically very much uh, intertwined with, um, you know, the empire of, of Jackson Stevens um, in Arkansas and presumably beyond since, you know, obviously there's subsidiaries in different places and they're, you know, the lawyers for, you know, most of those companies. So uh, they're a, they're a prestigious law firm in Little Rock, one of the oldest ones. And it basically got, you know, intimately tied up with this particular power nexus and in, in Little Rock, which has a lot of uh, influence and money behind it. Even today, you know, a lot of people think of Arkansas as, you know, not a, not a really a, a big state with a lot of influence, but that particular uh, <laughs> capital, it, it really got, you know, Little Rock, and it does have a lot of influence, especially when you consider like the Walton family behind Walmart, you know, Hillary Clinton, you know, worked for them and legal stuff and had a relationship with them for a really long time. Um, I'm pretty and, sure there's a diamond mine in uh, Arkansas, if I remember correctly as well. Oh, is there? Oh, I, I don't Maybe know. that's what Little Rock's all about. All right. I want to get <laughs> to this part because I know we have limited time today. So we're only going to get through uh, volume one. And I'd like to invite you back when you're feeling better for volume two. What do you think? About yeah, that'd that? be nice. Cause then my brain will be working. So yeah. <laughs> well, your brain's working beautifully now. Um, Epstein worked at the Dalton school and then Barr is involved with promise like one sentence later. And these things are still going on today. Like, you know, attorney general Barr, his dad. Yeah, so this is Epstein William Barr into, and his yeah. father 
uh, Donald Barr hired Epstein at the Dalton School in what is a really strange affair because Donald Barr is a, a weird guy and why Jeffrey Epstein was hired. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein appears to have had some sort of relationship with British intelligence or, or someone else the, at that level before he even got hired at the Dalton School. Mm-hmm. It looks like it was as early as 1971, somewhere there about some royal family connection he already had by the by the early 70s. And he was hired, I think, in 74, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for the Dalton School. And that was by Donald Barr, who uh, was an OSS veteran involved in creating kind of suspect programs to identify talented high schoolers in New York, which, you know, to me sort of suggests some sort of intelligence identification recruitment program. And at the time he hires Epstein to work at the Dalton school, his son, William Barr is already working for the CIA. So there's, you know, not that <laughs> much separation the CIA, between them. The CIA sends William Barr <coughs> to law school. And then William Barr is the attorney general when Epstein's killed. I mean, when he doesn't hang himself. Yeah. And he's also the attorney general when they are covering up promise, BCCI, Iran Contra. I mean, just a load of stuff. It's right? coincidental. I'm sure. I totally must be right. <laughs> I like how you so, just gather all these coincidences and connect them together. I mean, people. that's basically what I'm trying to do. Cause like I, Sudoku you know, once people. you put all the information in the right order and people see how many coincidences it is and you're yeah. showing it year after year, uh, scandal after scandal, it, it becomes really hard to say, this is a silly conspiracy theory, or this is just a coincidence. You know, you can say that a couple times, but like 150 to 200 times, it starts to get a little, a little difficult. Now, you mentioned on this page right here, John Patrick O'Neill of the FBI. And I thought, well, is that the same guy that's hired by Cole to do 9-11? Right. But you don't you don't mention that till volume two, I don't think. I think you just lay it out here. And then later in volume two, you're like John P. O'Neill, who ran security hired by Kroll Associates at the World Trade Center. And then dies. Yeah. 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 All right. So um so John Patrick O'Neill, before he left the FBI and got, you know, ensnared by by Kroll. Um, he was basically per him at the FBI before he was apparently forced out. And that's why he was sort of headhunted by, uh, to be like head of security at at the world trade center. Uh, he had people trying to investigate the tendrils of the Maxwell family empire in New York city. He was trying to follow the money. And he says, as you can see on that quote, um, that Maxwell had basically set Robert Maxwell had set into motion a global coalition of criminals that brings in the um, organized crime from East Asia. And so this is like Hong Kong. This is Macau. Um, this is Taiwan. This is Japan. Um and then with Eurasia, so you're also having, um, you know, I guess Russian, uh, but, you know, Eastern European organized crime is more is more accurate. Um, and then you're having sort of the, the ones we talked about earlier, sort of a Jewish organized crime, Italian uh, organized crime based in the U.S. that then expand in the case of, you know, the Italians with what we talked about earlier with Operation Underworld. You have all these d- deportations of Italian-American mafiosos going back to Italy and then, you know, playing, getting in bed with intelligence and involved with all sorts of stuff. And so they're, they stop being Italian-American and become Italian-American, Italian, you know, and having a lot of power and 
in Europe and stuff. I mean, it just becomes a big hive. And so basically Maxwell brought all these guys together and started to make a giant criminal enterprise. And that's for like one of the top guys at the FBI at the time. And he's trying to investigate that. And then people that are, you know, adjacent to Robert Maxwell, hire him, uh, you know, to want to work on security at the world trade center. And he dies in the attacks conveniently when, as, as far as I'm aware, not many other, if any other crawl employees died that day. It's a good observation. It's just another coincidence though. And I think it's also it coincidence be. that like they, they say, well, O'Neill was the guy tracking bin Laden and then bin Laden killed him. Right. But in the background, he's tracking Maxwell and the people from the Maxwell mega network hired him. And then they disposed of him. It seems it would seem yeah. unless he has its fake identity and he's living in Dubai. I don't know. I don't Could know. Be. We don't really know. Right. There's a, there were some people who speculated because he used to hang out at Elaine's and he was like someone who sought after fame and these sort of things that he might've been someone who took a deal and said, we're going to use you as part of the myth and move you over here. I don't know, but, but his remains were found by, I think Jerome Hauer from Curl Associates. Yeah, I also Curl, found yeah. was a little yeah. interesting, mm-hmm. you know, when you got him and Bernard Carrick and they account for Satan, El Sakami's passport and like, Oh, Odin- all sorts of things, all sorts yeah. of things between those two guys. Yeah. Jerome Howard also that they seem to know that anthrax attacks were going to follow like a couple of weeks later. And he's the a, white house guy really in the know and took Cipro. Like that's yeah. a high level of knowledge to be able to convince that crew. You yeah. Know? Well, anyway, I'm sure it's just coincidences. All right. So, uh, we have a little bit of time left because I know you said you had an open window for two hours, but I also know that you're, you're trying to recover and you're doing a great <laughs> job right no, now. No, I just have sick brain. You know how it is. Hey, a lot of other people would have just canceled and said, I'm sick today. And you're like, no, let's go for it. Let's kick them in the balls. Let's, let's get this information out <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty you much know? how I do it. Yeah. So you're wrapping it up toward the end of volume one and you bring back Roy Cohn <laughs> and uh, Cy Newhouse. That's a billionaire publishing magnate family of Condé Nast, Donald yeah. Trump, the, the Studio 54 hedonism and all these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the and, lawyer for Studio 54. Yeah. And there was apparently sex blackmail here. And I didn't include it in the book, but it had like weird connections to the, the HIV AIDS issues of that era and like all sorts of weird stuff going on around Studio 54. And he's so it, the lawyer for it, right? I, I heard somewhere that the owners of Studio 54, one of them had family intelligence ties. Um, and I, I saw it documented somewhere, but when I was writing the book, I had a, I couldn't find it, so I didn't include it. But I, that's I think good, that's somewhere out cause there. Because you can always put that in volume three. And I'm, I'm the same <laughs> way. Like I'll look for years for a quote, but if I can't find where that was sourced, I'm not going to run yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah, likewise. So you're tying it up in a little bow at the end of this. And you bring back Cone and you're showing like this like nascent or earlier proto version of a Jeffrey Epstein sex blackmail network. Roy yeah. Cone could fix anyone in the city. And that's not because he was a convincing argument, you know, argumentarian. It's because he knew how to get the drop on people, yeah, find their weaknesses, exploit. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's gone on for thousands of years. And I think for people to say that's conspiracy theory to be like, wait a minute. Was it conspiracy theory when Machiavelli was teaching about it? Was it, you know, for them not to recognize these layers of very evidentiary, substantial reality, I think is like a shortcut to thinking that leads to ignorance. Yeah, I mean, I'd tell you to call it a conspiracy theory because the guy that Roy Cohn mentored in this whole system was Donald Trump. So basically, and he became president, right? So obviously it worked for him to an extent to get to that particular office, right? So Roy Cohn's system, he called it his favor bank. 
And everyone that he interacted with had an open account in his favor bank. And you either got pluses or minuses based on what you were doing. And, you know, there's a, there's a level of blackmail to it, but there's also like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours later and like all sorts of stuff. And basically, you know, and a lot of this uh, comes up when I talk about his parents and stuff uh, earlier on in volume one and in chapter four, there's just, um, it's all about deal making. And this is where like Donald Trump's art of the deal comes from. It comes from this cone model of the deal. It's really not the cone model. It's really from a guy named Generoso Pope, who was like an Italian American uh, media mogul and ran um, a lot of, uh, I think the biggest cement company in the country and had a lot of like very overt mob ties. And his whole thing was deal making but like, you know, backroom deal making. Um, and that's really where power, you know, all the policy and all the real stuff happens there. Right. And that's, those are the deals. Right. And I guess it's, I'm not really explaining it, explaining it that well, maybe, but when Donald Trump like talks about like how he's good at that kind of stuff, he's talking about that. Right. He's good at these, like, or at least he thinks he's good at it. Right. (laughs) He's good enough to be somebody's front man to do those. Yeah. But it it comes from this system that, you know, Roy Cohn used to great, um, to great extent. Now I want to, I want to top it off here. We get to page 442. You're talking about this reporter, Charles Sencott, and he writes, uh, this this report and it you know it talks about about a bunch of pe- popular powerful people back then but you're going to notice when i read this that name cuomo it's still around today mm-hmm. sencott's report was attacked viciously by columnists and other new york media outlets powerful politicians including the then governor of new york Mario Cuomo and Cardinal John O'Connor. The Archdiocese of New York, now led by O'Connor, intervened to intervene to broker a deal between Ritter and the Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau. Now, Morgenthau, he trained Giuliani, Louis Free, Spitzer, yeah. all mm-hmm. these guys. Like you know, and yeah. Henry Morgenthau was part of like the 1934 you know, New Deal, I think, back then. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So there's a long history there. O'Connor's predecessor. Cardinal Francis Spellman had been a close friend of Roy Cohn and alleged attendee of the Plaza Hotel blackmail parties involving Cohn, Hoover yeah. and Rosenstiel. Spellman was a pedophile also. I mean, I talked about that earlier in the book. So basically this it's a very corrupt office by that point. So the guy that takes over for Spellman after he dies and then the Cuomo family are trying to stop attacks on this 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 priest uh, named Bruce Ritter, who had created a charity for runaway teens called Covenant House. And this uh, journalist, Charles Sinat, basically uh, found a, talked to a bunch of children or teens that had been involved with Covenant House. And they said that uh, Ritter was like giving them money, you know, money for sexual favors and stuff and all sorts of really yucky stuff. And so he aired that out and the attacks were, you know, from all of, all of these people really. And then as I see you have highlighted below, uh, Covenant House decided to investigate itself. And so they hired Kroll Associates. How convenient. This is another coincidence, you know, and it reminds me of the other things that were ongoing at the time. You had uh, the finders, you had Franklin cover up, you had uh, boys town. You had, uh, what was that? Discovery? It was all coming out really at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is and, really crazy when you think about it. And then you have a lot of people involved with the promise software all end up dead in 1991 as well. Um, Robert Maxwell, John Tower, uh, Danny Casalero, and Ca- one of Casalero's main sources at the NSA, Alan Standorf, all just end up dead in 1991. And John Tower of the Tower Commission that investigated Iran Contra or BCCI, yes. one of those. Uh, he's a agent of Israel. He, they got the drop. He on was him. on Mossad's Black- paper, but it was Robert Maxwell that facilitated that. And the person that brought Robert Maxwell and Tower together was Henry Kissinger. 
<laughs> of, of Dope Inc. fame. You've, have you ever read Dope Inc.? I haven't. But the thing with the LaRouche people for me, at least in executive intelligence review, is that a lot of their claims sound really believable, but they don't provide the sourcing. So if you can't corroborate or if I can't corroborate something they say, I like don't include, you know, so. I concur, but you can corroborate a lot of a lot of it. Yeah. A lot of it. Yeah. But there's some stuff like um, yeah. Max Fisher, who I talk about a lot in volume two, the, the LaRouche people say he was involved with the Detroit purple gang. And oh man, I wish that were so, but I couldn't corroborate right. and they didn't cite their source. So I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you so know, it, but, it's a good starting point, but it's not a conclusion. I always have to like say, well, where can I find independent evidence of that yeah, right. before mm-hmm. I can do anything with it? Now, in the case of Covenant House and this, this cover up, Kroll Associates claimed that none of the allegations, when viewed individually, can be proved beyond any question, while also claiming that the cumulative evidence against Ritter was extensive. <laughs> right. That's it's just like a report of contradictions. And there a the, lot of uh, the intelligence sorry, agency of Wall Street is the point. Go ahead. Yeah. No, well, I was just going to say uh, there a lot of some of their reports when they're like called to investigate stuff, they like, no, they can't get away with a total whitewash. So they just have like this contradictory googly guck. And you also see that with like reports of the official of, of the like the federal government that's meant to like dismiss stuff like the BUA report that dismisses the promise software or the um, I forget the end the guy that dismisses the um, I, can't, I can't remember the council's name. Um, but the guy that like dismisses any sort of foul play with um, Vince Foster's death and stuff, they mm-hmm. note all of these contradictions that like totally undermine the official narrative, but then they, they include it, but they don't analyze it. And then they'll like say, say as an executive summary or in the conclusion, the official narrative, but you actually go and read it and you're just like, what is this? You know, and Carl yeah. associates are masters at that. And um, as I noted in the book too, they were also called in to investigate. Uh, I think the, the Marcos gold stuff with the Philippines that of course involved Adnan Khashoggi and apparently actor George Hamilton, who in this exact same period of time is going on all these vacations with Galen Maxwell. <laughs> well, you know, he played Dracula at the end of seventies. I'm sure he was, uh, he's needed something to do become financial advisor to email to Marco. She sure has a really interesting stable of financial advisors. That's yeah. for sure. Well, uh, she had a lot of shoes too, didn't she? Yeah. Like thousands <laughs> yeah. Of shoes. She was like, uh, she was hip before it was hip to have all those shoes. Um, at the end, right at the end of the book, you bring up one of my favorite pieces of American unspoken history, <laughs> which was that uh, the Washington times front page of the, the receipt from the call boys visiting the white house in the HW Bush administration, which also happened in the W Bush administration with Jeff Gannon, but we don't have time to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to that time when HW Bush administration had uh, young call boys in the house. Cause you, this is all setting the stage for Epstein and his rise to power. And he's already yeah. on, he's already doing his thing was Iran Contra, but he hadn't done the sex blackmail thing to the point where we know about it in volume two. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So this was like, do you think HW Bush was, being blackmailed and if you're being blackmailed you might as well just have the call boys come straight to the house and pay credit card or what do you think that was all about you know it's really hard to know and a lot of people have speculated about like george bush senior and like what he was into you know there's a lot of claims right and you know i obviously can't document this um you know exactly what was going on but the fact that these boys were allowed into the white house is very disturbing and speaks to the amount of access that someone like craig spence um, who's the, the focus of these Washington Times articles had. And of course, Craig Spence is the business partner of Larry King in this sex trafficking enterprise, which is the Franklin scandal. 
um, which is a very disturbing scan. I mean, it's even to me more disturbing than the Epstein sex scandal uh, because you're not just having, you know, the exploitation of minors uh, for sex. You're also having uh, the physical torture and murder of children. Um, So that's like really next level. And, you know, apparently the guy that connects Craig Spence to the White House is is Donald Gregg, who's a very shady actor, very consistently, you know, close to the bushes. Um, it's hard. It's it's hard to know why they were going there. Yeah, maybe there is some truth to the rumors about Bush. But the, the problem is, you know, it, we don't need to have the answers to those questions to realize that something is seriously effed up <laughs> if these, you know, underage boys that were used as part of this ring were being given access to the white house. I mean, that like just obviously demands a massive investigation. And that's just one point, you know, within these uh, two books that is just like that, you know, like obviously we need to get to the bottom of what happened there. Uh, But the problem is that I also point out in the book is that the government isn't capable of investigating itself. So what do we do in that circumstance? Right. When there's like an obvious uh, litany of crimes against uh, minors, against society, you know, looting of the American public, all sorts of crimes, um, you know, that have been committed and they're documented um, and there's been continuity with them. And, you know, the new generations of this group are ruling over us all and you know how do we go from there can we use the justice system as it exists i mean they've completely subverted subverted it and like we talked about earlier the fbi has been totally compromised since like it was basically made in in the 30s so it's like you know what do we do you know what do you do when the government has to be investigated and it can't investigate itself and so that's kind of what i hope uh, the discussion um you know, uh, I hope that's the, the kind of discussion that this book generates for people, particularly people who haven't really gotten into this stuff before and don't really know this history. Because, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Um, this has an insanely huge body count. It's been stealing our wealth. It's been, uh, you know, motive for war after war, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and you know, these are the people who are basically the real terrorists that we're being told that we have to fight against all the time. Um, you know, they're not who we think they are. And so, you know, how do we bring them to justice? Can they be invested? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that we can't rely on the FBI for, you know, anything anymore. So they, what do we they do? do hate you us know? for our freedom. They hate us for our faith. They hate us for our optimism, for knowing that we can have the human capacity to learn our way out of these problems. They've got deep capture on our justice system, political system. Yes. But at the end of the Iran-Contra, I think it was the Walsh report. There was like Latin and it said, who will watch the watchers? And I think you are watching the watchers. And this is a mirror for them to see, hey, we see what you're doing and we know it's wrong. And even though we don't have all the details, we have plenty of details to know that this needs to be resisted. It needs to be scrutinized. It needs to be investigated. It needs to be adjudicated. And we are not going to continue living human generations into the future with this type of predation on ourselves, intraspecific kleptoparasitism. We don't need it. We don't want it. We didn't ask for it, but it's here. And they're still raining down their agenda harder than ever trying to like they're desperate right now. So their desperation, like they stink of desperation at this point with all the censorship and lockdowns, all this stuff. We own the science, World Economic Forum. You're going to eat bugs and like it. Uh-uh. And so I really want to thank you for writing volume one and, and to talk about volume two, foreshadowing the next conversation. These are essential elements of freedom. And if you don't understand how these things come together, you're going to be getting played by the game. You're going to be part of the enterprise. 
that they are building out there. And it's an enterprise of slavery. It's an enterprise that yeah. is. You're going to you be know, the fuel for the freedom. enterprise. Right. You're not going to be a part of it. You're going to be the fought, the cannon fodder the <laughs> for yeah. it, basically. Yeah. Because this chews people up and spits them out. Yeah. And, and people uh, can't realize that without taking some time. Like, a, you know, it's not going to be a Sunday afternoon read, but a couple Sunday afternoons, you get through the book and then you have this for the rest of your life, this understanding. So I, I think it's, it's an exemplary example. Yeah. yeah it's an well, exemplary thanks. piece of literature. It's nonfiction. It's backed up with all the references and documents you could ever want in this situation. And, and Whitney's not asking you to believe her. She's just asking, read the book, consider it for yourself, you know, make your totally. own decisions in these topics. And uh, I thank you for including so little of your opinion in there and just making it chock full of facts and timeline. And here's how hey, I mean, that's together. how it has to be because everyone wants to, you know, not everyone, but I mean, there's definitely people who want to pick up this book and call me a crazy conspiracy theorist. You know what I mean? Mm. And so I wanted to make that like really hard for them. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully I succeeded in that because um, I do have like an insane amount of references in this thing in both books. So, you know, if you don't believe me, look, a, look it up for yourself, you know, and, and decide how you feel about it. But that's where the learning really people. That's where yeah. learning really begins for people is when they do are they're incredulous and then they look it up and like, actually, it's worse than she said. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, obviously, obviously that I left out um, because, because I can't talk about all of it. And we didn't even really get to cover like everything in volume one either. I mean, there's obviously a lot, um, a lot more to get into. But what I was hoping to do, you know, in, in my experience, um, if you're trying to open someone's eyes to like deep politics, as it's often called, they're, they're willing to entertain the idea that these networks and groups engaged in this type of activity back in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, maybe even the 70s. And then once you get up to the 80s and beyond, they start to get like all jittery about it, you know. So I think if you can show the continuity between all of those crimes to the now and, uh, you know, people are going to be a lot more susceptible to realizing that this never really stopped. It just, you know, it got rebranded maybe <laughs> um, to an extent. And, you know, if you're going to continue voting like red or blue or whatever, I mean, you're just playing their game because they control both. Well said. So, you know, if you're on the Trump 2024 train, I have unfortunate news for you. <laughs> Um, and not to dunk on Trump either. I mean, the entire DNC is just like, is basically, you know, I mean, the stuff I talk about in the Clintons, I guess we'll talk about it next time. I mean, it's just totally mental. Uh, like the fact they're not in prison is mind boggling, tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. And it's um, because I don't think they're that powerful, but they are useful tools for very powerful people who have kept them around. And keep totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they've kept them around because they they've gotten away with loads of stuff. It's really nuts. Um, well, Bill's very affable, you know, <laughs> you think that's it. You think it's just the affability, <laughs> the saxophone playing. Yeah. Gets people. <laughs> Whitney, where can people buy these uh, magnificent examples of literature? Okay, so I'm hoping that in the, I think it's in the next four to six weeks, there's going to be an ebook, an audiobook available that's going to be volumes one and two together. So that's probably going to be most cost effective uh, for most people. Uh, but if you want to buy both physical copies, the cheapest way to do that, at least if you live in the continental US, is to buy direct from the publisher, which is Trine Day. So T R I N E day.com. You look at up, uh, upcoming release or new releases, and you can look for, you know, they sell both books separately too, but the bundle significantly cheaper 
And you can also buy them like Amazon or really anywhere, but the bundle, as far as I know, is only in Shrine Day. Um, and we're trying to work out stuff for people that don't live near the U.S. because international shipping is really complicated. But, you know, the, the world of logistics is like really insane right now ever since the COVID stuff happened. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on, uh, going on there, but we're trying to sort it out. So, um, if you want any updates on my book uh, and when the audiobook comes out or, or anything like that, um, you can sign up for my newsletter at unlimitedhangout.com slash newsletter. And when all of those updates come out, we'll be sending out newsletters um, about them as well. And also on the website at the bottom, actually at the bottom of each newsletter, there's like a, a link to our resource page. That's just all about the book and FAQs and stuff. So yeah, hopefully that covers all the bases. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking a couple hours out of your, your, you know, densely packed days. You know, you got a lot going on. I really appreciate you sharing the wisdom that you've purveyed through these books and kind of uh, bringing it to life through an interview. So people would know why they want to invest time to read the books in the first place. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks for taking the time uh, to read it. Cause I mean, they're not exactly short, right? <laughs> no, but it so, is a page turner. It is. Yeah. It wasn't. Oh, it wasn't. Groovy. Well, I'm really glad you feel that way. And I hope other people do too. I mean, ultimately what I want is just people to, to read it because a lot of work went into it. I think it's a lot of important research and I think we, people need to be armed with this kind of information to have like productive conversations about what to do and where to go next, you know? Now I'm interested to see how Tim Dillon's going to interview you about these books. See what kind of I've set the bar. Yeah, it, it's go, coming Tim. up, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Definitely be interesting. He, Wonderful. I sent, I sent him a review copy. He's like, "You mean you expect me to read a book?" Yeah, two yeah, of them. Tim. Two of them. Tim. <laughs> well, thank you for broadening our mental landscape on these topics, and keep up the good work. And uh, your your work's always inspiring, and it's consistently inspiring. And uh, it takes a Thanks. lot of moxie to keep a pace as you do. So thank you for doing what you do. And I encourage everyone to go check out these books and, and get them between your ears as soon as possible. Thank you. Can't hear you. Muted. Good. Good. Coming out of that strong two-hour interview with Whitney, I got a bunch of notes to discuss. So let me just set this up because this will also be a, a separate outtake clip. Uh, one Nation Under Blackmail is what we just learned about. A couple weeks, we're going to learn about One Nation Under Blackmail, Volume 2. This is the sordid union between intelligence and organized crime. And Jeffrey Epstein got a lot of foreshadowing in volume one about Jeffrey Epstein. We heard about this guy called Adnan Khashoggi, who was a famous uh, arms dealer circa Iran-Contra. In fact, uh, Iran-Contra, a lot of the names in volume one, a lot of these people, there's overlap between the enterprise, these blackmail networks, the activities behind the scenes, the, the slush funds of black marketeering, narco traffickers. Very interesting. Might be hard to cognize like all at once just reading because you don't know a lot of the names. So I got something here for you. Let me zoom in on this. I have several episodes that I published years ago on Iran-Contra, and I would recommend you start with episode 82, The British Elephant in the American Living Room, and work your way up through the great strategy and all the way into the Iran-Contra information. Where can you find that information? It's in the Library of Cognitive Liberty for members of the Grand Theft World community. You not only get this podcast in the town hall, you get Peace Revolution, and that's where I was just showing you those clips uh, or the, those episodes, which would give you the background, like a heavy duty, you several hours of listening to the who, what, where, when, why, and how of Iran-Contra, BCCI, these sort of things. And then with new eyes, with new ears, with new understanding, consuming the book maybe on a second time, 
Because if you read through and you don't know a lot of the names, you go do some research, you come back to it, all of a sudden it clicks. You understand, you start to see these patterns that she's painting out over time. There's a couple more patterns. We saw this picture, the LD nicely edited in there. This is the uh, infamous 1963, January 22nd, 1963 photo. And uh, there's uh, some of the people that are named in her book, some of the people that are very famous in, in circles of Operation 40, Operation Mongoose, uh, JFK's assassination, all the way up through 9-11. Some of these people are continuing to be involved. So uh, that, that photo comes from the cover of this book that's the only it's the originating source for the publication of this photo it's called Barry and the boys the cia the mob in america's secret history and while you're at it because this is a rare book to find so if you find it you'll find it at daniel hopsicker's website uh, i think it's madcalprod.com you get the bundle you get this other book that comes with it welcome to Terrorland. you're going to be surprised to know that a lot of people in this book also relate to uh, crimes of this century that are substantial and also tie into the people in this picture. So uh, Hopsicker is a, a muckraking investigative journalist. He's produced some excellent work over the years. Some of this was uh, referenced in Whitney's book, as a matter of fact. So the Mena, Arkansas, the Clinton stuff. Uh, he also has America's secret heartbeat. There was a couple things that tie into the research that she's marshalling here. Very interesting stuff. Um, Khashoggi, we mentioned during that interview, Adnan Khashoggi, the arms dealer, and how he had a yacht, because I said boat, and she said, no, it was a yacht. And I said, uh, you're right. It was a yacht. It was a yacht so famous, I bet you might have seen it. Now, you're thinking you probably haven't because you'd know you saw it. No. If you've seen the movie Never Say Never Again, the Bond villain bad guy is on Adnan Khashoggi's yacht that he later sells to Trump. So that piece of history we discussed, that discussed in this book, One Nation Under Blackmail, is also part of a famous movie featuring not the queen, but 007. See how I did that? Do we have that clip, LD? Yeah, we've got a couple. Um, there might be a yeah. British elephant in the American living room. That's what I was saying. Second here. Dun, dun, Let me un move the spotlight. Dun. So... Dun, 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 dun. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, keep it muted and see if that keeps us from... We've already had problems on YouTube tonight. But, uh, well, before the boat shows up, I don't know what before they're the looking at here, up. but this is... <laughs> All right, sorry. Moving on. We've got a fine yacht. Oh, there it is. <clears throat> A major part of the film actually takes place on the yacht. He's doing kind of eugenics type experiments, if I remember correctly. It's been a while. I think this movie's circa 1984-ish. And uh, for those following the propaganda history of James Bond, and Ian Fleming is, is the creator of the James Bond series, and Ian Fleming was also mentioned in that interview because his great-grandfather, uh, Robert Fleming and company, funded the Harrimans, who uh, we discussed creating AIC and uh, funding the Soviet project as well as the communist uh, Chinese project. So, so this looks like that. the villain on the yacht. The yacht. There Z you go. Yes. It's the, it's the proto Klaus. Klaus wasn't ready for stage time yet. So they had that. Uh, the, the villainous looking actor with Alec Baldwin's first wife, Kim Basinger. 
All right, but this is not about watching James Bond. That was just one of the points I had to make. There was another point made in this book. I also similarly had on my desk another coin to represent it. We talked a little bit about uh, Clark Clifford writing the report for the USS Liberty. This is a, it's called a challenge coin from the USS Liberty. I got this from the only remaining Marine to survive that attack because I did a three-hour interview with him and my buddy, John Masaria. We're going to talk about John a little bit later tonight. Uh, John and I, along with Nick, our sound guy, we we did an interview, and uh, I think that is still allowed on YouTube, though uh, still much, much to be learned about that topic. Uh, 50 years ago, it still doesn't have uh, – it's 50th anniversary, anniversary coin. They still haven't had a legit – uh, investigation of this and the reason why they might not investigate this there might be a connection into some of the things that are discussed in volume one of this book but that's not the other point that i only other point i wanted to make from that there was also mention of the death of enrique kiki camarena he worked uh for the united states consulate no we can't oh sorry good oh you can't hear me or what? No, no, no. I was just going to say real quick before you go to Kiki, um, yeah. there's an interesting history that you showed me with my time I spent with you over the past week um, in regards to why we even had uh, naval intelligence over in that area to observe what's going on in the Mediterranean that I found very interesting. And hopefully at some point, maybe not tonight, but some other time we'll get uh, do a deep dive into uh, that. I uh, was very fascinating to me with the sort of a, a, verbal agreement with the JFK administration with uh, having a base in Morocco that of course the Senate and the Congress had no idea about. And that was very, very interesting. Anyways, yeah. Long story keep... short is that uh, part uh, country C country C was uh, doing the six day war. Yeah. And uh, there was a listening ship over there. It technically it's thought as a uh, USS Liberty is technically thought of as like an NSA listening and communication ship, but it also has GCHQ. It also has the British on board. That's part of the British elephant in the American living room in this whole thing. So USS Liberty uh, gets scuttled. They try to assassinate and strafe the lifeboats. They try to kill everybody on board to make sure that that communication ship doesn't warn of the pending attack that's going on and the attacks uh, that were going on in the Middle East. And um, it appears from history that there's uh, maybe a, like if you're trying to get rid of that information by scuttling the ship, they didn't take into effect the ship might be having ship to shore communications with, I don't know, the place that gives communications out for the sixth fleet in that area. Correct. There might be more evidence to that. And why did America stand down and why haven't we had an investigation? It's kind of like a nine 11 situation, but it's from the sixties. No one really talks about that, but I was already up to uh, the Hector Boreas mention yeah. in there with uh, uh, Kiki Camarena and the DEA. This is uh, uh, based on, an interview we did with Hector back in 2017. So before they made the Amazon uh, film, the last, La the last narc, which is a mini series. It's like a couple episodes. And uh, before they made Narcos Mexico on Netflix, <laughs> here is uh, a writer's guild association certified script for what we called kilos based on Hector's story. And if you were to look at 
for instance, like the cover page. It's the rise of the Guadalajara cartel for the it's same incredible. years. It's incredible. It's, it's, it's incredibly similar to what came became known as Narcos Mexico, only instead of from the whistleblower perspective, they took the CIA's perspective <laughs> That's right. and they showed you Felix Gallardo and, you know, the, the perspective, they, they, they whitewashed they it. They whitewashed so it. Absolutely. There's a real actual whistleblower that we filmed and uh, it's now represented on Amazon as the last narc. And it's a very interesting story. And that's just a little interesting you know, is an understatement. It's, uh, it's mean, quite literally uh, astounding and unbelievable. What, if one uh, were to Hector read went this, through and what happened to Kiki and yeah. the first, like you had that split up in the seasons, the first season was about Kiki's story and what happened to him. Yeah, here's what rise of the Guadalajara cartel season yeah. one, season two, operation Leenda, which is the investigation in the Kiki season three, rogue narc. Now the ironic thing was I sent my buddy, John, and Hector with this script to Netflix before Netflix made Narcos Mexico. And they had the opportunity to buy Hector's story and to get this script all together. They chose to go a different way. They wonder why the CIA, mm-hmm. um, but this is what it would look like if you wanted to go pitch somebody on a project like that. Anyway, this is not the show where we explain that. I just want to mention that that is a substantial storyline that if you don't understand it, her mention of it over a couple paragraphs might not do you justice. So anyway, Hector, uh, we're looking to have him as a guest in upcoming weeks. And uh, that's for future reference. We'll just talk. We'll leave that there for now. You'll hold your attention a couple of weeks. We'll come back to that. Now, speaking of, holding your attention for a couple of weeks. We will come back and interview Whitney for one nation under blackmail volume two, but there's a couple other points I wanted to make from that. Um, Xi Jinping. Cause she talked about the multipolar theory of. Oh, she did a great job of breaking that down because and it's such did. a, yes, she did a Absolutely. fantastic job of understanding how much infrastructure development went into the East and how, it seems like our multinational corporations and the oligarch is repositioning themselves to uh, build up essentially China and Russia, particularly China as really the, the technocratic sort of control system for the entire world. And that's why when Patrick Wood says, well, they seem to have embraced technocracy, it's not communism they've embraced. They've embraced technocracy. And what's technocracy defined as? I think from the 1938 Colombian. Or it's like techno-communism. It no, no, well, it's 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 uh, um, it's ruled it's a, by it's technology. So, it's ruled social by science. scientists. Yeah, it's uh, it's scientism. social engineering. It it's, has he, it's Fauciism. He, he divided. He said he, he defined it. For, I think based on the Columbia document as being uh, social engineering. It's his social engineering with technology. Or it's what using, we saw during the pandemic under Fauci's leadership. And also, you know what happened in in China in regards to they locking down and using QR codes. Like when you look at some of the the way in which they went about implementing controls in their society, well, obviously we're still seeing it. They just built a 30,000 uh, internment, 30,000 uh, capacity internment camp, internment camp in air quotes uh, for their citizenry. We saw what happened in, uh, months ago in regards to Shanghai. <laughs> Hope you concentrate so, there. Mm-hmm. That's uh, so, one way of looking at it. So and in Shanghai, agreement anyways, with her treatment of the multipolar theory, multipolar theory of geopolitics, mm-hmm. I would say this. My observation would be this. Putin, they tell you Putin bad, right? Putin bad. Xi Jinping bad, right? Mm -hmm. KC3, King Charles III, good. (laughs) But Putin and Ping, they dress just like the king. So what's up with that? They don't have native regalia. 
they culturally appropriate a British tie and suit and the look of what the rulers, the people who set up their infrastructure that they're now managing. What do you think that is? Or do you think it's just like the strong British fashion has, has taken hold over there? I mean, I'll, I'll leave it for you at home to make your own decisions and such things. A bit rhetorical. Maybe, maybe the sartorial observation aside, there's still there's still a lot of strength under the monopolar plan of great world uh, great world government, one Correct. new world order under the United Thank Nations you. with UNESCO and eugenics and the World Economic Forum and Xi Jinping and Putin. They're on board with the 2030 UN agenda and it's full speed ahead and it's a great reset Not over forget here. That it's inclusive went- capitalism over here. It's stakeholder uh, capitalism over here. It's all the same thing. Correct. It's different facets to the same bullshit different, diamond. Different euphemisms. Yeah. Different bullshit diamonds. Fugazi. That's an interesting metaphor for Fugazi. it. Fugazi. I watched yeah, it on Nebraska. It's a Fugazi. <laughs> Okay, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a, it's just different metaphors, different uh, euphemisms, if you will, as part of these metaphors in order to describe the same vision of a one world government. We're back to this theme of utopia, this no place, this nowhere. And it's, you know, now here, it, now here, the nowhere yeah. is now here, Tony. Now, uh, how convenient, you know, how convenient maybe for the we were listening to Kurt Vonnegut a little bit and went, you know, displaced in time, maybe, you know, is there is not the great reset of utopia? And the uh, the attempt by utopians to create it with their ignorance, leading to the unintentional dystopia that now we're starting to see on the uh, horizon here. Which is how ironic that it would create a dystopia, even though it's supposed to eliminate human suffering and bring about uh, a, a new human gold. Ah, but Dostoevsky them. says you Correct. need suffering with meaning and, you know, to, to really self-actualize and to test your metal and develop your character and integrity. You need these types of trials and tribulations. That's correct. And Vonnegut made his whole career about having characters. If you don't know what happens to them is good or bad, right? Kind of like Hamlet. Uh, it's all about also, nuance. It's all about right? nuance of shades of gray in between. Things happen to Hamlet. Is that a good thing or a bad thing that happens to Hamlet? You won't find out until later, right? So there's a lot of nuance in these sort of things. Correct. And it helps to be literate and not just watch like TikTok videos for eight seconds at a time in order to see your way out of these things. Now, if you want to be trapped inside the thing they're creating... Have at it. You got the metaverse. You got the goggles. You got you know all the stuff that they got going on over there. No, that's well said. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting juxtaposition between factual books like you, what you have on screen right there, One Nation Under Blackmail, incredible read. Um, just got mine in the mail. I've been reading parts of it uh, throughout the week that you have here, but then also reading these sort of fictional tales. Like uh, we we're uh, I talked about my first time ever reading Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Because he's explained Dostoevsky, of course, back in the what the early 20th century. Um, the little was it the Brothers Karamazov and uh, Notes from Underground and these these incredible works. They really explain the idiot. The, the, sure, yeah, absolutely. They're they're exploring the depths of human psychology. You know the 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 fact that we embody both the capacity for incredible good and incredible evil, and we have to be aware of this sort of. I don't want to say it's a duality, but this sort of tension, this mind-body dichotomy, as Plato would sort of argue for, and it's really for in the Platonic perspective, is about finding balance using the rational component in order to find to balance the animal and the the emotional side of ourselves. And that's 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 a that's a process of self-actualization by experiencing life, by experiencing hardship, and out of that we seem to extricate meaning. 
And I think that's a very important understanding. That's where that's where really Jordan Peterson is a sort of modern uh, they sort of philosopher carries forward these ideas from Tolstoy, from Dostoevsky, from Nietzsche. And, um, you know, but I, isn't a clean room like a utopia, Tony? Or is, is it, it maybe a different thing? Maybe it's just a little self-discipline and self a little self-discipline, self-organization well, might just be the first step to realizing that one can take and not only have agency, but take initiative in their own life to have uh, effect on it and actually find that they might have some more meaning. And so you can have, have a clean room and still believe that utopia is not really something we should be reaching out for. And instead of trying to avoid the, all the suffering, we should just go through the legitimate suffering it takes us to reach whatever goal we're setting for ourselves. As Aristotle described in the Nicomachean Ethics, when he talks about the magnanimous man. And I think that's what I wish I could read it. And maybe someday I will. Maybe I'll read it uh, parts of it for the town hall. Because the magnanimous it's just, man is a superlative example. There magnanimous you go. man. It's a good way to wrap uh, it up. The... Um, the man with the, well, what's the, what's the Greek term? It's on the tip the of my tongue. The man with the golden gun. That's a James Bond. Uh -huh. But this is an important uh, consideration um, that we should juxtapose the deep psychology, the philosophy, the, the spirituality, or, you know, that all these are sort of intertwined into the human condition, as well as the hard and cold, like the, the hard and cold facts of what we see on the screen there about human activity in regards to having completely uh, unscrupulous behavior, wanton, unscrupulous behavior, uh, just belligerent, out of control, not even thinking, just absurd obnoxiousness in regards to that. This is really exploring the depths of human evil in, in a way. So we can, you know, we can juxtapose a lot of these, like uh, these great authors in the 20th century, a lot of which came out of ironically uh, Russia. And let's not forget Dostoevsky was um, imprisoned. I think he went to Siberia or he was, in, Actually, so he was a political it, prisoner at some that point. That dude has a life. crazy, like he has a crazy story. If, if I remember, like he was like 24, 28 when he was sentenced to, to death. That's correct. And, and then he, he went through that out. whole experience. Yeah, yeah, then he got yeah, reprieved yeah. Yes. and then he went off and started to really mature himself because they gave him a literal like ego death situation, That's which right. used to be a rite of passage for individuals. But uh, when done by hostile forces, probably not the best thing in the world for yeah. you. It became ritualized uh, and people forgot the source of where these great mysteries came from. The whole it didn't kill experience. him. So it made it stronger, probably something yeah. like that. Now, LD, That's this right. is where you get your thumbnail for this video. Yeah. There we go. We have it. I didn't see. We're just picking up on some of the production things we needed during the week. It's like we were doing deep dives. We didn't have the right thumbnails. It was hard to get a frame. I doing it live. Wait, 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 wait. Doing it live. Let me let me spotlight you. Take two. Uh, I'll take two. Take two. Let me I'll get take two. This is what it looks like right here. There you go. There Boom. we go. Now we do have some audio from one of those camps. Um, just what, what you reading for? There you they go. Play that <laughs> and, and, and over and over and over. They'll probably just tell you to take it when they're done. <sighs> take, take it. it. I mean, maybe that's what Dostoevsky is really saying. You know, the legitimate suffering that you have to go through. Maybe you should just take it. Maybe not. You could try to avoid it and create a utopia, but it doesn't doesn't seem to have a good track history. <laughs> it doesn't. It really doesn't. <laughs> I, agree, I agree. It's just uh, I'm enjoying when the two thirty blackmail. That sound clip, take it, might have come from one of those sessions at the Blue Suites at the Plaza Hotel. Now, what's yeah, interesting one is- One of many, it seems it was, like. Um, Roy Cohn, um, that was very yeah. interesting. Uh, oh, William Barr. Huh, that was hilarious. I had no idea about that. That was uh, shocking to me. Um, not shocking. Do my research, bro. 
I'm not phoning it. I'm not phoning it in. That's these. It's these small little details that you I mean you're seeing a continuity of the same players between Bill Barr and Ken Starr. And I mean, you got all the synchronicity and coincidence theory you can muster for Let's one. Let's not forget on the other side we had Dershowitz who was also on pedophile plane over That's at Epstein Island that he became entwined huh. with with that Epstein guy. It's very curious. Point. Yeah, what predilections might draw them together? <laughs> I will not speculate. We might have a pension for the same activity. Who knows? Birds of a feather flock together. together. Um, so moving forward, there's a lot to understand in this book. So reading it is one thing. Understanding the connections between the people uh, is That's another That's the logic thing. stage. That's the important. So you want to get like, you can almost treat volume one as the general grammar stage. You're getting the right. basic facts, the basic details for what is then going to be the very interconnected web of volume two. Not that there's very, she lays out the interconnected web of volume one, but as you stated, it's pure facts. Um, she, she does a great job of leaving out speculation and that's to her credit as a journalist. And I agree with RFK, probably the most uh, profound and, and the best investigative journalist we have to, to, to this day. And there's some great ones out there, but it's a kudos to her, her intelligence uh, and her mettle and her fortitude. I mean, she did this in the time of a pandemic and she had a child and she didn't have much, that she mentioned uh, much she help in that child. regard. Oh, second child. Excuse yeah, she me. had a toddler and then she had a baby. So oh, she already wow. had a toddler oh, when, co- when the pandemic started. Then during the book production, she also became a mom a second time. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, congratulations to her, but it's a lot considering she couldn't get much help. And I know she was, tra- and that, let's not forget during that time, she was traveling from Chile to, she was in England. So I know she went to, uh, yeah, England she's got a little moxie. Bit, There's and then no she went back to attitude Chile. over there. She's yeah. swinging for the fences. Sounds like someone who takes initiative and takes responsibility. And uh, I don't know, just noticing. Now, something that might help people, if you're reading volume one and you're not familiar with these people, you could do something for yourself. Like you could reference the model that we have in the Grand Theft World community, or you could just build your own model. Ask the question, you know, who who is Adnan Khashoggi? And you get his Wikipedia page and you get this free software at uh, personalbrain.com. I mean, I use the professional software because I, I output my models, but you're just building a, an understanding. So drop it in there, drag and drop the URL, just from grab it from the, the, the bar. We, we have tutorials on this. We've done it in the past years. And you start finding out. So, uh, you know, he's influenced by Ibn Saud and he was part of this BCCI. You drag those pieces in. You read those pages too. You got to go to BCCI, BCCI and say, what was the Bank of Credit and Commerce International? And get a gist of what that general grammar is. And you don't have to know everything about it, but you're just building out. These are literally you building synapses in your head, new neurons. You are actually creating new territory, new real estate in your brain by understanding uh, what was the Mujahideen? Did it have a relationship with Iran-Contra affair? And as you understand each of these topics, you're like, oh, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap. And then at some point, your brain makes critical mass out of it and says, I understand. I could cogently communicate about any of these topics because you're doing that work for yourself. Now, it's not, it's not, it wasn't assigned in school. It's not going to be mentioned on the night's nightly news. You're not going to see Tony Robbins saying, hey, you should go out and learn about these types of things, right? You're going to have to do this for yourself. We are just inviting you to do similar things that we did. And we found it so useful that we continue to talk about it and build these synapses. Like this model that's in front of you, I started building this in 2008. I will still be working on it in 2028 if all goes well. And we still have electricity and they haven't sent us back to the Stone Age. This is essential to my understanding, memory and communication. 
And I, but, I invested in myself by just sitting down and doing the learning day by day by day by day over years and years and years and years. And I watched a lot of that when I spent time with you. And I think the most important thing for people to realize is that memory works by association. So when you make these connections, it's amazing what you'll be able to recall once you have a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for, a fulcrum or a pivot point or something you can latch onto. And all of a sudden it's, it would just becomes something automatic, but you have to form these associations first because it's going to be a random sort of noise or chaos at first with all these facts. And then once you start to bridge these connections and see, see the connections, it's much easier to be able to recall and then have confidence in your ability to communicate these, these facts, the, and the, the logical connections that go with these facts to other people that, you know, even though it seems so overwhelming, I mean, Rich just started with, you know, one simple thought and all of a sudden it built out to something that has how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of connections. And so watching him go through it, he, you know, highlights some books and then he goes to the brain. I remember, and I also think about David Allen when he says the brain's great for having ideas, not holding ideas, you know, as you mentioned to, and something I've done terribly at this, but uh, you know, how, how many of us are guilty of having, you know, a hundred tabs open? on a browser and then we get late at night and you know, if we restart the yeah, computer, this is where the computer I take those up, tabs and let them make them into the something. Future. Exactly. So right. I can leverage them at the time in the future when I need them. So That's right. like uh, as a, for instance, Whitney and in her excellent book, she'll mention men, many times people like Manucher Gurbanafar. And I said, I know who that is. Cause I've listened to the peace revolution episodes where he's talked about from Iran Contra and from listening to those elements that I include in those episodes, I had modeled out who were his influences. How did he get to that position? What were key things that he did? I don't know a lot about the guy, but I know more than most anybody who's delivering television news on any of these topics, just from doing a little reading. And we can all be more educated listeners and viewers by doing things like these while we're listening to a new documentary by Aaron and Melissa Dykes or, you know, a Corbett documentary, these sort of things, right? Jay Dyer analysis, Jason Burma's deep dive. These are things that I'm like, oh, that's substantial. I want to put that into the model. This is evergreen information, right? When um, when someone's talking about 9-11 and we need to talk about the aircraft piracy changes on June 1st, 2001, that puts uh, Rumsfeld in control of shooting down planes all of a sudden, I need to know where that's at. I need to know who was involved with it, what changes were made, what other stand down orders. Not, right. not to mention We're the in place. Was it otherwise Kroll? I'm going to be a chump. Was it Kroll, yeah, Kroll the one that redid, yeah. this, that redid the security recently in the trade? I forget if it was Kroll They're or all Secure, Securecom. Or my thing was Securecom. Well, maybe I'm getting Securecom is the Marvin Bush company. Kroll is who took over World Trade Center security where John. Okay, P. that's Neal. right. It was Kroll then. It was that's Kroll. the second John O'Neill did. this episode. Yeah. Five hours ago was John J. O'Neill. This is John P. O'Neill. And there was also uh, the Kroll on-track data recovery, Kroll security group. Uh, and I worked amidst these companies because uh, the owner of this company, both owners of this company were clients of mine. So this That's is right. where my professional life cr- crossed into these crazy ideas that are expressed in films like this, right? Noticing that, that's the, been scrubbed the from the internet apparently yeah, recently. Right. We tried I had to show to clips per- of that. Yeah. But they talk I mean, about I still guys have like it preserved, this. but yeah, good. And he's not scrubbed from the yeah, internet. So you Hank can start Greenberg, by yeah. saying, who's Hank Momo Greenberg, Maurice Greenberg. <laughs> and, and it's not Momo Strong. This is Momo No, this Green. is a different Momo. <laughs> and <laughs> what were his intelligence, what was his connections to Anglo-American <laughs> intelligence and the OSS and, you know, all the things that funnel down to the narco state. Look, here's CV Star and Company. 
Cornelius V Star. Yeah, Cornelius Star. Hey, wow, I, didn't yeah. we just talk about Kenneth Star earlier? And uh-huh. that's all up in there. There's Mao Zedong. Does American he have something to do group. with Chinese communism? Weren't we just talking about that? Like, and it's interesting because Mao Zedong, any of these topics. you know, he's the one who, you know, let it, it wasn't just uh, by the by the sword and all the blood that was shed uh, in China. Let's not forget about the cultural revolution that took place as well. That sort of then from which they appropriate Western values, such as, you know, the same sort of attire that KC3 would wear. So they seem yeah. to have to erase one's culture and uh, to, you know, uh, prepare the way, prepare the runway for the landing That's interesting because here's jet. a good reference. And it looks or, like they've erased this culture. Deal with the devil. How the global mm-hmm. elite recolonized China by James Corbett. Fantastic, they erased yeah. that culture. Wow. There you go. I wonder what's in there that's so threatening <laughs> to society in these topics. Look, here's the multipolar oh, world goodness. right here. Isn't it AIC, AIC. China and US? Here's multipolarism right here. You're saying it's, it's China and USSR, Russia today, right? Like it's all set up by the same robber barons. A hundred percent. And it's all based like opium trade money and slavery. And they're the ones who built the infrastructure in regards to the railways, both in Russia and in China. And that was Here's David Rockefeller II. bragging about it in From a China, Tra- China Traveler in 1973, August 19th. Let's see if I can get it on screen here. Oh, it's a deletion notice. Wow. Okay. They got to censor shit, that off the interweb, man. everybody. That's so crazy. We got to start screenshotting August this stuff, man. 10, we, we almost need to go through. Someone There's who's out there wants to go through Rich's brain and start screenshotting some of the references he had there because they're 10 years ago, this wasn't an issue, but obviously now it's uh, becoming overwhelming. In regards Why would they to need scrubbing the, the internet? This is, uh, this is so obnoxious. Dude. The part we, where he time- bragged about Mao being like their best project. Why would they censor that? And he we can get to, brag, to the New York Times. Memoirs. <clears throat> I can get it in the New York Times. I will go get the source while we okay. play this next video. Okay, so now let's get into, uh, we're going to have to shift gears and uh, we're going to hold the thought on One Nation Under Blackmail. Uh, part two will be in a couple weeks because the rest of the topics tonight will still celebrate that title, One Nation Under Blackmail. That's the theme for this episode. But I wanted to get into uh, this case <clears throat> where I heard in the past week, uh, I think it was in a closing statement, uh, the night of the dark soul. Uh, I think it was a court quote used by Norm Pattis, which is interesting in the context of the uh, the second Alex Jones trial. The first one was in Texas. This one is in Connecticut. He's down to six, one, two, three, four, five, six jurors, and uh, was already uh, found in uh, default and it's liable. A default judgment, correct? Yeah. And so this is just about damages. It's a damages hearing that's going on. A lot of things discussed had nothing to do with his defense because it wasn't a viable he can't thing. mention it but he the, gotta, yeah so the, the, the prosecution or the plaintiff counsel in this case could bring it up ad nauseum in regards to, to gaslighting when he can't respond to the things they're claiming he said because that was never he was never found guilty of that so that was well it is just so what we're going to do is we're going to go to uh just to give ld a heads up what we'll go to next we're going to go to uh closing statements by the plaintiff and closing statement by Norm Pattis for the defense. And I'll give a little, because I listened to a lot of the trial this week. There's oh, a, man, it was tough to listen to. Oh, that, first those off, closing statements were ridiculous. Where we but, left off last week was Jones was supposed to come back and testify, and then he didn't end up going back right. and testifying. So they did direct examination, 
They didn't do cross-examination to repair that. And they were going to have him come back and testify and kind of like testify in first person. And he would have more freedom to express himself because he didn't have very much freedom in the clips we saw last week. That ended up getting scuttled. I missed the part of the deliberations or behind the scenes or the sidebars where that all happened because I thought he, he said on the one broadcast this week he was heading to Connecticut. I think he expected to testify. I think something changed behind the scenes. And all of a sudden, they just started working on uh, nitpicking parts the of charges. the juries, you know, the unanimity of all the yeah, charges. Which is and, Absurd. All the sidebars were fantastic. You get yes. a real legal education on how yes. things really work by not just watching when the jury's in the room, but watching what's going on, why they had to send the jury out of the room. Like they're well, talking about consensus know. in regards to a jury um, uh, deliberation and judgment. Like that's absurd, especially in a, I don't know if that's uh, considered standard in a civil case, but according to the judge, because it's such a strange case because of the default judgment, you know, what does it take a sort of, as you pointed out, unanimous agreement, or is it just like a majority? Or it has is to be it just unanimous a, on each of the average. counts, basically. See, but and they say it's an average because that's what they're going to bring well, up. Well, the other side. Is, now, here's the interesting thing. It's so, so when weird, you get down man. to it, there's an argument. You're right made. about it. But anyways, go ahead. I'm sorry. There's an argument being made by the plaintiffs where basically they're saying we cannot uphold our burden of proof to the jury, but it's Alex Jones and it's the it's the it's the defendant's fault. Because they didn't give them stuff they didn't have in the first place, this play. And I'm like, this is where you should have found out in pretrial that you didn't have a case. Exactly. Instead of asking everyone to imagine that you have evidence to prove, like hold your burden of proof and that you misled these families down this whole legal route when you knew from the get go, you didn't really have. But they don't. They didn't need the evidence because they got the adjudication to be defaulted. That's the. That's which is the a key. really brilliant. That was the key. Yes, it was brilliant legal strategy. Amazing. Didn't strategy. see that one on Perry Mason. I didn't. I well, didn't. no one thought of it. So it was really. I've um, seen a lot of Perry Mason too over the years. Oh Dad, man, I'm a big fan. Spacing. Was it Barnes? I think he loses two cases ever. Perry. Uh, anyway. Well, my parents still watch it. I see it every once in a while over at their house. But, um, the. Uh, is it Robert Barnes? I think he mentioned that the state, local, and state courts, like the procedural errors that are made, are egregious compared to now federal courts are still as as corrupt, but they're not corrupt as much as procedural consideration. Can't be as obvious. They have to hide it better. Exactly. And this is pretty exactly. obvious. Like this is a this is crazy, especially the and, fact they filmed the whole thing, including the sidebars, including the pre-jury coming into the courtrooms. You get to hear the deliberation between the two lawyers and them talking to one another about. It's fascinating. Like, I, I mean, it's terrifying, but fascinating at the same time. Yeah. So the the gist is uh, there's some frustrations going on. There's three lawyers on the one side, Pattis on the defense side by himself. Uh, there's some friction that happens because uh, they're trying to get him off his game, Pattis. So they're taking little digs, basically. Like, uh, we we do this all the time. You're, you're you know, uh, you do criminal law. You don't do a lot of civil law. And he has to defend himself. And this yeah. has been going on now for weeks. And now he's getting a little tired of it and putting up a little bit more resistance. I don't think it's necessary to go find those little clips and point all that out. I just want to He did a great job, though. He did a great that, job. I really I want to explain that under a lot of pressure and turmoil in that situation, like he's still doing his best to defense, uh, to, to defend free speech and the precedents that we're all seeing coming from this case. 
Because for us, it's not so much about what the guy did or said with his mouth. If he made mouth sounds and hurt people's feelings and caused them damage, then there's a process for that. But for the rest of us, the precedent being set is that you can't question official stories, especially false flags. And false flags are one of the essences of histories. And one of the first things that Machiavelli teaches when he's talking about conspiracies is the usefulness of making it think it's your enemies doing the things. Right. It's conspiracy of the courts through the science of leverage. It's just and, by having control or having leverage over some what's so the whole idea of going back to blackmail that Whitney well, Webb is talking about. Right. Sorry. So I'm just asking for fair and equal justice. And if yes. one side has their hands tied behind their mouth back and their their mouth is gagged, that's not the same as this other uh, other group being able to unfold as much stuff that may or may not be substantiated. There's a lot of hearsay. It doesn't get, uh, you know, the objections are overruled because yeah. special situations, special, you know, even for Norm, even for Norm in his closing statement, they, they, they object a number of times. They're sustained and struck from the record. So when the jurors go back to deliberate, they don't they're get that reference. That part. Right. That's correct, which is so, just obnoxious and absurd for so many, on so many levels. So a, a lot of unusual facets going on. I do on. want to say one real, yeah. real quick thing, because you mentioned the First Amendment. Norm brings up, not only is it an, an, an attack on the First Amendment, it's really the First and Second Amendment. He, he does a good job of tying the two together and showing it's 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 both. And Alex Jones essentially was alluding to that when his sort of reckless use of um, phrasing, sentencing, you know, uh, discussing these sorts of topics, if you will. I wish that there was such like uh, a vehement investigation hmm. into the absence of security the false reports of the priest and the two nuns and the sure. van that they were in pursuit of that morning. There's a lot of reports. How all of a sudden it's shots. all down to the one lone shooter who happens to die mm-hmm. in the room and he had a hundred percent kill rate. Right. And then the FBI has to redact everything and the Hartford current can't print anything about it. And they got the middle finger in their FOIA request. Like none of that's supposed to matter because Alex Jones is bad man and he needs to pay $7.8 billion to billion. pay for his badness. Billion. That tells me ambulance chasers, we're misleading those families and it really wasn't about justice for those families or making them feel better. It gave them their 15 minutes of stage so they could ha- be heard to the public. And that I thank those lawyers for getting those people in that situation so they could have that catharsis. But yeah. I don't like the auspices under which they were led into that situation or Correct. the censorship used to bring this concocted story that they went and sued on into reality because that's another thing. They had a utopia-based story. His evidence, his discovery doesn't fit that story. So he's in default because his evidence doesn't fit their utopia story. Now they're causing censorship and a whole bunch of deletion of rights and privileges that's that right. were there were real things in the past. That's right. And now And let's so, not forget, you know, Steve Bachinik, um, curious fellow, as well as Wolfgang Halbig, I think yeah. was his name. And so you look at these individuals and that was what a lot of the more extreme alternative community looked into as far as alternative narratives. And I think Jason Burmas did a great job. He's like, here's, this isn't deep research, as he said, like this right. took him 30 minutes to show, yes, it exists. I just right. drove by it. In fact, coming up here, um, this town exists, the school exists and children died. Uh, it's a very simple equation here. It's not something out of the norm. It's very easy to look but up. But for Fetzer yeah. to write that whole book, because that's, uh-huh. th- that's the other thing. Between Fetzer, Halbig, and Pachenik, yes. those actions of those individuals when I talk who about Alex, counterintelligence, holy shit. Like he's being held responsible for other people's actions. And that's also right. something that's a very, it, it's like, uh, it's not a good legal precedent. 
Yes, you're right. Unless you're going to try them under Rico conspiracy or something, and that's how they get the whole organization from one person. Like that's what they developed for their organized crime prosecution, which Rudy Giuliani, the Knights of Malta, involved with dressing up in ladies' dress and dancing on stage with Trump. With that's Trump? what he has to say. That's so he and doesn't go Malta far or... from Roy Cohn. He's his new Roy Cohn. Is that that's what it sounds like? If you read Whitney's book, Volume One, you're like, oh, I see what's going on. And and maybe for those that are interested, a Roy Cohn. That's a very that's that's we'll get into that more if we have some time. Um, this Tuesday night town hall, we might get into some of Templar Knights of Malta. We'll have to see where we go with that. But I'll, I'll talk to Senator. We've been planning a deep dive into that, and if I'm still here, maybe we'll we'll get. I'll see if I can finagle Rich to hop on as well. So we'll see. There's a lot of interesting connections there that uh, people have been asking a lot of questions in the queues for Richard and Tony channel. And we've discovered some more information in regards to the connection, especially with the erudite research of Whitney Webb, exposing a lot of those very troubling uh, connections in regards to the Knights of Malta. And they're basically a territory that has their, their, they're, they're uh, an organization that has no specific place, but they're sort of loosely affiliated with the Catholic Church that still exists to this day. They have no financials they need to release. They operate almost like a nonprofit that doesn't have to release any information. They have over 100,000 members, many of which are very powerful. Strange. Anyways, that's a, that's a side tangent. And so yes. we'll maybe get into that on the Tuesday night tunnel. Yes, her, ex- her expressed erudition is exemplary but we have to get it back to uh, the yep. Jones trial. Yep. And so bringing it, bringing it into uh, the home stretch, they uh, didn't have Jones testify again. I mean, yeah. so he, he got cross. What do you think that was? Did you hear defense. anything about that? By the way, I, I think maybe when it's already in a default and they're already going to ask for billions of dollars anyway, nothing he was going to say or present was going to change. And everything was going to be objected arguments. to anyways, I guess, most likely. Right. Yeah. That's what we found out watching last week. Right. So um, the closing argument started, the jury got sent off. They didn't come back on Friday, which is a kind of a good thing that they weren't all just like, yeah, 7.8 billion unanimous. Boom. Right. So we have yet to see how it, uh, how, how it fleshes out or how it affects uh, precedence and the cooling of uh, speech and the censorship and these sort of things going on out there. So um, let's go to, I can't remember if it was uh, which attorney, if it was Maddie or Coscop did the, uh, the closing but let's go to uh, the plaintiff's closing argument from the second Alex Jones trial and uh, get a flavor of what they're building out. Because let me also say, I think Norm I went first, to, but I just want to give uh, this context. I think Norm went first, but the plaintiffs went second, which is sort of weird. I think I don't, the I don't plaintiffs think... went first, Norm went second, and the plaintiffs oh, had 41 okay. minutes left to rebut what Norm said and put it back in the You're box. Right. You're right. But I also want to say- I was confused by that because usually defense gets last, but sorry, go ahead. That I did the hard work of, I listened to all the parents' testimony. I listened to the family's testimony. I saw the pictures of their children. I felt- the anguish that they are probably still feeling in these situations of what it would be like in, in, to be a parent and, and faced with all that stuff and how they felt like they lost their moorings. And they just, you know, that's a traumatic situation. And the false reports by Fetzer, Pachenik, uh, what's the, uh, the, the school security guy, oh, what, what's Halbig, Halbig? Yeah. did not help like Jones, is in the midst of like doing the show every day and researching he's depending on other people to give him credible information and those three pieces definitely didn't do him justice oh and let's be fair to turn the favor that he extended to those those characters 
I have a tremendous amount of respect for what he's been able to build up, but let's not sugarcoat the fact that because it's such an operation has such an incredible turnover of information. It's hard. One of the things I think they've struggled with is vetting information, which are doing a much better job now, I think. But in the past, it was, you know, he was building up his brand, his business, and it was difficult, I think, to vet everything. And he was trying, and, you know, Steve Bachinik said some lot of interesting things, a lot of which were true, especially in regards to 9-11 and Bush and these sorts of things. Is But then all of a sudden, he got sort of fed some data that didn't seem to yeah. check out. And so it's a, it's a confusing and difficult situation to be in. And but I think we're all learning our lesson. always seeking to get someone like him to take that information yeah. and run with it. So the, well, that's the I key wouldn't put it Intel, past the Media Matters type of organization yes. to kind of seed those things or get right. the blackmail on one of those dudes and get them to do those things, right? That's right. But what I wanted to say was, I believe the, the school was real. The children were real. Absolutely. Those parents are real. The pain they're feeling and continues to feel uh, continue to feel that's all that's real did he add did he aggravate did he stick a finger in a not uh, yet healed wound seems like absolutely is he the total responsibility for why adam lanza allegedly went in and did all those things with 100 percent kill rate and such uh efficient exchange of no, magazines it's more than and reloading and no jamming and you know all this other stuff he had not- to do but we can you know i'm not going to talk that's not the point of this the point is to hear those families and then to weigh what was said and done to them and come up with $7.8 billion. I can't, you know, I don't know who's going to go there or, you know, I just think that was like such a huge ask that it made it obvious. It was all about money. Right. And it's it, when it's called no, it's more about money. Court and ambulance chasing, there might be something to that. If you actually investigate, not just one side of the story, I'm not saying that's an accurate statement. I'm just saying, if you investigate more than one side of the story, you might see that there's some merit to that claim, or at least somebody ha- holding that opinion should be respected because those, those symptoms might have a deeper root cause that has yet to be exposed. It's more than just about money though. It's about taking down an individual in his business. It's about I, and, one nation under blackmail. Yeah, that's right. And like, let's not are. forget, it's not just about, you know, there's, he's not the one who, you know, has any affiliation, obviously, with Adam Lanza. At the same time, he's not the one when he said what he said. No, I bet Adam it's Lanza for, saw plenty of CNN and MSNBC and whatever correct. else his mom was watching. Just and like the Buffalo get, shooter who had some sort of manifesto. He he was on the left and he or was the Parkland some shooter looked czar. up the Rolling Stone to tell him what the best shooting, what's the, what was the best weapon for a school shooting and Rolling Stone told him AR 15. And then he went and killed people. Let's Are not they forget. getting deep sixed for $7.8 billion. Oh, is that because they're on the other political side of the spectrum? I think so. Cause otherwise they would Remington arms them. Oh, interesting. I wonder how that, so it's, oh, huh. so that's one that way to do it, do it through the courts. Noticeable. The other one might be through the expansion of the IRS. We'll have to see how that goes. But I just want to point out that, it's an issue of culpability. Like Alex Jones did not, is not personally responsible for the individuals that acted in a wanton fashion, right? That acted belligerently, that ended up listening potentially to him or to other uh, alternative media producers. But Remington and Arms is responsible for what Lanza is accused of doing. So it's all about sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? But um, uh, shirking responsibility. That's, you know, the opposite of what we were talking about. Or just going to wherever the deepest pockets are that might help to fulfill your agenda of also crushing the Second Amendment. It's all combined. It's all combined. Yeah. And, you know, the idea is sort of this abdication. It's it's an abdication of response because it's basically saying the responsibility isn't in the hands of the person who has agency because I guess they don't believe in agency. It's in the person of the 
the I guess the people they don't uh, like. Might uh, makes right, Tony. Uh, it's good old fashioned social Darwinism, bro. We call that ad baculum. It's a it might make sure it hits you with a, a stick, and then you yeah. learn. That's what ad baculum is. Yeah. Yeah, it's the walking stick. Appeal to the walking stick. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, the carrot or the stick. They're just offering the stick these days. We're all out of carrots. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they ran out of it because of the tortoise on top of, you know, the Rothschild on top of the tortoise ate them all. You know? I've got it. your choice is carrot or the stick and we're all out of carrots. That's what they're saying. That's like a paraphrase. Carrot takes right. too long. That's a Fabian strategy. They need to hurry this up. They get the agenda 2030. But anyways. Let's so let's go, go to uh, the clip of closing arguments and see, you know, just from this, you haven't seen, you're not in the jury. You haven't seen all the evidence. You've probably seen a lot more than all the evidence at this point. Uh, Go ahead and let's see uh, how they and, and notice the rhetoric, the placement of the speaker, the the eye contact, the content of what they're saying, all these sort of things you can learn from because, uh, you know, life's a long game. You might need to know some of that stuff in the future, how to express yourself effectively to others and get them to take up your position as opposed to somebody who might be making up stuff against you, you know. So let's go ahead and uh, let's see how it rolls out. Muted. Here we go. Just uh, give your attention to counsel, starting with plaintiff's counsel. Whenever you're ready, please. Take your time. Ron. Do you want time reserved? Oh, yes, Judge, yes. Um, yeah, 30 minutes, Judge, for the bottle. Beg your pardon? 30 minutes for rebuttal. Okay, Mr. Farrar, you're on top of that? Yes, sir. Whatever. All right, whenever you're ready, counsel. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, I'm very happy uh, to be able to have this opportunity to speak with you this morning. Um, and I know that the families that you see here uh, who have been here every day are very, very grateful to you for your attention. Um, and your concern uh, throughout these weeks. Uh, I think we've seen just about every aspect of the human experience on display in this courtroom for the past several weeks. Um, and if you're like me, as you've been listening to the testimony, there may be moments where you found yourself drifting to thinking about your own things, your own experience, what's important to you in your own life. And in opening statements, I told you that you had everything you needed to make your decision in this case, because you're human beings. You understand what that means. You understand what's important in your life. Your parents, your children, your grandchildren. How you spent your time building a life for yourself and an identity. And there's some very basic principles that I think all of you understand. That you learn as kids, teach your children, teach your grandkids. Things that you know, even though all of you are in different stages of your life. Tell the truth. Don't hurt. Especially when you're down. Stand up to bullies. Because bullies won't stop. Especially when being bullied makes them very, very rich. All of these things you know. But there are some things that you probably learned. Things that I didn't even appreciate until I sat through the testimony, and that is how far and wide and deep a lie can spread. Especially when it has the machinery behind it to push it for years and years. In fact, 
parts of American life that are, are difficult to comprehend. You heard about an organization that was set up for that purpose, for the purpose of spreading lies like that as far and wide as possible. Why? Because the more people see it, the more people come to the website, the more people end up in the store, the richer it gets. And we're going to talk about all of that, but what I want to start with and just acknowledge is what we saw in this courtroom yesterday, which is that the lies that started on December 14, 2012, are continuing to this very day. In two months, it will be 10 years, 10 years since these families lost their loved ones. And even now, even now, he's still doing it. I just want to give you a sample of this. Why don't we go ahead and play just a clip from what Mr. Jones said within hours, hours of the shooting. They have hit the ground running in a buildup. I said, this is the attack. Look, people got to find the clips the last two months. I said, they are launching attacks. They're getting ready. I can see them warming up with Obama. They've got a bigger majority in the Congress now in the Senate. They are going to come after our guns, look for mass shootings. And then magically it happens. They are coming. They are coming. They are coming. Two years later, it's the same thing. And by the way, you've seen, you've seen dozens of things. I'm going to show you a chart of all the different times over the years Alex Jones was pushing this lie. You've seen dozens of them, but just let's go to two years later, January 13th, 2015. Uh, yeah, so Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake, with actors. Synthetic, completely fake, with actors. Now, you've heard, you know, some of Mr. Jones's preferred phrases. Synthetic, fake is a $3 bill, total hoax. He repeats over and over, including last week, last week on his show. Let's go to the September 29, 2022. It is synthetic as hell. You saw that video yesterday. It's all made up. Now that I see how rigged this trial is, it's as synthetic as hell. You saw the video where he said not only is the trial rigged, the jury's rigged. All of you. The judge is a tyrant. That's what he does. Why? Because he knows he needs to maintain his credibility with his audience because they're everything to him. And we are nothing to him. So let's start from the beginning. You heard this testimony. You had millions of listeners by the time you were 24, right? Yes. And you were the beginnings of a media empire, right? Yes. This is the early 2000s. Mr. Jones starting to build methodically that audience, that audience that would come to him for the message that he spread on Infowars.com, that message being that there's a conspiracy, a global plot out to get you. The global plot out to get you, to enslave you, to kill you, people in power out to get you. And it's such a convenient 
message for him to send because every day he's got something new. Something new to share with the people that are coming to him about how they know that this is true. And he starts to build Infowars.com, PrisonPlanet.com, PrisonPlanetTV, the centerpiece of his media operation, The Alex Jones Show, Infowars Store. In the early days, it was Infowarsshop.com. And you remember Clint Watts, our expert, he told you that this guy was perfectly situated to take advantage of the way stuff spread on social media. So he has Facebook, all those Facebook accounts, Twitter, YouTube, millions of views, building and building and building this organization to spread this message. Remember Clint Watts, the message. This is Alex Jones' testimony. And the message that you convey to your audience and have conveyed for the last 20 some years is that there's a group of international media, financial, and political elites that are conspiring to establish a global tyrannical government to enslave and ultimately kill people. Yes. Now, to you and me, that's a little far-fetched, right? But to his audience, especially the audience that is getting day after day after day, the same audience that he's telling, I'm the only one that's going to tell you the truth about this, that starts to sink in. Let's play just a sampling of the way he conveys this message, including on the day of the shooting. They are coming, they are coming, they are coming. They've already taken over health care, the premiums are doubling, they're bankrupting that. They are already shipped GM to China. They are going to gut this country. They're going to shut down the power plants. They're going to bankrupt us. They are re-educating us. Just like we, uh, we were Ukrainians and they're Russians. They want us bankrupt. They want the counties and the cities bankrupted and federalized. The feds themselves run by globalists. What does my, what does the new magazine say? You get it by subscribing. You get 12 issues right away. This man wants your guns. And I read down here, they're declaring war on the Second Amendment, period. They are declaring war on the Second Amendment, period. They are coming after our Second Amendment. It is happening. They want to kill America in 2013. That is their goal. That is what they want. They are moving to do it. They are going to kill America. There is a war. You hear him talk about this a lot. Info wars. Everything's a war. And I'm going to show you a video later of him talking about how he hits the barbed wire and his army comes in after him. And then a couple weeks later, as he's pushing, as he's pushing that every single person who's brought this lawsuit is an actor, this is what he's saying to his audience. I guarantee you they're getting ready for false flags. They, all the signs are there. And they're going to blame it on us. And we've got to instantly come out and not take the guilt they put on us. Minute one, when they blame us, we got to go, well, hey, you did it then. And then they go, how dare you? Well, you're saying we did it. No, we don't believe a thing you say. You did. They'll go, that's outrageous. You just said we did it. You did it. You did it. You did it. You have the history of staging stuff. You did it. You're the suspect. You're the suspect. You're the suspect, government. You're the foreign bankrupt collaborators. Get out of our country. Get out. Get out. Get out. Do you understand how dark it is? How far down the line we are? How late it is? You're the suspect. You're the suspect. If 
five years later, it's the same thing. Let's go to September 4, 2018. And these people are just your enemy. They hate America. They are congenital frauds. They literally have been trained to hate the country and to hate you and your family. They are the enemy of the American people. Do you remember what Mr. Watts said about the importance of message? Fear, anger, demonization. That's the message. And who is he demonizing? Who is he saying are the enemies of America? That his audience is at war with? These people. And his audience gets it. And he tells them, he tells them that he's the one they can rely on. InfoWars is the house that truth builds. The front line of truth journalism. You remember, Ms. Paz was up here and said the one thing that Alex Jones told her in the however many minutes he gave her was, she's definitely not a journalist. Now why was that important? Because he doesn't want you to think, he doesn't want you to hold him accountable for what he says. But what he tells his audience is that they can count on for the truth. The truth in journalism. The Alex Jones Show is the daily development. It's an important guest for you, the real truth and nothing but. The House of the Truth Bill. The, this presence, along with hard-hitting content and the courage to speak the truth, it's everywhere. This is Alex Jones. Right after he says, they staged Aurora, they staged Sandy Hook, the evidence is overwhelming. They staged Sandy Hook, the evidence is just overwhelming. And that's why I'm so desperate and freaked out. Uh, this is not fun. You know, getting out here telling you this, I, I, uh, somebody's got to tell you the truth. Somebody's got to stand against these people. Somebody's got to do it. And what did that, what did that kind of message and that kind of fomentation of anger and rage and distrust mean for him? His dad told you. And I'm going to skip to the middle of his answer. But in reality, it has to do with the fact that our customers are so loyal to us that they believe in what we're doing to such a degree that if we say something is good for you and it's a good value, they're going to buy it and buy a lot of it. That's the audience that he was building. That's the profit that he was seeking in the run-up to the San Diego And he told us in his deposition, Mr. Jones, would it be fair to say that you expect among the millions of your listeners Many will believe that you are telling them the truth, right? Yes. And sometimes that truth that you tell them is pretty horrifying, correct? Yes. Free speech systems and acknowledges that it works. Question, this message that he's been pushing out and telling his audience about all these things that they have to fear, A, he has remedies for that, he'll sell them, and B, he's the only one that will tell them the truth about it. That strategy's been working for him, right? Answer? Well, if you're looking at the social media numbers and the visits to the sites, yes. 
And he knows. He knows darn well. What kind of danger this represents for people who he targets. Because in 2011, he gave an interview with Rolling Stone, and this is what he said. Some unstable people are drawn from the bright flame of enlightenment. That is so-called conspiracy culture. Some trees are going to become uprooted in a storm like this. He's the one doing the uprooting. He's the one exploiting his audience and their fears and creating the storm. And so by the time December 2012 rolled around, this is the organization that he was sitting on. This is an organizational chart. You may remember when this came up. Because it was very, very important for the defense to try and suggest to you that this is just some fly-by-night operation. Alex Jones just gets up there and there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. It's very important for them to try and tell you that none of this is calculated. LD, fast forward to the last yeah, 15 minutes of his argument. Okay, one second. even has their own corporate representative. There's no organizational chart, is there? No, I haven't seen one. Pick it up here and I show you the organizational chart. I showed the organizational chart that InfoWars' own lawyer had seen. Because this is what an organization looks like that's ready to pounce. That has all the tools in place, all the people in place, ready to go. And if you look at the numbers that they provided from January 2009 to November, but that's the number we were able to present to you. Rewind a couple minutes. 2012 and 2018 on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube alone. 550 million times. And it's not just one person he said it out. It's 15. Think about that. Whatever number you had in your mind, me, the lie about me to one person, multiply it by 550 million, and then multiply it by 15. Because the judge is going to instruct you that your job is to award fair, just, and reasonable damages. Nothing more, but nothing less. Nothing less. And if you thought it was reasonable in your own mind for a guy like me who'd been lied about once to be awarded whatever the number is, then that's reasonable for them. 550 million times minimum. And you may say that's astronomical. It is. It is. It's exactly what Alex Jones set himself up to do. That's what he built. He built a lie machine that could push this stuff out. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And you might think, you know what? 
not enough. We know 550 million is just a fraction of how many people actually get that. But that's the number we were able to present to you because they didn't provide us with all the information we need. But when you think about the scale of the defamation, you can be instructed on how to think about it. Remember the lie I told you about? The lie that somebody is actually an abusive father? That's bad. That's bad. But what about the lie he said about them? They faked their six-year-old and seven-year-old's death. They faked their sisters. They faked their wife's death. They faked their mom's death. They're actors. They're part of a plot. They're part of a plot to take your life. If you're just one uprooted tree, Mr. Jones' audience has been telling me for years that they're coming for you. These people who are just normal, normal people become their enemy. They start to hunt them. That's the scale of the defamation here. It wasn't just about some side issue. This, the lie went to the heart of who they are. The defining moment in their lives, the loss of a child. It went to the heart of who they are. <clears throat> that's defamation. So that's a baseline. That's a baseline. The second component of damages you're going to be asked to consider has to do with emotional distress. to you a section of instructions that Judge Bellis will give to you. In assessing the invasion of the plaintiff's privacy, in their emotional distress damages, you may consider that it is already established that the defendant's conduct was extreme and outrageous. Indeed, in many cases, the defendant's extreme and outrageous conduct is clear evidence that emotional distress existed. This gets back to why I spent so much time talking about how reprehensible and outrageous what he did was. Because you know from that that of course it's going to cause people distress. The duration of the conduct. The defendant's conduct in spreading the statements and their actual spread. The harassment the plaintiffs endured. The plaintiff's fear of harassment. The nature and duration of the invasions of the plaintiff's privacy. 
the nature and duration of the plaintiff's emotional distress, including future distress. Isn't that what you heard about? This is the uh, this is the part of the case that only you, as a group of people, can really understand what they did. Francine and Mark both told you that, and Robbie, they told you that. Losing a child, especially in the way they lost their children, was bad enough. It was enough. But dealing with this, dealing with lies and harassment, even as you're preparing to bury your child and your mom or your sister or your spouse, think about that. Robbie finding his wife curled up in a coat closet at Emily's viewing because she was terrified that people just in the days after the shooting were going to come and disrupt it. Want to see Emily's body. Nicole Hawkins taking out an insurance policy on herself because she believes she's going to be killed to this day. Sleeping with mace in the back of a knife next to her bed. Mark Barton, scanning, constantly scanning who might be approaching them. Jennifer Hensel, always looking in the backseat. Erica Lafferty, receiving threats to rape her. She's moved five to six times in 10 years. She's on the run, the Parker family, on the run. How can this be? Their lives were shattered on December 14, 2012. But Alex Jones has made it so they can't escape. They can't escape. Soto children in their own town of Stratford. People Vicky grew up with. So we we trust you, I trust you to understand what that means. And let me just end with Robbie Ellis. One of the things that Robbie said that stuck with me ever since he told me. was the shame and the guilt he feels. Because if he just hadn't done that, if he hadn't made that statement trying to eulogize his daughter to the world, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Think how he carries that. Not just for his own family, but for every other family. Bill Oldenburg same thing. Bill Oldenburg says, I
He told you that the worst part about this is the guilt he feels. Because if he had just put on his equipment, just put on his vest right away, maybe Dave Wheeler wouldn't have had to do this. Because these people are struggling for answers. Why? Why? They're good people. These are good people. And what happened to them is not right. It is not okay. And it's going to be your job to make sure that Alex Jones, who has refused to even come to this courtroom to see the testimony of these plaintiffs, to understand the harm he has caused, that he gets it. It is your job to make sure he understands the extent of the wreckage he has caused. Because you know damn well he doesn't get it right now. He should. He should get it. Do you remember this? He brought a lawsuit for defamation while this lawsuit was pending. He himself recognizes that the words are so obviously hurtful that they require no proof, no proof that they caused injury in order for them to be actionable. And what was this harm, this catastrophic damage that Alex Jones suffered? A tweet with 20 retweets and 37 likes. Oh, he gets it. He gets it. But he doesn't care. And this is just getting back to Clint Watts, the 550 million. I wanted to show you this testimony. I'm sure you remember it. But when you compare that to the 20 tweets and Alex Jones, give me a break. But you know, Alex Jones is the victim, isn't he? But here's how you know why it's so important, why this case is historic, why you have an opportunity to do something as representatives of this community. Because I had Alex Jones on the stand, and I said, you're going to do it again, aren't you? This is a few weeks ago, and look what he is doing. Look what he's preparing his audience for. What is he conditioning them to believe? Which families is he going to hit the barbed wire and be a precision guided munition on next? You think he takes any of this seriously? What do you think it means when he tells his audience that Judge Bellis is a tyrant? You think they know what that means? I am so sick of the New World Order. I am so sick of this cult of psychopaths. I am so sick of their lies and their fraud. I don't believe anything they say. And I 
apologize for nothing I've ever done because I did it all from a place of purity and I've been 98% accurate. Stress they've suffered these ten years. So after you've considered the damages for defamation per se, you consider the emotional distress they've gone through. Make sure you remember that this is going forward. This is their one chance, and your one chance, your one chance to render a verdict on just. How much devastation, how much justice. 
Um, it's been a real privilege for us to represent these families. I can't tell you how fortunate and lucky we are. And I think it's a real privilege for you to, to be in this position. You represent this community. What will you do? Will you rather a verdict that finally forces Alex Jones to truly understand just how devastating his conduct has been? Because that's the only way, that is the only way he will stop. What will our community's verdict be on what's happened here? We saw you. I want to thank you very, very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, All real right, quick so before we, we play, to... before we play uh, the defense's closing argument by Norm Pattis, I just wanted to point out a couple things. <clears throat> Because, uh, as you heard, there was no objections, really, during his closing argument. Um, when he points out all those clicks in 2015, 2016, he's attributing those all to Alex Jones's in InfoWars coverage of Sandy Hook. But I also recall a guy named Trump being on InfoWars and, and promoting Alex and that sort of thing. And that probably brought a lot of clicks, too. They're not allowed to mention Trump or any of that in the trial. So they can just make it look like it's all Sandy Hook related. Like it's all worth. those half billion clicks were all because he talked about Sandy Hook for 23 minutes over 10 years. The right. other couple things is um, the parents suffer unimaginable grief. They're already traumatized losing a child or a spouse or a sibling. That's bad. Then people go out and say things that are not true, go to their houses, piss on their graves. A whole bunch of horrific stuff was testified to through the trial Jesus. that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. That's terrible. But that wasn't Alex's. He didn't do it. He was not the one doing all those things. Nor did he, he tell, tell people, people to do that. Right. He did not tell people to do that. That's the so thing to, that's so frustrating. Right. So to hold him accountable for that, it seems <clears throat> a little bit out there. I think one of the worst under reported parts of the whole the whole situation is the the siblings of the children who were lost as an example hearing the gossip in schools after you know Fetzer's book and you know Halbig's reports and these sort of things and that getting back to those kids some of those families have had to move five to eight times yeah, because of harassment but insane. trying to tie that harassment directly to Jones or his actions or his him telling people to that's that's not really it's, there in the case, and that's their burden of proof. Right. But they want they don't have to prove anything, though. In this case, there's already been a default judgment. So, like, they're trying to prove that the damages are so egregious, but that's just that's and to set a precedent. And that's a, in the rules. Right. You're not supposed to do these things. So we're going to hear Pattis also, since uh, uh, the plaintiff side opened up the rules. I think Pattis is going to say, "Oh, I can open the rules and read from what's what's going on here too." I think that's also part of his closing argument, if I remember correctly. And again, they're they're looking for half a billion 
to 7.8 billion. And that half a billion was like $1 for every click that Infowars had for those 10 years or some, some, something like that. He was right? referring, he was making that sort of false equivalency. And the, the fallacy, this is a perfect example of a straw man because they're making this massive assumption essentially that all those clicks, as you pointed out, uh, were related just to, that's the summation of all social media content over how many years? And they're making it seem as though they don't talk about anything else. And anytime he tries to mention anything else, obviously it's struck from the record because it's not allowed to be submitted. And if he's so be- guilty, why do they have to create a straw man? Why can't they just attack the actual evidence that was provided through discovery? They gave him all the, all those records. Like, like there's a lot of files on file with the plaintiff from discovery, yet they said he didn't comply fully with discovery. And when you get into that, right. it's because he got YouTube banned from the internet. Because Hillary right. Clinton said Sandy Hook, Alex Jones, and then all these companies went and banned him took away mm-hmm. like he didn't have disaster recovery plan for redundancy of data what do a you lot think? of businesses don't a lot of business especially the smaller businesses that blow up like that very quickly yeah you've, you've mentioned the the operation they run it's it's they do a great job for what they have but it's sometimes it's very difficult to get those processes in place you'd be surprised that even like what the company tesla doesn't have as far as redundancy and recovery that my buddy was telling me about when he he worked for uh, jeff bezos this one company blue origin so it's just They're you flying know, by the seat of their pants and uh in this Please. in this case, Alex got his britches caught on the barbed wire. Yes. Let's see if Norm Pattis helps him get over the wire, or something else. We're gonna have to wait to see next week what the uh, what the verdict is. But let's go right now to uh, Norm Pattis closing arguments in Alex Jones Sandy Hook defamation trial, part two. This is the Connecticut trial. Six jurors left. There's supposed to be, I think, twelve angry per- people. That was the film, right? That's the newer remade version. It's like more social friendly. <laughs> 12 angry people. Uh, now there's only six, maybe on the fence people. That. We don't know how convinced these people are. We'll find out from the jury deliberations. They only need an week. average apparently because you don't need to, it's the whole, it's as if every rule has just been thrown out because the case itself, as the judge points out, and I don't know if we're going to hear the sidebar. It's a real anomaly. It's yeah. Anomaly is an understatement for how weird so this let's, whole situation uh, is. Let's start with Pattis's. Let's start with his beginning and then um, we'll see how far we get into it. Sounds good. Please be seated. The record will reflect that the entire panel has returned. Just for your planning purposes, we will take our normal lunch hour. Uh, We may go a few minutes late, depending where we are in the argument, but we will definitely have a solid hour for lunch. Okay? All right? Attorney Pavis, whenever you're ready, please. It's still morning. morning. In many decades and hundreds of trials of doing this, I've never been prouder to be a lawyer than I am right now. And you're thinking, why? Because I believe in the rule of law. And the rule of law is under attack in this country. Some people believe it. Mr. Jones believes it. I'm here to defend Alex Jones. I'm here to defend free speech systems. In my opening statement, I began, and I'm going to read it because I wrote it then because I was worried I'd forget it. We live in times of deep political division in this country. One of the issues dividing us is guns, their possession, their use, and their control. The divides are deep, even dangerous. Don't let anyone tell you this trial is a means of addressing gun violence or political divisions. We're not here to make political statements, to reform the world, to take a stand against extreme speech. 
This trial is not a cultural moment. We are here because on another date and at another time, a court held Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems liable for harming the plaintiffs. You are forbidden to speculate why that happened. Your only job here is to determine how much damage my clients caused each plaintiff and then to assign a dollar value to suffering. The case comes down to money. How much money will each plaintiff get? We're asking you here to follow the law and nothing but the law. Wait, wait, before you play that, you will have in your jury deliberation room exhibit books. And you will have the documents that have been introduced, and you'll have pages that reflect videos. You've not been shown all of the videos in this case. You've been shown the videos the plaintiffs selected that most proved their points. And they've been able to argue a straw man. Alex Jones did all of this, all of this, to set up the Sandy Hook families. He put a target on their back, and he monetized it. That's what you were told. And you, I'm going to show you this exhibit. It takes about 19 minutes to play. I believe it's exhibit 45. Zach, please press play. Watch this video. As all of our hardcore listeners know from their own research, this country is in the middle of a civil war against globalist forces that are openly trying to stop the populist Americana new renaissance that we are attempting to bring back into play. Free market, true open societies versus globalism and corporate crony capitalist tyranny. We have an overload of news and information, obviously, today. We have Democratic Party throws a new giant temper tantrum because their Russia investigation has come up 100% high and dry. They've now thrown a new giant temper tantrum to restart another fake investigation, this time a civil one, so they can continue to say there's an investigation, oh, we're deposing this person, we're deposing that person, and the lawsuit is gigantic making all sorts of claims of the criminal activities that went on with Trump, WikiLeaks, and the Russians with zero, not one scintilla of evidence. Amazing. The Russians did not hack the DNC. It was leaked out of the DNC. We know from the files released that have digital coding on them that they were downloaded at six times the speed of the fastest internet connection two years ago. You understand, folks? Six times the fastest connection, still four times the fastest connection today. It was downloaded at point blank range, just like Snowden did in Hawaii inside the big NSA center. It was downloaded at point blank range. And now that's back in the news again today. Unbelievable disinformation. But notice, what did Trump say during the campaign? He said, I don't know the Russians or who else. Might be some fat guy in his you know, mother's basement, for all I know. You can ping off anywhere in the world. There's no evidence it's Russia. But as he said, but if it is the Russians, release it. It's about what's in the WikiLeaks. 
not about changing the subject as they always do into who released it. What about all the crimes? And I heard Ellen Schroyer do a great job yesterday during the broadcast when I took time off to do with some family. Said that today on the war room, he's gonna spend an hour, maybe spend the whole three hours, getting into the WikiLeaks and, and the top 100 WikiLeaks and then you calling in and mentioning what WikiLeaks you think are most important. Just like they hammer all this fake Russiagate stuff constantly, we should be hammering the bona fides, the bones, the guts, the reality, of what is in those things and all the other leaks that they don't even deny are real. Sensational crimes, sensational pay to play from the Russians and the communist Chinese and all these big foundations, billions of dollars going to Hillary, hundreds of millions from the Russians. Yeah, they can give money to the Secretary of State to then give them a third of our uranium, they did it. Absolutely, do the Russians wanna get our secrets and get our industry, absolutely. That's what we do to them. The point is, is that the traitor is Hillary. So, you got the Democratic Party files a monster temper tantrum because, as I said last week and this week, the wheels came off six months ago with the fake Russian investigation, but now it's really come up dry. It's moved on to the Arab Emirates and it's moved on to all these other places. So we're gonna be getting into some of that uh, as well. But this, this really shows how desperate they are. You know, Matt's a great producer in there. He's really hot and mad over this Megyn Kelly thing and other stuff. He's just like, you got to cover this today, Alex. you got to touch one of the top stories in the country. Uh, every channel is lying about you. Local, radio, TV, everything. You've got to cover it because it's bigger than you, Alex. And, you know, he's right. He said, this is a chilling effect. This is so bad. He's like shaking with anger. I've never seen Matt angry like this. There's like 20 minutes of news clips attacking me. I can't get to it. It's just all lies, folks. But I'm gonna try to go to some of it. But here's the bottom line. The media brings up Pizzagate and then misrepresents what I've said to beat me over the head and drag me to the mud. And then say that I need to be banned off the air. They bring up Sandy Hook and say that I say nobody died when I never said that. I played devil's advocate, they took it out of context. Megyn Kelly plays clips that are about Hillary being responsible for thousands of dead children in the Middle East. She edits that and then plays it when she was at Fox News, saying that I was saying Hillary was killing kids in a basement. So the, 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 the defamation is that they continue to bring up these cases, never letting me drop them. I don't think anything was going on at that pizza place. We investigated it. We walked it back. We clarified. I'm done talking about it. I just take it off the screen. Because it overshadows all the real stuff going on that I've got stacks of in mainstream news here. And then you've got Sandy Hook, where we talk about the police stand down. We talk about the men in the woods with guns that were on the news on helicopter shots. We said there's anomalies here. And then some of the people thinking it was a total hoax began to think I was covering it up. And I went, wait a minute, I'm not covering anything up. And I'm done with this tar baby about a year into it. That's four years ago. And I constantly say, 
Mass shootings really happen. The government stand down at Sandy Hook. They stand down in Florida. They try to take me off the air, try to take me off YouTube, saying I said nobody died in Florida. You know I didn't do that, and they're liars. So then they get three of the parents of the poor little children that died when another Prozac kid with a gun went and killed them and got the gun illegally. And the media exacerbates it. They bring it up and they say, Alex Jones is attacking these families when it's the media dragging this out every week of every month for the last five years saying this. The media never covered me in Sandy Hook at first. But they saw when I said, I think people died there because Paul Watson totally convinced me. I was just asking questions and Paul got mad at me about this. And I've been on record for four years about that. I respect Paul. And, I was, and, and so my, a lot of my listeners got mad at me saying, oh, you're covering it up. So they saw that as weakness in the media because I'm a real journalist. And they know full well. So I don't get equal time on Anderson Cooper or on Megyn Kelly or any of these programs. And they get these people up there with Anderson Cooper and they say that I'm bringing this out and I'm victimizing them. Megyn Kelly called me in April of last year, early April. She said, I want to come to town. You heard it. I secretly recorded it. And I said, listen, I'm not getting into Sandy Hook or Pizzagate. She goes, oh, I'm, no, I'm not going to get into that. No, no, no. It's all about you and your custody battle and how interesting you are. You're such a man. I want to watch dinner with you. And man, you're really, you know, all this other stuff. So I didn't record the first part where she was saying how good looking I was and stuff in the car. I was driving to work one Saturday. I said, let me call you back in five minutes. Because it was like, oh, you're just so manly. You're so, and I was like, you, you heard some of it. Once I got there, I recorded the, you know, what was going on is I didn't have a recording app on my phone. I have like, the voice memo thing, but it doesn't record phone calls. So I had to get another company phone and then record it. And I knew it was a total setup that I'm like, oh, really? Tell me about how it's 6 a.m. again, sweetheart. So you can read it. Alex Jones, Megyn Kelly, full interview leaked. You can go read that, listen to it, see it. So I'm saying, I will not talk about Sandy Hook. Do you understand, honey? Oh, yes. Then she has the bold cojones to go on her TV show yesterday morning with some of the parents and say, isn't it horrible he keeps bringing it up? Isn't it horrible he's sending crazy people to attack you? I'm not co covering it. I'm not bringing it up. I'm telling Megan Kelly, I don't want to talk about her. She's here a year ago, in the eight hours she interviews me to edit it together, and I keep saying, I think Sandy Hook happened. Well, why'd you say this? Why'd you say that? I said, well, I questioned some of it, what was going on early on because of anomalies and a stand-up. Edits that together to reissue it and put it out. The woman is the consummate snake. She is a, in my view, a corrupt, evil, lying lawyer masquerading as a journalist who is a monster affront to the truth who wants to create a chilling effect to shut down alternative information news because her ratings are in the toilet all the rest of MSM. Stop victimizing the people of Sandy Hook and the people of Pizzagate. Stop it! So Donald Trump's been in office less than a year and a half and like Lazarus, America has crawled out of its tomb economically, culturally, spiritually in many respects. We've really turned the corner. Lazarus has a heartbeat. He looks like hell, smells bad, but he's on the mend. And the banshees, the vampires, are going into connection fits of intimidation, of bullying, of just going wild. And a lot of Americans are saying, I'm going to keep my head down and see who wins this. You're not Americans if you do that.
America is America because we had guts. We stood up. The whole world, every major historian said we were smart, hardworking, and meaner than hell, stubborn like a mule, didn't back down. That's what built it. It's why on average we've got all this wealth. It's because we're not easy to push around. Well, I see myself as a throwback then. But America was the vanguard, the cutting edge. We're not going back to American values. We are getting back to the future, back to the real agenda that was making us so successful. Coming up, Roger Stone is listed in the giant lawsuit from the Democratic Party. Now, they already had Obama's law firm group that he founded uh, one month before he left office to, quote, stop the Trump agenda. Remember that headline. In fact, type that in. It's from CNN. Obama uh, founds legal group to stop Trump agenda. Didn't say Russia, to stop Trump. They developed the little breadcrumbs to put out the new fake suit and the Democratic Party with all its money gets behind it to crush these individuals. You talk about Federal Elections Commission issue. They shouldn't be able to do that. Should the Republicans be able to fund all these people so they can defend themselves? Oh, no. The Democrats will say, no, no, no. We can use our money to sue you, the deep state, but you can't use any government money to stop us. Roger shows the next segment, but let's get back briefly to Megyn Kelly. I may just play a few minutes of this, though. It really is hard to watch. CNN, NBC, all of them are in the tank. They admit that. And they're doing everything they can to try to shut down liberals, conservatives, you name it. In fact, there's a big hubbub on the Internet today um, that all of these mainline Democrats who are very, very popular but have their own shows, like Jimmy Dore and others, CNN is now pushing to have them blocked, their monetization taken, and to have that removed. Now, CNN admits a month ago they've been lobbying to have us removed and lying about what we've said to try to set the case for that. So they defame us and they try to silence us so they can tell lies about us and no one can respond. Just like I got hundreds and hundreds of media requests saying, what is your statement? What is your response on Monday? And I sent the media a video response and still for days after days, they say, oh, Jones didn't respond. Jones didn't respond. Jones didn't respond. Megan Kelly at least said, oh, he did respond on his YouTube. Lady, I got on an airplane and come up there and got in the studio with you and the uh, your father of one of the victims. I just said, sir, I've been saying for years that I'm sure people died there. And I never said for sure nobody died. I said that I played devil's advocate and said I could see why some people don't believe the government because it's a lot about babies and incubators. But it's been edited and then it's brought back up like I'm bringing it back up. I'd say, Megan, you told me before you came here we weren't going to get into Sandy Hook. But then you got into it, and then you say I'm a horrible person, bring it back up. You're the horrible person. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not going to be a statute in the law. They want the Alice Jones statute to preemptively ban people and preemptively ban questioning public events. They don't want you to question their narratives when they put out their narratives of chemical gas attacks and three times it turns out to be the rebels. We're not sure this time, it's still up in the air. But they have the motive. And, and Senator Paul and all these other generals say that Assad doesn't have the motive and the, the rebels have been caught staging stuff before and they've been putting out fake videos of gas attacks and admitting it's fake. I mean, this is getting crazy. 
And what does it say in internal Google documents from a year ago? We want Jones shut down because he changed the narrative on Syria, chemical attacks being staged. They don't want me here, so you don't have a voice, so we can talk about this. There's another article on InfoWars.com. CNN associates InfoWars with Pedo Channel in bid to shut down its competition. And hundreds of liberal channels that are popular, but that are independent and anti-war, they're being shut down, they're being blocked. And the left is so upset that people like Jimmy Dore has left the Young Turks, and he's more popular than them now, and that they want him off the air. That's what this is all about. I've invited Jimmy Gore on the show. It doesn't matter if we disagree on 80% of stuff. We agree, and he points it out, that they're shutting down conservatives and liberals that are non-interventions. CNN, and compares this to Nazis and pedophiles in the same newscast. I've got a lawsuit. I've got a real defamation suit. Because this stuff is causing damage with advertisers openly saying they're saying this so we lose advertisers. You understand what we're saying here? They say malice of forethought didn't do harm. They compare us to pedophile sites, white supremacist sites, who, by the way, have a right to operate. I don't agree with it. They have a right. Pedophile sites don't. And then say we should be taken down. That's all in a CNN report last night. This group that force feeds itself to you at hotels and bars and restaurants and train stations and bus stations and, and, and airports that you just can't get away from. It's like syphilis or gonorrhea or, or herpes. It won't go away. And it's just always there like a cold sore coming up. CNN is raping this country, raping the First Amendment. And it's all part of this big deep state constellation attack that's going on. Let's play some of this, uh, this is Megan Kelly. Um, father of slain Sandy Hook first grader, Alex Jones, must come clean on his lies. So they accused me of being a liar and, call, and calling them liars in the suit. It was father in Travis County on Monday. They say also that I must do a retraction, I refuse. They sent the letter last Wednesday. It had a month for me to do an apology or retraction, but I can't apologize or retract something I didn't do. Then they instantly file it, say that I'm not apologizing, say that I'm saying nobody died, and then saying, why won't he go away? Why won't he stop saying and stop bullying us, Alex? Well, my audience knows what really happened. This is worldwide news from Australia to Taiwan to, to, to England. Sandy Father hauls out all his shows on Megan Kelly. It's amazing. Megan Kelly, like a vampire, has been on this story and bringing it up and misrepresenting what I've said to hurt me. And she brings the pain of the families again. And I'm sure they're smart people, these families. You know, they don't want this pain of their family and the memory brought up. I'm not bringing it up. Except when they're in the news and the media is there saying, I've said things I didn't say. So I'm gonna ask the families to actually look at what I've said and to come on this show. But you notice, I'm not invited on any of these shows. It's all got to be one-sided so that Megan Kelly can lie to everybody. Roger Stone's coming up. I'm going to probably put on the end of this some of the clips, but it, it's just insane. I, I probably should issue a whole special report on this Megan Kelly thing because they're the ones bringing it up. They're the ones misrepresenting and then saying I am. It's total and complete fraud from the media.
We are here for a hearing in damages, and the law limits what I can and cannot argue. I'm not arguing that this is a political case. I showed you that exhibit so that you recognize some of the clips and snips you saw. You see them in context. And does that really sound like the kind of man who put a target on the family's back? Does it sound like somebody who sat up at night deciding I can monetize the family's grief? If it sounds that way to you, then you'll do what you think is appropriate. You will see a series, and you have in this trial seen a series of videos, small segments of larger videos. They're like 1A, 1B, 1C, 1E. If you're in the jury room and you want to see the truth, the whole truth about Alex Jones, ask to view a couple of those videos. Zach, can you show us 1E? This is the attack. Look, people got to find the clips the last two months. I said they are launching attacks. They're getting ready. I can see them warming up with Obama. They've got a bigger majority in the Congress now in the Senate. They are going to come after our guns, look for mass shootings. And then magically it happens. They are coming. They are coming. They are coming. They've already taken over health care. The premiums are doubling. They're bankrupting that. They're already shipped GM to China. They are going to gut this country. They're going to shut down the power plants. They're going to bankrupt us. They are re-educating us. Just like you're, we, uh, we were Ukrainians, and they're Russians. They want us bankrupt. They want the counties and the cities bankrupted and federalized. The feds themselves run by globalists. What does my, what does the new magazine say? You get it by subscribing. You get 12 issues. Great way. This man wants your guns. And I, I break down here, they're declaring war on the Second Amendment period. They are declaring war on the Second Amendment period. They are coming after our Second Amendment. It is happening. They want to kill America in 2013. That is their goal. That is what they want. They are moving to do it. Send your tips uh, to Real Alex Jones on Twitter. Tell me what you think. Con You've seen that video any number of times, twice now this morning, and how many times during trial? I don't know. Um, take a look at one while you're deliberating and ask yourself whether that's the conduct of a person who put a target on the, fam the back of families he'd never met. He was reacting. He told you from the stand. Mr. Maddie asked him, you care about your integrity more than anything, don't you? No, he said, and I'll do my best Alex impersonation. I care about smacking the globalists. They ridicule that. That's their right. There's a larger context for the speech than the, the speech that has been presented to you here today, and it's in evidence. All you have to do is look at it. They're all plaintiff's exhibits. They're not my exhibits. They picked and they chose what served the narrative, their narrative. All of us, I think, some of you are a little bit younger. All of us recall where we were the morning of December 14, 2012. And you heard news that you just couldn't imagine to be true. I was pacing the halls of another courthouse on the other side of the state awaiting a verdict in yet another case. 
And I thought, my God, how can this be? Children murdered in a school. My first reaction was fear for my client. It was a murder case. I wondered whether the jury would, heard that, would hear that and hold the gun against him. I'm old. My kids are gone. I didn't, my thoughts didn't turn to them. Mr. Jones' first thought turned to his narrative, the deep state. Mr. Mr. Maddy showed a statement that he made about a global conspiracy of financial and government elites that want to finance, you know, that want to control, enslave, and kill us. There's a crisis going on in this country. I led my opening statement with it. I give it to you now. Is are these the words of a man who, for the sake of a dollar, targeted these families, or are they the words of a man who's lost trust in our basic institutions? Over the portal, the doorway of the United States Supreme Court are the following words, equal justice under law, equal justice under law. Every person in this country accused of anything has a right to come into this courtroom and rely upon the rule of law as a defense. And every person, at least in most cases, has a right to come to a jury and ask the jury to evaluate the case under law. Mr. Jones is doing that. Did he take the stand and say, in your presence, in the presence of Judge Bellis, that he believes Judge Bellis is a tyrant? Yes, he did, and he does. He has his reasons, they're not for you to consider. Did he stand in this courtroom and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Attorney Maddie when Attorney Maddie launched an assault on him? That seemed to be a little bit more than was called for. Yeah, called him an ambulance chaser. Um, he said, you know, nobody complained about others when they did similar things. That was an ugly display. I'm not sure why it happened, but it did. But you saw it. And I, I was reminded of the words of, of Aristotle, candidly, and what Aristotle said about anger. And I'm going to read it so I don't get it wrong. I, I might be Greek, but I'm not as smart as he was. Anyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, and at the right time, and for the right purpose, and in the right way, that's without, not within everyone's power, and it's not easy. I would suggest that a good part of the plaintiff's lawyer's case in this, in this matter was an, anger, was an effort themselves to chin up anger, because this is a hearing in damages. And the angrier you get, the more money you will give. You're sort of like, the, you're sort of like a pinball machine. Put enough anger in here, pull the lever, and maybe all that money they talked about will pop out. It's not the law. The judge will tell you the law, and if I misread this, listen to the judge. Under the rule of compensatory damages, the purpose of an award of damage is not to punish or penalize the defendants for their conduct, but to compensate plaintiffs for their resulting harms and losses. I'd ask you to take that to heart, because right now I'm under that portal, equal justice under the law. 
I'm pleading my case for what might be the most unpopular man in Connecticut, if not America. And I'm not apologizing for it for one moment, because I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. I trust each and every one of you. We've sat through a veil of tears in this courtroom that could not help but have stirred your emotion. Could not help but to have disturbed, stirred your sympathy. Could not help but to give you a bias against Alex Jones. The judge will tell you, sympathy, bias, and emotion don't play a role in a hearing in damages. I didn't write the law. I'm a lawyer. You must follow it. You must follow it. How much damages were really proven in this case? They've given you some numbers. I'm not going to comment on their numbers. Um, well, I said that, and now I'm getting ready to do so. They've given you some numbers, and, and they've given it to an estimate, and basically said it's up to you. Now it is. But they didn't talk to you about everything you're going to be asked to decide. And I want you to ask yourself, why? Who's in it for the money here? Who's in it for the money here? I'm not going to pick on the plaintiffs. You notice, I hardly questioned any of them. I'm a father, too. I cannot fathom the grief that these people have endured in the loss of their child. You heard gripping testimony. They lost their grip on the world. I could go moment to moment, and I tried not to think beyond the next step because I did not know what would happen. I lost my moorings. They lost their hearts, a part of their soul. Alex Jones didn't kill their children. You never heard the name from the plaintiff's lawyer. Adam Lanza did that. Alex Jones reacted from afar because he thought it was another sign of his conspiracy. And the judge will tell you that as a result of a ruling on another day, Jones knew it to be a lie. That's what the judge will tell you. But you will evaluate the evidence in this case and reach conclusions about how persuasive the case that the plaintiffs put on is. That's your job. Not mine, not theirs. Now, when you go back into the jury room, you're going to be shown a form. A, it's a verdict form. And you're going to be asked plaintiff by plaintiff um, to make decisions about a dollar amount to give them for damage to their defamation, slander damages, a dollar amount for emotional distress. And suggestions were made about how to arrive at that sum. Depending, you know, 550 at a minimum, 8 point something billion, I think is what it comes to, multi multiplied times 15. It would take a person earning $100,000 a year, hundreds of years, to make $550 million. Where did that number come from? And what didn't the plaintiff's lawyers tell you? They told you you're the conscious of the community, you know, hold Alex accountable, make a point. They never talked about the damage that he actually caused these folks under this, in this hearing of damages. You heard from no physician. You saw no medical bill. You heard nothing about a lost wage. No receipt for anything has been put before you. You'll have some anecdotal evidence in the form of affidavits in the jury room. They may have bought a security system, but they're not asking for economic damages. They're asking for damages for their distress. And from the plaintiff's perspective, you can't give enough. You have to do this, they told you in opening statements, to stop Alex Jones, but that's not why you're here. You're here to award a fair, just, and reasonable amount. 
And I can see some of you looking at me with some skepticism thinking, eh, what do you call a lawyer at the bottom of the ocean? A good start. No. I am here to vindicate the promise of equal justice under the law for a despised human being. And there is no place on earth that I would rather be than right here, right now, with you, urging you to do the right thing. Because when you do the right thing and you decide this case according to law, you make the world a better place. You, as jurors, are the hope of our community. In a time of deep divisions and anger and the sort of stuff that you see Alex talking to about the, to his millions of people on the air, you get to speak truth to rage, you get to speak truth to power, you get to speak truth to plaintiff's lawyers. Here's what they didn't tell you when they were asking you to pull the casino lever on money. You. You also get to decide a simple yes or no question here. Should Alex Jones pay punitive damages? Why did they leave that out, do you suppose? I'm going to tell you, I've got my hunch. There's no money in that. The money, the judge will tell, punitive damages is an award of attorney's fees and costs. That, that's not going to be 100 million, 200, I think. A lot of lawyers here from that firm, some at the table, some in the audience. It's not going to be $100 million. So they gin up the compensatory damages number and say, give us, give us all you can imagine. It's up to you. You decide. 500, is $550 million the minimum? Maybe $8 billion is the maximum? You decide. And do it as the conscience of the community to send a message and so forth. That's what punitive damages are for. The judge will tell you there's a difference between compensatory and punitive damages. If you think Alex Jones deserves to be punished, within the meaning of the law, and again, equal justice under law. That's all we have. Any one of us can be brought into a courtroom tomorrow or the next day for, for an act or omission, real or imagined. Any one of us. When it matters, you want someone here. I'm on the barbed wire asking why. I'm here for Alex Jones. I'm here asking you for a verdict according to the law. Is there something wrong with that? Is there? Let's take a look at the evidence that you were shown. And I, I'm, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm not going to say much about the plaintiffs. Um, again, I remind you, I didn't cross-examine <coughs> well, What do you say to a woman who loved her child? We had hours of what amounted to memorial service here, the memorial service perhaps the group of them never got to have for their children in 2012. And the portrait that emerged were, is that these were the luckiest children alive. They were much loved, doted, cared for, and their parents wanted nothing more than to be good parents for them. And then, according to the plaintiff's theory, Alex, within hours, he heard about this, and he reached the conclusion, I must target them for work. That's their claim. But they produced what I assume is the best case they could marshal, the very best case they could marshal. I'd submit to you they're lucky they're here on a hearing in damages. Let's talk about their evidence. And you heard about it this morning. Mark Mills, remember him? He's the guy who in February of 2014 
crashed a Super Bowl press conference. 9-11 was an inside job by the government. Alex admired that. He talks. Gee, we should talk later. Matthew Mills turns up at a Soto road race, and they want you to believe Alex sent him. Turned up in November of 2015. How many months later? Was there any evidence that Mills was on the payroll? Did they produce it? They, they elected. They didn't have to put on evidence of this sort in hearing and damages. But they elected to put it on, and I think I'm within my rights to comment. I have to object at that this point. As to Wolfgang Halbig and Dan Bedondi, is there any evidence that they ever visited a family member? Uh, just another A business card on a windshield would put it there? Objection. Same. Alex Jones didn't invent the internet. Alex Jones didn't invent the divisions in this country. Even Clint Watts had to acknowledge the following. You'll remember Clint. He's the guy who went to West Point, then did a brief stint in the FBI, and then went somewhere else, went back to the FBI, and now formed a consulting firm. Got paid $925 an hour to come here and tell us about method. Messenger, medium, and method. And he talked about fear. And I asked him about the relationship between fear and anger, and he really couldn't comment on that. But I did follow up with another question. Mr. Watts, are you saying that Alex created this fear in people, or was he responding to fear that was already there? And he couldn't say. I thought Watts' testimony was amazing, frankly. Watts has been, is a social media expert. He got his chops studying Al-Qaeda, he told you. Um, and then once Al-Qaeda got, uh, you know, was struggling with developing its, its presence in the world online, he turned his focus to ISIS, another shadowy group in the Middle East. Both are groups that recruited people using fear, anger, demonization, by way of charismatic messengers to get people to do things. Kill us. That's what terrorists do. Right? And then he also said he offered his services to others, to businesses, to understand how social media could yield networks, how social media could yield influence in the world. And he never really took a position on what he thought of Alex Jones. Is Alex Jones a terrorist? He died. Is Alec, or is Alex Jones a businessman who kept his business afloat? by appealing to the fear of people he saw in the world for the reasons that you saw on Exhibit 45. This is not a case about politics. I remind you about that. It's a case about how much money will compensate the plaintiffs. You saw videotapes, ugly videotapes, and we'll see them again in rebuttal, I suspect, of Alex taunting Robbie Parker. And your heart went out to Robbie Parker, as did mine. He is a good and decent man. He did not deserve any of this. You heard testimony about emails. You heard testimony about comments on memorial pages. It's all but just, just, just a few that were apparently unearthed last month. You didn't see these emails they received. You didn't see the letters they received. You didn't see the notes left on the door. 
Uh, one of them was down in North Carolina, and somebody said, do you go to church? Well, I was inspired to be flip and use humor. You humor. And was it a Satanist? No, that, that's Alex's fault. No video clips of the harassment, no police reports, no law enforcement officers, no court records about what happened to Mr. Mills after arrested, uh, after he was arrested, what he was arrested for, even if he was convicted. No one to corroborate the plaintiff's complaints but themselves, one after the other. And it all started to sound the same. Ask to see some of the testimony or hear some of the testimony back, and what you'll find is it was an average of 27 minutes in each plaintiff's testimony before they got to Alex Jones. And they always skipped over the day. And there was a highly stylized presentation of the evidence. It sounded the same witness by witness by witness by witness by witness, and it was always the same sort of complaints. And it's all Alex's fault. Alex invented fear. Alex invented anger. Alex invented what's wrong with this world. Kill Alex and we'll all live happily ever after. Do you believe that for one moment? No doctor's bills, reports, very few mentions of treatment. Bill Oldenburg, the FBI agent, said he went to get AEP treatment, uh, employee, excuse me, a EAP treatment, employee assistance treatment, or talk to somebody for six hours or so after the shooting, or six sessions or so, rather, sometimes in mail, uh, on the phone, sometimes in person. Then years later, he did it again. And his complaint is that he's mis mistaken for Bill Wheeler. And, and for this, he needs millions, an FBI agent. He's a hero. So was every other law enforcement officer that went there that day. None of us would want to walk into the, that veil of trauma, not for one moment. I thought Watts' testimony was interesting in another way. I asked him, Mr. Watts, you've read Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capital. Uh, no, I hadn't. Had it? Uh, no, no, but I, I know what surveillance capital is, he said. And we talked about it. It's the marketing of our worst emotions, um, usually by social media companies, so that they can get data about us to manipulate us and sell us things. That doesn't make me Alex Jones or a conspiracy theorist. That's the reality of where we're living right now. That's why there's so deba much debate about social media. No lawyer in Connecticut or anywhere can walk into this courtroom and expect anything but scorn. And I will be attacked by Mr. Koskoff in his rebuttal to me. It will be Mr. Pettis that, Mr. Pettis this, all in an effort to gin you up and get you angry. So it doesn't mean a thing here for the plaintiff's lawyers if it doesn't go ka-ching. So I'm going to just, um, just one moment, please. Tony Pettis. Yes, Judge. I'll move on. No. Stop the clock. I won't use your time on this. Please refrain from any further personal attacks or comments about the plaintiff's lawyers or their law firm. It's highly improper. Let's move on. We'll talk about the plaintiff's, the plaintiff's case. I don't want to hear it again. Yes, Judge. I'm not Alex Jones. I don't hold this judge in contempt. I believe in equal justice under the law. But I also believe in your unique powers and yours to use common sense. 
and to evaluate the evidence in this courtroom and to evaluate the proceedings in this courtroom. I'm not asking you to endorse Alex's decision to erupt at the end of what I would call a vicious riff and cross-examination. I'm not asking you to excuse his decision not come back to come back to court. He believes it's a great system. You heard him say it. He believes you're rigged. You know better. Each of you knows better. And you will restore some confidence in some people, including viewers, by returning a calm and dispassionate verdict. Mr. Jones didn't turn up to this trial at all. My recollection is he was cross-examined for the better part of the day. A day. The plaintiffs could have asked him anything they want. Right? I think. I would have objected, certainly, if I thought it was objectionable. They never asked him about his net worth. They never asked him what expenses it took to operate his place. They never asked him how what it would cost to run an organization with 70 people. They never showed him an organizational flow chart that turned up somewhere from someone, from someone through my office that no, that people, no, no, no employee in that firm ever said they saw. Objection. The jury's memory will serve them. It's a single talent business, the father told you. In the, it, it all revolves around Alex Jones. I told you in the opening statement, he's a Dennis the Menace type character, a whirlwind of activity. You saw it in this courtroom, you saw it on the videotapes. Not everyone's cup of tea, but millions of people are tuning in to him, and they're tuning out of what he calls mainstream media. Why? People have lost confidence in public institutions. The way this case broke, because it's a default, because of the various rulings from the court, I can't say much more than I've said for Alex Jones. But when I am attacked by Mr. Koskoff, be assured that there are things I would say if I could. I'm going to have to trust you, as Mr. Jones will, the community will, and everyone will, to follow the law and render a verdict in this case that gives Mr. Jones fair, the plaintiffs rather in this case, fair, just, and reasonable compensation. You consider emotional distress under the court's instructions, reputational harm under the court's instructions, and then a yes or no question on punitive damages. You are not to mix apples and oranges here. You do not award punitive damages under the guise of compensatory damages. It's simply not your role. May I have one moment, Judge? Take your time. I just want to take one look at my notes on the opening arguments to see if there's anything that I need to address. There is. You were shown social media impressions, and Mr. Wasis claimed that there were lots of them, 550 million. Has, have any of you ever visited a website that you like? Do you do it more than once a year? Do you do it more than once a day? 
I mean, they said 9.2 billion impressions over a three-year period. That's more people than are alive. Are, are they claiming aliens from another planet looked at some of Mr. Jones's things? You, you just can't unpack these numbers in a sensible way. And they had the opportunity to do so. It was their burden of proof. You look at the engagements growing, and Zach, I'm going to need you to show us Exhibit 183. This is a plaintiff's exhibit. They're talking about how I gather what they're going to do to get ads. For the 20 plus years, Alex Jones has stood voicing the questions of the ignored and forgotten and the unappreciated. And with the help of experts, whistleblowers, and insiders, Alex Jones no longer stands alone. He now has a vast network behind him with a wide range of guests like Ted Nugent, Roger Stone, Megadeth frontman David Mustian, or Mustaine, excuse me, director David Lynch and Mike Judge. From Charlie Sheen's famous Tiger Blood rant to Donald Trump's promising, I won't let you down, Alex, your reputation is impeccable. Alex Jones and InfoWars is firmly rooted in American culture. InfoWars is no longer on the fringe. We're now one of the leaders in the new age of media, or the new wave of media. I, I read you that. It's in evidence. It's not my exhibit. You've already seen it. And you see this chart when they were trying to show you that Alex does everything for the sake of a buck, and they showed his numbers grow from 14 to 2.2 billion, 15 to 2.9, and 4.1 in 2016. We all know what happened in 2016. The man who said, I won't let you down, Alex, got elected. Sustained. This is not an action to compensate the folks at Sandy Hook for the loss of their children. Alex Jones is not Adam Lanza. This is not an action to compensate Ms. Hensel for the suicide of her husband, Jeremy Richmond. There's been no evidence about the cause of that. This is not an action to make a political statement to silence Alex Jones, no matter how satisfying that might feel to you or to the plaintiffs, and perhaps to others. I suspect Alex Jones will never be silenced. He's a mad prophet, warning of a dystopia to come protagonist in Orwell's 1984 when everything was about information control and it went into your room and the television was watching you. Like Aldous Huxley in Brave New World when he talked about SOMA and if we could just drug ourselves into compliance we'd accept any direction. Like Margaret Atwood in The Handmaid's Tale where she talked about how a patriarchal society would use women as nothing other than breeding machines. There have always been mad creative geniuses in the world who feared what was to come. And they speak loudly, and we have choices about whether to listen. But nothing in their speaking gives them the right to hurt others, and I'm not suggesting they do. I'm simply suggesting to you that if you fairly, calmly, and dispassionately look at the evidence in this case, you'll see that although it's a hearing of damages, it's a hearing of damages for an extraordinary purpose. Consider, you saw one E. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming for our guns. It's an attack on the Second Amendment. I had one of the family members up, I believe it might have been Mr. Wheeler. He watched the video, still couldn't tell us what he thought Alex's position was. 
people are filling in for the president giving a national address on gun control, they can't have feelings about what Alex knows about guns. Nobody heard of Alex until somehow in 2018 they all got together somewhere and decided Objection. to sue him. Objection. Jeremy Richmond told you why he filed, uh, why he took action Objection. against Alex. Jeremy Richmond is deceased. So thank you. You're exactly right. Please. Robbie Parker told you why he took action. Parkland shooting. I would suggest, and I'm going to be ridiculed for this in the line, and walked on, on one edge of what, you know, my name dragged through mud yet again. That's okay. Did they exaggerate some of the harm here? for the sake of politics, for the sake of guns, and the desire to make sure that this never happens to someone again, that no one else ever loses a child. Yeah, it makes you uncomfortable when I say that. I see you looking away. But it's a fair question, and it's one you have to wrestle with. Because otherwise, where was all that mountain of proof about the things they told you about and didn't show you, the unnamed people who Alex sent? Because it's really targeted. Equal justice under the law. I've been doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm zeroing in on 70, and I've been in hundreds of trials, and I've seen thousands of jurors, and I've never been prouder than I am at this moment, because the easy thing to do would be to tar and feather Alex Jones. But it's not what the law requires. The law requires that you serve equally, coolly, dispassionately, to evaluate the evidence and render a fair, just, and reasonable verdict. I'm going to end this with, with what I call the trial lawyer's prayer. You know, the law is my shepherd, and I shall not want. It makes me plead in the presence of jurors. It leads to justice, and it restores my soul and the soul of the community. Your soul. Your soul. Your soul. Yea, and this case has never been truer than this case. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for the jury will hear me. It's judgment and good sense that save me and comfort me. The court prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I will be shrouded in justice, my cup runneth over. And mercy, perhaps, goodness, mercy, perhaps justice will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in a court forever, but maybe not. Thank you. My time here has ended as probably will end soon in life in general. I mean, you get to 70, you start to wonder. Um, but thank you for your kind attention. I beg you, follow the law in this case. Put aside passion, prejudice, and sympathy. When I'm attacked, I warned some of you during jury selection. It's not a popularity contest. Yeah, they're nicer guys. Some of you know. Okay, I get that. But in the dark night of the soul, when they come for you, you want a lawyer at your side. I'm proud to be at Alex's side. If he asks you, I ask you for justice. So we will see how that turns out. Maybe in a couple days. I would assume sometime uh, the next week, by the next episode, we should know what the outcome is of that case. I also saw in the Rockfin chat, or in the chat, yeah, I think it was uh, 
Rockfin tip. Uh, someone had mentioned Francis Stoner Saunders. I have several of her books. Uh, this is one who paid the Piper, the CIA and the cultural cold war. Um, she did another one on the cultural cold war might even be called the cultural cold war. If I remember correctly. Um, and then Alfred McCoy did uh, several books on CIA, opium, narco terrorist trafficking, which is also referenced heavily in the Whitney Webb uh, two volume set. McCoy books are in the other library over there. I don't have time to go get them, but this is a good one to start out with. And it's a it's a sizable read. There's a lot, a lot of juicy stuff in this. Uh, we don't have time to cover it tonight, but I did want to give it honorable mention because I saw that uh, come across in a text. So thank you for that comment. Who else do we have tonight, uh, uh, LD? Because I'm thinking, are there any other clips that we need to play before we get to the part where we uh, thank everybody? Not specifically. Obviously, there's always clips that uh, are going to be left out. Change my camera here. Um, there is an honorable mention of a uh, good clip by Russell Brand this week in regards to climate change and some of the facade associated with it that I know we all watched and found interesting. And the, the traditional show card, because of extraneous uh, circumstances in regards to my travel <laughs> itinerary, um, obviously I didn't get a traditional show card done, um, but uh, I'm not sure I will for the past week, but for obviously next week and, and moving forward, there'll be a traditional show card as there always is. And we'll so have people- references for everything we played tonight. Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, yeah, we've been documenting. You just that. won't have the stuff we didn't get to play like you usually do. Correct. That, that's correct. So we're referencing the stuff we played tonight, but we won't have all the the list of all the various clips we found interesting from throughout the week uh, that we didn't play. Uh, and Tony but, will be there and I'll be here Tuesday night for town hall. That's correct. Uh, I'm going to extend my stay just for a couple more days and we're going to do a town hall together. And so if anyone wants to come and ask some questions uh, in regards to the content of what we discovered or what I mentioned about um, regards to going down some deep dives into medieval history in regards to Templars, Knights of Malta, Knights of Hospitler, which I know there's been a lot of questions about that. We might do a little bit of that and also cover some of the stuff that I want to cover a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, what we talked about earlier in regards to the naval intelligence, uh, what happened, you know, some of the stuff that we mentioned that we couldn't really get to tonight that I think will be, as well as maybe get a bit more into Hector's story and what happens because you showed me your script. Maybe we can show some of the GTW subscribers, some of the, uh, some of the work you did in regards to uh, that script from the interview you did with uh, the whistleblower. Hey, I'll give, uh, I'll give a little tip because it's like the end of the show. Oh, yeah. It's not, we're not there yet. Don't, don't, don't go clicking away. Cause there's like good stuff yet to happen uh, in future weeks, hoping to get Hector Bereas uh, mentioned earlier tonight on as a guest. My buddy John and I were uh, the cinematography team, did the interview with him. But John also has some other interesting hobbies, and Tony's wearing one of John's hobbies right now. Um, That's correct. His predilection has turned. He used to just be a standard like audiophile nerd like 20 years ago, and then recently he's been doing like headphone mods. So this past week, I had two boxes that showed up and two sets of headphones. So I plug them in. I start listening to my favorite music. And I was like, wow, it sounds like you're there. Like, what did you do to these headphones? And then we had to talk with them. So anyway, that pair that Tony's sporting right now, he's going home with those. He's like, these are my new favorite headphones. He already had Hi-Fi Man, but he didn't have them modded with this fractal mesh stuff that Johnny's got going on. So my point was, when we were all talking about it, 
from a marketing perspective, I told John he wasn't charging enough. He's go. got to raise his prices. We're helping him with his website, his marketing stuff. But uh, what he did to say thanks was he, until he changes the prices, he gave us a Grand Theft World coupon code, which is GTW101, because this is episode 101. LD, do you have that link? Someplace uh, I yeah. dropped it in a chat I'm a couple it days up. ago. One second here. Yeah, he's going to have to bring it up because it was like not planned. But I figure anyone who's a member, anyone who listened this long and you like headphones, you might as well get them at a steep discount before he raises prices. And then, uh, yeah, he's going to be doing press and tours and stuff like that. I've, yeah, so I've been in. Uh, go ahead. JMAudioEditions.com forward slash shop. And uh, GTW101 gets you 20% off. I'll drop that link, that info in the chat. And then, um, what's the model number on that box in the studio back there, Tony, the red, the red set. So I'll just say it like this. I wear Sennheiser in-ear monitors here on the show, but when I have to edit uh video tape, audio, stuff like that, video, not tape anymore, but video footage. Um, I've had, I have Bose headsets that are noise canceling. And I got Grados that Tony gave me 10 years ago. And I put this stuff on that John sent those two sets that he sent this past week. And I was like, it's night and day difference. It's a game changer. I've never heard headphones like that before. And so I'm keeping the ones that I think sound the best. And Tony's keeping the ones he thinks sound the best. And Open we're getting cavity. LD Better. lined up. looks like uh, Justin might need some too. So it's a HER9. Um, it's a standard closed back that has a lot of space. It's, it's trying, trying to mimic, mimic, excuse me, an open back uh, sort of style, which is what I prefer. Um, I've been well, to open high, backs it, it, look better, but closed backs sound better. So I'm not wearing mine on camera. Yeah, I, I don't bought, think they, I, you know, I, I don't got, think I they got sound mine better. for sound, you know, and uh, you, you got yours. Those are more sporty. I uh, disagree. I think the sounds much better out of the open. back. I've been an open back. Sounds I mean, a subjective started, thing. There you right. go. Well, the thing, here's what I'll say is like, they both are pretty equal. What you're looking for is a difference in soundscape. So it's the way in which you're hearing the positioning of the frequencies of the various sounds you get out of like an orchestra or a band, so forth and so on. And so I just prefer the the breathability of an open back. Um, whereas uh, the R9s, that's what you have. The HER9s have that they try to mimic that, but have a closed sort of in, in, they they try to mimic an open back with a closed back. It sounds um, like you're in the room very, with them, right, which that's, is what I like because it's not blasting in your ear. Do. It's it's in the ear cup, and your ear is listening into that little ear cup room. So, yeah, well, but, well played, Johnny. He's got like some patent pending I've, trademark. I've, I've fabric, been in the audiophile fractal equipment. mesh. He's got it's it's all nerdy. It's it's above my pay grade, but my ears know how good it sounds. So. Yeah, yeah well, these are well fantastic. Played. These are better than ones I have currently. And I have a, a fantastic amp, a couple of amps actually for um, high fidelity equipment, audio equipment. I've been into the audiophile game for a while. I'm not like huge anymore. Like I used to be, I spent too much money no, in that you're market, super but, nerd. but yeah, I'm a super nerd. I'm very familiar um, with it. And the only, the next grade up from here would be electrostatics. So this is like and that's you that's spending tens of thousands of dollars potentially. Yeah, Tony said he had he had listened at a buddy's house. He, his buddy's he got has 50, electrostatics with like fifty thousand dollar set of headphones. Well, it's not fifty, but they're like well, right, they, there you go. But they're you know, I think the whole setup is he has is probably around he built his own amps, which is kind of dangerous because you're dealing with very high voltages for the type of uh uh, amperage you need to push in electrostatics, which is a so floating super nerd stuff. It's a, it's a floating magnetic bridge, which is obnoxious. It's a floating driver. We're using electrostatics, literally electrostatic fields. 
Um, anyways, the point is, uh, that's like the end game an audiophile headphone equipment and people will spend routine, routinely 10, 20, $30,000 amps and uh, other sort of components associated with it. Getting a little bit of feedback oh, Justin, we're getting echo because he opened up the talk probably. That's okay. Um, so the, uh, the, I guess the, the wrap up the point is that, um, these are like one small step down from that, in my opinion, um, having gotten the opportunity to listen to my friend's electrostatics this summer for the first time after he built his own, uh, setup for it. Um, absolutely incredible. Uh, there's nothing like an experience like that, but this is one small step below that. And so that's end game for the ultra, ultra, ultra audiophile nerds that have buku money like my buddy does. Um, so to experience this at the price point he has it at is quite literally insane. I mean, I have hi-fi mans at home. People see, it says wooden ones. Um, these are just dramatically better. So whatever he did, I would like to pick his brain because I am astonished. And I have a bunch of speakers as well and uh, emotivas and a couple of different uh, amps I use. And I'm into all that nerdy stuff. I used to be, but at least more. I still enjoy it. I don't, I'm not quite as into the games I used to be back in the day because it can be a little bit of a money sink. But uh, really great work, John. And I can't thank you enough for sending this to uh, Richard and, and for Rich for giving me the opportunity to take one home with me um, yeah they're really custom excited. mods so he can only do so many per month so like right. both boxes i got are like limited edition and uh i was a little you know, i was skeptical because i was like i already have good headphones but then i listened and i i heard the difference and i was like okay well played so we'll have john on to talk about our film adventures with hector but we can also talk about his current projects because he's an entrepreneur and it's not his first entrepreneurial endeavor. I have other products he's developed over the years and stuff like that. He's a good guy to know. And you should talk to him, Tony, because you guys are both like audiophile nerds. And I, I enjoy maybe, the music. Uh, you enjoy the technical stuff that makes the music sound great. That's I would point. like to. Yeah. And that was one of the key components in helping you get your sound to a, a respectable, actually, in my opinion, above a respectable stage back way back in the day. Cause I know, I was pretty anal about uh, your sound in regards to, cause you, you know, your setup was. Yeah. And speaking of that, let's bring in Justin in. Cause he had an open mic, but he's got speakers on. So we were all getting echo and that's why I kept muting you, bro. So now you can talk. Yeah. I was just going to pipe in. Re reset that uh, audio restart. engine. Yeah. Yeah. Restart your audio engine. Let's start there. That's all right. Cause it's like 4:42 in the AM on the East coast. And Justin is on East coast time and he's still right. awake. And he's got a situation. I'm covering for him right now. We'll hear him clearly in just a second. In just a second, if people are patient, we get it all cleared up. We're doing it live. We have a good attitude about doing it live. How now, Justin? Just extended attention spans. That's there cool. we go. Problem fixed. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, Big win. All good. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, voice meter gets you. Uh, I haven't tried his headphones yet, but I was looking at his website and I got to say, as far as the fact that he's actually taking these apart and modding them and the prices that he, he's offering is practically the, the price the you could pay for the naked the ones mod. without the mod. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the thing that. that drove me nuts. It, like that's it's incomparable. Yeah. Like why even, why even do it yourself? I mean that he has the aptitude and technability and makes the offer for it. It's awesome. Yeah. If you're into headphones. Yeah, so he needs some other stuff for his website, some other marketing basics. But the first thing I was like, dude, it looks like you're losing money with your time with these mods. And what you're doing is far beyond. Because Tony actually has Hi-Fi Man headphones already. A bunch and of then different types of headphones, you know, a whole different range of Grados. The ones I gave you are some, those are like the first ones I ever bought probably 10 years ago. And so then I have Hi-Fi Man's. 
I have a couple others, some, probably some Sennheisers in there. Um, and yeah, I can't really think of, I'd have to go back through my stash. I pretty much isolate one and then only use one, one I have deemed to be the best. I'm more into the amps that push the headphones. So I got really big into tube amps and solid states and that sort of thing for a while. So, so I didn't know what to think. I, I thought they sounded great. And the, probably like the definitely the best headphones I'd put on my head to hear. I, I listened to Pink Floyd live at Pompeii. And so I didn't, but then I'm a novice. So when I tested Tony, I was like, dude, here, check these out. And then he was like, oh, I already have these and these are modded. And let me plug them in. And he's like, whoa, what the fuck? It sounds like you're there. You should wear them real quick. Nah. Uh, I told John, he said, would you wear them on camera? I said, not, <laughs> no. I said, I'll wear them in the dark, listening to Floyd and a little mushroom trip, but I'm not going to. They're they're a little gnarly. The R9s they're, are. They stick out a little bit, but yeah, that's they, that's the sound they make. There's got lots of different styles, but those are the ones I, uh, yeah. I'll put them on. Maybe I don't care. Oh, look, Tony doesn't care. Go ahead, put them on. Okay. Give see me if it sounds any for better. Like yeah. Two minutes. Yeah. Oh, two minutes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, takes, one for 30 You got to get them out of the box. Yeah. Now you'll at least get to see them. Tony will model them for you guys. Now, I prefer not having a big cup on my ear while I'm doing stuff here in the studio because then you can't see the nice books behind me. You'd be distracted by what you're about to see land over there. Saucers. They don't look, you know, they, they're kind they're of not that like, bad. I can't really. Maybe it's just my big head. <laughs> How do they sound? Uh, you know, I oh, you didn't to. plug them in yet. You didn't plug them in. I yet. mean, I'll plug them in. I can plug them in real quick. He was hearing me out of the other headphones. I knew he was cheating. And now we'll have LD sing uh, Fidelio, some opera or something. <laughs> Fidelio. <laughs> Fidelio. <laughs> you know, he's trying Bob to get him. There you go. Um, Masters of War. Yeah, I did, All right, I did so, that last night. You can definitely tell the closed back. It, it it it's it's open. It still has some breathability. Um, something I really look for in headphones, but it has that nice expansive soundscape. But it's definitely closed, like you're in an amphitheater. Well, no, no, not an amphitheater. Um, something that's more like a modern, sort of um, acoustically designed uh, auditorium. Room. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. it What's reverberates that? well, but it's still enclosed. That's sort of the soundscape you get with these. Amazing. I just prefer. I just think the open back, there's nothing like an open back to me. It just, it just breathes. I, I just, but these are amazing. I mean, you can't go wrong with either. It's purely up to your subjective interpretation of sound at this point. And what you like out of, when it comes to headphones, high fidelity headphones, you're looking for a certain soundscape. If you like a little bit more definition, if you will, to the different frequencies you're going to hear, these are probably a little better. If you like to sort of reverberate more, get more of that sort of, um, expansive feeling to the sound as though it's resonating and having no ending to it, as well as having very particular frequencies and being able to pick out extreme detail, then you want to go with. Yeah. I with noticed these. I was hearing instruments and songs I was familiar with uh, instruments. I hadn't heard in those songs before. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the, the, the gist and anything you got to wear for six or seven hours on a show like this, it's got to be uh tried and true, super, and proved, super road tested. So we're road test these a little bit more. And uh, oh, these yeah. are some of the most comfortable headphones, but usually I have the only mods I ever do is the headband and, and the ear, ear pieces. And these are as actually probably the most comfortable I've ever put on more comfortable than the electrostatics or my other hi-fi mans or the Grados I have and Sennheiser so forth and so on. So, well, it's a, it's a good step in the light direction, but 
like I said, next week he's going to raise his prices <laughs> so he can stay in business so he can afford to pay for marketing because that's part of his problem. He's got no leads. Now you got a couple leads, Johnny. Well played. People are going to get a great deal before you raise the prices and they get a coupon code GTW101. What more can we do at 448 in the morning? All right, LD, <laughs> who do we have to thank for this episode besides the fantastic members of the various levels of Grand Theft World's membership driving right. us forward? We have a great list. And then after that, speaking of suffering with meaning, I've got some some video of uh, concrete work uh, that I want to show you guys. Yeah. So we'll blast through this. Uh, yeah. Huge thanks to all our Grand Theft World community members and big thanks to the, the Rockfin tippers tonight. Free market worker, $5. Thank you. Thomas Hutchinson, $10. Looking forward to what Maybe the GTW GOAT. Small computer system interface dash one, $5 for Tony's new setup. <laughs> Dave and Laura, $50. Please de-douche us. Um, obviously fans of the No Agenda show, and I told them they're, uh, they're far beyond that at this point. Send them a title. Yes, yeah, they're, they're ready for titling. Yes. R. Lewis, $5. Happy Thanksgiving to all my Canadian brothers and sisters. Love all you GTWers. And I'm not just thankful for Richard, Tony, and LD, but every one of you. And thank you. I don't know what you Canadians have to be thankful for. Just kidding. Jake Sheen, $5. Whitney Webb's work is outstanding. You are all conquering miles for those that will follow. Dallas Avad, $10. What a brilliant conversation. Whitney is a great researcher and Richard, a pro interviewer. I could listen to them talk all night. A lesson in advanced conspiracy facts for episode 101. $5 from Matt Green. Fantastic interview. Jacob Greismer. $2. Guessing the show already. Um, yeah, I think you saw this, but uh, I'll read it out loud. Guessing the show already knows this. John Potash talks about the Russell Fund. Is it that? Uh, is it that was created by the opium trade that started Ivy League schools? Question. Uh, cultural wars by Alex. There's Stoner. a little. There's a little nuance in there. Elihu okay. Yale worked for the East India Company, and he founded Yale University. So East India Company had a monopoly on opium. He became wealthy through that. He creates Yale. In 1832, the East India Company privatizes and gives up their monopoly and lets Jardine Matheson and companies that are named in Whitney's book. Right. They get the uh, the opium kind of privateering going on in 1832, the same year that that money from the Russell Trust goes into creating skull and bones. That's now, true. there's William Russell. There's San, there's a whole bunch of different Russells. They're part yeah, of the Eastern establishment, yeah. Boston Brahmin families. Yeah. And just and we when you up. thought this show was over, it just got interesting talking about all this stuff just because we're you know listening to the thank yous from the show. But that's a very interesting point, And we could actually build out on that maybe next episode. There's a lot to that. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot. The Boston Brahmins. And Chris famous. Milligan from Trinidad knows all about it. He wrote a book oh, called yeah. Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, and it has a lot of those Eastern establishment families in that book. Didn't he also write uh, the on the Perfectibilis? That was Terry Mellinson. That was Terry Mellinson, oh, yeah. But it's also published by Trinidad. Yeah, I'm thinking Trinidad, yeah. But for some reason, I thought Mellinson also. Never mind. Uh, we got 100 from ARIM. Thank you very much. TKN, $5. Said thanks, GTW. And just a couple comments. Free market worker said high quality conspiracy history product. And B1, 
I am a very visual learner, so I really appreciate the history blueprint, and it is truly invaluable. And uh, yeah, if you haven't been to GrandTheftWorld.com, go over there, click the Join Community button right now, <laughs> if, you, if you feel like it. Um, you know, you get access to a whole bunch of content and access to a Zoom webinar where we produce this show. It's probably one of the better experiences for viewing the show live and um it's the one i prefer <laughs> you also get to see beyond the scenes before and after um yeah people so. come you know so we we do the pre-show we do the after show people come in they hang out right now there's 18 people here but there was like 35 when we started and uh it's like the you know the closest you can get to being on the show without being on the show and you get access to the tuesday night town hall bi-weekly town hall so, and sometimes uh, we bring people into the show. Like so, last week. Yeah. So. You got to roll the dice, see what happens. We make it up as we go. That's the thing. Who else? All right. What's that? I said, who else we got on the list there? Anyone? That's the end of the list. But uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, Joshua and his neighbor got to visit my location uh, weekend, last weekend. And uh, they helped out a little bit with the uh, dome project with Ernie Hancock. Um uh, hashtag occupy the land uh so i wanted to play that and then i've got another video of just us putting the, the final uh mortar mix coat on the dome so uh yeah, the, the gist is low cost sustainable low maintenance uh high protection from the elements yeah structural integrity is indoor incredible. square yeah. footage that you could use as an office a root garden a you know uh homeschooling area uh, workshop, all these different things. And it's a, a low cost experiment. They're doing the pilot projects. It's took taken longer than they thought because they were going to be able to spray the, the, the concrete on, but that, you know, that has been done by hand by LD mixing the concrete and applying the concrete, getting burned on the skin by the concrete, all that fun stuff. So now you get to see the end result of a lot of hard work that they thought that they were going to have machines to do, but it's even better. They did it by hand. They did it their way. They got it done. Let's check out. There's little, a lot of uh, technique to laying concrete. I'm I sure said it LD. looks like Tatooine. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm really curious. Yeah, go play this one, actually. Yeah, as I said, suffering with meaning. Yeah, got, <laughs> got some of that in. I think everybody should work a little concrete in their lives. Hell yeah.
All right. And uh, yeah. This now, did you edit that or did Joshua edit that? That was from Joshua. Okay. Yeah. It did look like his editing. I was suspecting that was a Joshua edit right there. Uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, I really like the, the cuts between all that footage. So I got informed, but I was also entertained with, uh, the styling of it. So that's well played. It's hard to do all it right. almost 5am. <laughs> and yeah, this is just mostly time-lapse here. I put together the other day. This is the, uh, the final coat with the uh, mortar mix and tint. Time-lapse speed lamps. There you go. Since the crack of dawn, just trying to get paid. Been hotter than a hundred suns. I can't find no shade. Just two more rows and I'm good to go. Yeah, I'm shutting this tractor down. Give me a half an hour for a shave and a shower, and I'll be outside your house. Might have a little dirt on my boots, but I'm taking you uptown tonight. Right off them tonight. Yeah, Got a little dirt on my boots. Hard as I worked all day, I'm gonna work hard of loving on you. Spin you all over that dance floor, right out of them high heel shoes. And when you're ready to quit, baby, we can slip right out of that barroom door. And when I take you home, don't I'm gonna kick him off on the porch Might have a little dirt on my boots But I'm taking you uptown tonight Might have a little mud on my wheels But they gonna shine with you up inside Gonna hit the club, gonna cut the rug Burn it up like neon lights Might have a little dirt on my boots But we're gonna dance the dust right off them tonight Not the machine you wanted, but maybe the machine you needed. 
In the next part, they they build the moisture evaporators and get the droids <laughs> for their remake of Star Wars. Oh man, that was satisfying Before. to watch. Having uh, having uh, done all that. Um, well, good job, man. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of work. Um, you've been doing that yeah. for how many weeks now? Yeah, months? more than a few. Um, <laughs> more than a few. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's good uh, learning experience. Hey, we've got one more. We've got one more Rockfin super chat, and it looks Ooh. like our first titling on the Grand Theft World podcast. Looks like that's happening. Zach, two dollars uh, requests. Sir Zach Lord of Algonquin. So there we go. Congratulations. We'll have to figure out how to. Yeah, I'm not sure what uh, the sign is. A night D. <laughs> there you go. All right. LD can run the nights. I'll run the days. We'll uh, we'll work on that in the background. Yeah, <laughs> we're making it up as we go. All right. So, do we have anyone to play us out tonight? Well, I did because I, I wanted. Yeah. I wanted to congratulate anybody who made it to the end of this episode because it is probably one of the longer, more dense episodes in this this show's history. And that means uh, much like riding a, a bull that uh, not everyone makes it to the end, but those who do are champions. So I wanted to thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out and see who we had to play us out. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, we've got a little JP Sears and then uh, a fine song uh, by the Refusers that I... I picked up from uh, James over at the uh, Grand Theft World Liberty Radio. I think it'd be right enjoyable. on. So here, here's JP, JC, Penny, Sears, whoever this guy is that keeps making videos. Let's see if he makes us laugh again, like he always does. Peace. Thank you for kneeling during the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, for today's class, we're going to take inspiration from our great leaders and learn how to become a hypocrite. But I warn you, without enough indoctrination and examples of degenerates brilliantly portraying hypocrisy, you're at risk. Um, at risk of what? At risk of letting your innate human nature lead you to life of integrity. If that happens, you only have two options for jobs when you get older. You'll either be a domestic terrorist who loves this country or you'll be a racist, but probably both. But because I love kids, I want a better future for you than that. But if you're not a hypocrite, why would those be the only two options? No more hateful questions. Ugh, I wish you were aborted. So the first step to being a hypocrite is to stand for nothing. This requires you to have no moral code and no sense of purpose when it comes to contributing to the betterment of your community. Step number two to being a hypocrite. Speak the language of moral superiority. That way, because you'll have no morals, it's easier for you to morph into a sounding box of saying whatever will make people think you're a more caring, better person than they are. The third and final step to being a hypocrite is never let your actions match your words. Now let's put all this into a practical example. Just imagine you're a hysterical person who says, we should encourage and welcome all illegal immigrants to flood across our open border into this country. Now here's the question. When should you stand by this statement with your actions? A. At all times. B. Never. Or C. At all times unless they're sent to my community, then we don't want those illegal non-whites here. To me? Uh, I don't know. 
at all times. Timmy, you worthless clump of cells, are you even paying attention? Not really. I think I'm still in a trauma response from yesterday when you were talking about your body and sexuality for half the day. We'll be talking more about that this afternoon. And thank you for listening so carefully yesterday. You wouldn't be traumatized unless you were paying attention. Johnny? Is it C at all times unless they're sent to my community, then we don't want those illegal non-whites here? That is the correct way to think. And your prize for being right, you get to keep these. Go ahead, take a sniff. Nobody has to know, it'll be our little secret. Go ahead. Mm, that feels so good. Now let's double down on being a hypocrite. We'll use a recent case study. On Martha's Vineyard, they have a sign that says, we stand with migrants. Now those are great words to say, but then they recently had the tragic crisis of immigrants actually showing up on their island. Now as true law-abiding hypocrites, what do you think they did in response? Yes, Sarah? Panicked and then sent them somewhere else so they don't have to be inconvenienced? You them theirs are getting it. I think you're ready for an advanced lesson in hypocrisy. So, as you know, words have meaning. But as hypocrites, we have to face the adversity of redefining those words so they're a little bit more, shall we say, malleable. For instance, the word inclusive has a dictionary definition of including everyone, but the word has a hypocritical definition of rejecting anyone who thinks differently than you. Uh, Sarah, are you okay? My chest is really hurting. From what? I think it's from the double mastectomy you encouraged me to get. I feel like I've been mutilated. Enhanced. Enhanced is the correct thing to say. By the way, you're welcome. Okay, class, let's really put your hypocrisy skills to the test. As you know, we're currently under a climate emergency that will have this very classroom underwater probably by the end of the week, unless we can relegate our country to third world status. Who has the authority to, shall we say, condescendingly talk down to people about climate change? People who are making an earnest effort to reduce their carbon emissions? That's absurd. You know what? That's the last straw with you. Go to the principal's office and get aborted. The correct answer is people who fly on private jets. That way they can arrive so they can shamingly lecture the little people about their use of fossil fuels. What was that? It was Sarah's head bouncing off the floor. Looks like she passed out. She'll be okay. Now, it sounds easy to be a hypocrite, but it's not. There's one thing that can absolutely ruin your pursuit of being a hypocrite, and it's having principles. Principles are what a person stands for. And it's been said that if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. But if you stand for something, then you'll fall for nothing. Principled people hatefully stand by their principles no matter what even when standing by them means that same principle is supporting something on the other side. And even worse, the actions of principled people always stay in alignment with the words they say. That can be a lot of effort and is basically the opposite of being a hypocrite. <laughs> Gross. So when it comes to principles, just say no. Any questions? Hmm. Johnny, as a teacher, do you have any principles? Ew, no, of 
course not. Timmy? I think Sarah's dead. Good. No more carbon emissions from her. As I strive to be a hypocrite like you, I notice my heart feels heavy when I think about racism. You're white, so you are racist. So would it be good to use racist tactics to help end racism? Bingo. Now you're getting it. history is the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce they claim to take care of them through government which doesn't give you anything it doesn't take away first so it's not creating something out of nothing it's very real what they're doing they're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights if you haven't heard about our grand theft world community membership here are a few of the things you've been missing a mobile app where you can access replays of the grand theft world podcast and show notes Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there. 